This is Jocko Podcast number 391 with Carrie Helton and me, Jocko Willink. Good evening, Carrie. Good evening. We moved out just after 0200. We functioned seamlessly as a unit, pushing through the quiet, pitch black night toward the compound rising out of the dusty Iraqi streets. Our orders were to capture or kill the target. We had confirmation that the terrorist was in the building. The assault element, including myself, scaled the six-foot concrete fence in perfect silence while the designated security element circled the walled compound to make sure the terrorist escape was impossible. We hit the ground with barely a rattle. Within moments, I was shouldered up against the outer wall of a building just inside the fence, a string of men with me. With practiced movements, I set a breaching charge on the door, And on my signal, my security element and I began to walk back toward the designated space around the corner where the rest of the assault element were ready, were already taking cover. The moment we began to move, however, I realized with a sinking feeling that the reconnaissance images I'd studied earlier hadn't shown the mound of rubble in the same corner between the wall and fence. Shit. There was barely enough space left to cover most of the assault element. I wasn't going to fit. And there was no time to scale the concrete fence and take cover. It was a split-second decision. I backed myself as far from the door as possible and then dropped to my knees. I covered my face with my M4, curling up to protect as much of my body as possible. Based on the careful calculations for safe standoff, I knew I would still be relatively safe as far as the shockwave was concerned. I learned early on from my previous direct action missions to calculate the safe distance from breaching charges in two ways. One normally per the manual and one for situations like this, for me. The second calculation was important for times when I may not make it to cover but needed to have an absolute minimum safe distance. It was a distance from the breaching charge that could cause injury but should not be incapacitating. I was hoping to never use it. Once I knew everyone else had cover, I quietly passed the call over the radio, turning steel, turning steel, turning steel, and I detonated the charge on the door. The blast blew fragments of the door out right over my head with a thunderous sound that rattled my skull. A shock wave that felt like it lifted me off my knees slammed me back onto the ground. I yelled, open, 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 even as I tried to regain my footing only to fall back on my hands and knees, bleeding from my nose and one ear. The breach blew the door wide open, and the rest of the assault element was forced to shove me out of their way as they rushed in the building through the smoke. I don't remember pain in the moment. Pain is the last thing on your mind when you're in the middle of an operation. I rallied quickly enough to join my team to clear the building, going room to room on autopilot, ears ringing. We caught our suspect without much struggle, and we returned to base on the high of a successful mission before the sun was even up. And that right there is an excerpt from a new book that is out right now, just came out. It's called The Pledge to America. It's written by Thomas Drago Zaran. And that is actually a little bit of an excerpt from my life as well. 
because I had the honor to be on missions like that with Drago in 2003, 2004 in Baghdad and throughout Iraq. I also served in a platoon with Drago at SEAL Team 2, a strike platoon where we served on the USS John F. Kennedy and went over to the Persian Gulf during the millennium. And it was an awesome time that we had, and it was awesome to get to know Drago. And he has one of the most unique stories in the world. And I know that's a bold statement, but he, when you hear it, you, you'll agree with me. It's one of the most unique stories in the world. And he's sharing this complete story in that new book that's out, The Pledge to America. And it's an honor to have Drago, my brother, once again. He was here, Podcast 276. Have him back again to talk through this book. Drago, welcome back, bro. It's good to see you, man. Thank you for inviting me. Thank you so much. Um, it's nice to be back. Absolutely. Well, even when you when you read this event, it just, uh, uh, yeah, I just, uh, whew, I remember those times. They were, they were great times. Uh, I, I miss those times. Yeah, uh, you sent me some videos and mm-hmm. just seeing, it was like uh, one of the ones you sent me was just us. We we're kind of, the vehicles are lined up. Guys are getting in and out of vehicles. We're kind of having a powwow about, the finite or the final details of an operation and you know that's what we were doing almost on a daily basis and you could see that everyone was in that mode everyone just knew what was going on everyone was confident we were so engaged in those missions all the time and what a little uh what a little like window into the past to see what it looked like because now you know I'm sitting there watching a video of it, <laughs> yeah. and you're like, man, that really happened. And that happened over and over and over again. Um, dude, the book is incredible. The book is, it, there's so much detail in it. And, you know, it's weird. But when you would tell me stories like this, about your past, we would kind of like laugh about them. And, and <laughs> yeah. You know what I mean? Like, it's just basic teen guy humor. It was humor. curiosity. Yeah. And it was kind of like, what? That's weird. That's that's funny. You know, I yeah. was like, how the hell did you end up in prison and stuff like this? <laughs> but, you know, we're all, because we're mission oriented, we're fo- focused. And that was just like a funny story to say, maybe to just to take us away take off the edge a little bit between missions and stuff and uh, and but you know I think uh, and I'm, I was the same way I didn't think much of it people were all, always telling me you need to write this in the book you need to write in the book and I was like oh well maybe yeah one day uh, but I think it is important uh, to read it I think today because our country I think needs unity I think we need to go back to basics and then look at America again, how great country it is, how great country we have. I want this book to be a prism, to be a lens that you can see even closer and better the virtues of America, how special country it is. And that's just, that was my goal that after reading this, knowing about the communism and socialism and other cruel political system, you will appreciate our country, our America more. And yeah, I'm, I'm kind of scared that it start looking slowly more like a mirror from the 
place of the place I escaped from. But again, we need unite. We our country will not move on for the better future if we are divided. So I hope it will help people understand the greatness and uniqueness of America. Yeah, the greatness and uniqueness, and also the threat. Uh, it's very sobering to read your story and hear your story. And again, I I had kind of almost like a cartoon image of what you had grown up, what, you know, where you'd grown up and what you'd been through. And even the last time you were on, on my podcast, I was listening to it again, and you're saying things like, oh, so I was in prison. And you're like, think about that. Think about that for a second. Oh, you know, we weren't sure if we would live or die. And, you know, for you and me as grown SEALs, like, okay, yeah, we were on deployment. We we but you were a young person and you weren't alone. There was thousands and thousands of people that were arrested, that there was people that were murdered, people that were killed, all these things happened. And there's a certain level of detachment from it when you when you and I as grown men are kind of sitting around and we're talking about something that's in your past. And I just never really, like I said, even when you were on the podcast last time, it didn't weigh as heavily on me as it did when I read it when I read it in this book, uh, it's it's very sobering. And the book makes it so real. And the fact that you were able to get out of there, the fact that you were able to get asylum, the fact that you were able to escape the Polish People's Republic, the Polish People's Republic, they just changed the name. They made a little change to the flag. And there was rats everywhere. Yes, yes. And you never, you never knew what is waiting for you behind the corner. And this is those the life in the that was the in typical socialist country. Because I would like to make a point here that none of these countries behind Iron Curtain, none of these, uh, uh, not Poland, not East Germany, Czechoslovakia, or Bulgaria, Romania not even Soviet Union were ever communist countries. We refer to them like this. Even I, even in my book, say the same thing. Uh, sometimes refer them to the communists. But the bottom line, the fact is that they were not communist countries, they were socialist states. They were socialist states run by communists, like my father, high-ranking communist and, and official in Polish government. So I know this a little bit from both sides, from behind, I, I had the chance to peek behind the curtain of the socialist state, how it works, mm-hmm. uh, a little bit more than, uh, than uh, most of the Poles had the chance to see. Well, <clears throat> I wanna go through some of the book here. It's, it, like I said, it's a heavy read you know, a lot of parts of it, you're, you're, well, we'll get into it. But I want to start at the beginning um, with, with, with where you started. And you say this, my life began in October 1960, 15 years after the end of World War II. So that's closer than you and I are right now from September 11th, right? Yes. So yes. World War II was fresh in the memories yes. when you grew up. Poland was still a place of desolation and despair. People were still trying to rebuild their lives after the Second World War, but this time under the terror and totalitarian state run by communists and Marxists like my father. Yes. That's where I spent the first five years of my life, or the first years of my life, amid the rusting ruins of the old bombed-out Poland and cheap scaffolding of the new. Yes, and it was nothing unusual for me. I thought that it was 
I thought this is the way the life is. I didn't know any better. I didn't know any different. And I remember playing in those ruined buildings, sometimes trying to destroy it too. I thought it was fun. You know, we didn't have any uh, body supervising us. We just cut loose and go. So we we were dirty so many times. I came like almost like like f- f- all painted in tar because we're playing with tar. Our hands we walk into the barrel, then our legs up above our knees, even all in tar. So my mom just had a heart attack every time she saw us coming up from these excursions. But I, I thought it was fun, you know. So we're always we're always dirty too, but my, had to, my mom had to clean us quite often. <laughs> uh, you say we were with me were my parents Stanislaw, is that what I'm Stanislav, right? yeah, Stanislav and Florentina. Yes, that's my mother. Uh, following my arrival, my brother Slavic. Yes, and my sister Justina. Yes, oh, I'm I had okay. two siblings. Thankfully. My pronunciation of Polish is no, it was good. It's, 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 it's good. Actually, really good. Uh, together, we lived in a standard multifamily home, a two-floor by-the-book communist build in a town called Zilona Gora. Yes, it's good. translating is a green hill. It's a beautiful town. You know, it's like it was. I think it was founded in like twelve hundred yeah. year. So it, it, it is. Uh, yeah, it's, it's it's very beautiful. Has a lot of trees. The only thing what was sticking out for me was the gray buildings of so uh, they call it like so socio architecture uh, socialist architecture that's what they call it in Poland. Everything is gray. Everything is the same. It looked like the project uh, uh, projects uh, project houses maybe in our country, but kind of much worse because again everything is decrepit and everything is being. I mean, you can see it on YouTube, some of the videos from the communist times in Poland. Even I'm watching sometimes, and I gasp. I was like, good God, I can't believe I lived through that. But, yeah, you know, it's a, I, I have this distance now, living in prosperity, living in a beautiful country as a free man. This it, is a little bit different now perspective than it was then. Yeah, so, you didn't know any better. Didn't you didn't know, know any better. different. We lived downstairs, which had two rooms for us and a third room for an unrelated single man. A single bathroom and one rudimentary kitchen we all shared on the first floor. Upstairs, there was a duplication of the downstairs floor plan with another unrelated family occupied. <laughs> which is crazy, right? You're just living with well, randos. Now it is crazy. It's like somebody <laughs> moved to your house. The government came and said, okay, this guy is going to live with you right now. Or this family we're going to put into that room. So that room is no longer yours. They're gonna leave. You're gonna be sure your bathroom and uh, and kitchen and everything that you have up there. So uh, for me, it was like what I was born to it, right? So it didn't bother me. Mm-hmm. But I went, my mother, she was crying about it. Say, this is not the way to live for 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 people. Um, and my father was, uh, of course, communist. He was afraid to say anything. He was even afraid to send us to church. That guy I still remember. My I was passed like a football through the window because he didn't let us go. Didn't know he won't kick us to go to church because he was afraid he's going to lose his job. The, the, the faith, the, the family values are totally incompatible with the socialism that was the, the democratic, so that's what they call it, democratic socialism in Poland at the time. So um, they always talk about democracy, about so how democratic socialism is great. 
And uh, like we, I didn't know any better until I started eventually growing up and learning more about what is really going on in a socialist, communi- socialist Poland. Mm-hmm. I call it communist because everybody says, everybody calls it, everywhere I read, it is being referred as a communist state. But again, like I say, like none of them were. They were there, there's a reason why uh, they were not so co- co- communist state. That uh, and I can we can we can dwell on a little bit more, but so uh, so uh, unlike in communist state run by a typical clean communism, uh, in socialist state you do have private property, you do have private business you can own, but majority the 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 uh, the, the, the the key infrastructure is owned by government is is ruled by government. Uh, same with the police and uh, and. Uh, Military, everything is run by the government, but you can have some small properties. Of course, you know how it ends up. If you if you are part of the government, go along with with them, they will let you exist and keep your little business. But if you sway uh, away a little bit, or you are not convenient for socialist state they will ruin you they will just take your business away or they will stop your the supplies or you you won't be able to make any to do any business mm-hmm. so they um they control everything right and this is what happened to my family you know people say well you there was communist system you guys didn't have a private property well we did have a private property but the government ultimately owned it and um, like in case of my uncle uh who Oh, he despised communists and and the whole he, state. He was the concrete guy, right? Yeah, the concrete guy. Yeah, he. So he decided. To, he seen how poorly the the, the 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 socialist system operates. So he decided to just compete with them. He knew that he, he was expert. So he started building those bricks and, and selling the bricks to to uh, to builders. Bricks, the uh, the cinder blocks, mm-hmm. and uh, to the point they that some of the private businesses stop doing stop buying from government because uh, basically he was competing directly from with the brick makers and the cedar block makers uh, run by the government go- government state by the socialist state so the the police came in and told him hey, you need to scale down because you are competing with with government here uh, and you need to stop he said i can't you see i just put the got the loan i bought the truck i bought this and and I'm barely making end with end, but just uh, I'm running. This is how I run my company, and uh, they uh, they say if you don't scale down, uh, the, your business will not prosper. And uh, he didn't. So the uh, uh, anti-fascists, that's what they call themselves in Poland, but they were socialist goons. They were just people who they try to protect the society from nazism and fascism and my uncle because he had his own business he was labeled fascist and nazi so they came and destroyed his machines they wrecked his business and then uh, when my father went to police complaint he knew who it was because they 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 usually the the, the communist state the socialist state use their uh, th- those naive young guys young people from schools from factories they organize them in like you know we need to be patriots we are very patriotic there is a fascist up there let's w- let's you know take care of that 
and uh, they, w- they went, they destroyed his business, and then when my uncle went complain about it, the police, they, they arrested him, they beat him up, they tortured him for a night, and sent him home and say, if you do it again, we'll do it again. So my uncle fixed that, fixed the machine, started doing the same thing again, and things repeated itself again. I think it was like three times until he finally didn't have any resources to rebuild it, and uh, they did, they ruined his business. But this is, this, this is nothing unusual, what I'm uh, describing here. It was quite common in Poland. If you didn't go along with the socialist state, with the ideology, with the party line, the, the communist party line, there was socialist state run by communists mostly, and uh, then they, they ruin your business, they destroy you. Or if they couldn't do that, they kill you. There, there, there's a lot of, there, there are graves across Poland, and not only Poland, all, all socialist states, uh, right now where uh, a lot of these people who oppose socialism in Poland uh, they were murdered and uh, that thing didn't happen just overnight what happened is uh, after second world war when socialism was brought on by Russian bayonets I shouldn't say Russian uh, Soviet Union bayonets we need to distinguish the Mm -hmm. Russian people and Soviet Union and communists. But so when it was brought to Poland, the not everybody who was not even, who was deemed possible not sympathetic, sympathizing with the socialism and communist party was, uh, uh, was under observation. I mean, it was like total totalitarian system suddenly thrown on Poland. And, and this is something that we need to be careful in America. We just need to make sure that doesn't happen here because it is very easy to, to, to fall into that thing. So people who came back from the West who were fighting the Adolf Hitler and, and the Hitler Socialist Germany, uh, National Socialist Germany, they, uh, they were arrested. Most of them were arrested. Even the heroes, even like Polish ace with most of the kills uh, in the uh, Second World War, uh, in, on Polish side, uh, his name is Stanislaw Skalski. He, uh, he returned to Poland after Second World War. He was arrested. He was sentenced to death on espionage charge. So most of those prominent heroes of Second World War were sentenced to death. Uh, not, uh, not every sentence was carried out. Uh, but at that time, many of them were sentenced to death and uh, on espionage charge or working for the West or uh, sabotaging something or just being not good citizen. And, uh, and, and eventually came to, to, to the point that if you steal a food, you could be sentenced to death. And there was death sentences carried out for people, uh, let's say, selling a food on black market or uh, uh, manipulating uh food in Poland yeah so even though there was a facade that you could have private property and you could run your own business the ultimately the the government had full control and they would impose their control and make people fall into line absolutely there was no such thing like you permanently own anything you may think you do until that you are proved wrong by communists and this is like my father said, you know, because uh, I had a, I went for a year to live with him because my mom couldn't afford to feed all three of us. So, so um, my father was very adamant about it. He said, "Look, 
the socialism is such a great system, for some reason people do not like to subscribe to it. So we need to make people aware how great the system is. If they still don't buy into it, we basically need to cancel them out of the society. We need to just silence them and uh, say, what if that doesn't work? Then we need to physically silence them. That's my father's words. And there was nothing unique at the time. That's, that's how my father perceived his role in society, building this better, uh, more humane socialist state that everybody gets equal part, everybody contributes uh, equally to it. And even that doesn't work, but they realize that it does not work. People don't want to vote for them. So the next thing came fraudulent elections. And next thing they came to uh, just canceling people. So there's a lot of authors, poets, uh, uh, painters, you know, the people who make statues, they were p totally removed. Uh, 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 actors, they were canceled, they were removed from, they were not allowed to play in, in the theaters, they were not allowed to play in the movies. And their names were silenced. Even famous people who were well known in Poland at the time, they were silenced to the, by, to, through censorship to the point that, like, the next people four or five years later, nobody knew their name. Nobody remember who they were. And they were very, again, at one time prominent and very uh, uh, famous people. So the, this is the, what, what we need to understand is that eventually people realize that this whole socialism is a hoax. It's just the tool to, for the government to control people and people revolt. So they don't vote. They don't vote for them. So now the, the socialists, they need to do something about it because if they give away the power, the, the people will eat them alive. They will hang them from the Latin posts. And we wanted to hang these communists from the Latin posts if you could get away with it uh, for the, all the, the perversion, depravity they thrown on Polish society. But, uh, but uh, eventually, you know, there's, they, they, this is what I have to resolve to the, the fraudulent election, to the terror. And the only thing saving grace, I think, for Poland and other countries is that Joseph Stalin and the Polish communists did not have access to computers on the scale we have now. They didn't understand uh, social science. So they resort to terror because that's what socialism eventually has to end up to keep people in line. They they missed one thing. If Joseph Stalin flowed, flowed Poland with people with no loyalty to Poland, so he, he would br if he would bring people from different republics, if he would bring people to Poland, other countries, uh, and flood the countries with people with no loyalty to these countries, there would be no Poland, there would be no Czechoslovakia, Romania, there would be one big Soviet Union. Yeah, I can't even imagine, like the like your and you. So, so you get into this. So, you, your your father, he's a card carrying communist. Uh, yes. with with uh, with Poland, with the Polish government, um, and he's working for the Polish government. Your mom, on the other hand, do, hates communism, hates Marxism, hates socialism. Uh, she, yeah. 
you, you, you say this. Uh, she saw the communist regime as nothing more than occupiers by a different ma- name, like the Nazis during World War II and the Germans during World War I. She was a devout Catholic, too, which didn't sit well with my father, who believed, per the party line, it was necessary for communists to be atheists. So, so you've got that going on in your family. Your father doesn't want to spend any money on you. You, you do say this. Uh, we couldn't afford to buy the state-required school uniforms, and our grandma, an accomplished seamstress, made them for us. Instead, the richer kids were quick to point out that our uniforms were not purchased and were homemade. Most of the kids at this time were wearing these homemade uniforms, and I decided to beat the rich kid who opened his mouth first about the uniforms. They left me alone and I never heard about my uniform again. That's what I started learning, that the violence works. And, and at least in Poland at the time, they wouldn't work today. Today, Poland is a different country, but mm-hmm. at the time, it worked, worked very well. But let me just odd here one thing. Uh, when you say my mother was um, totally opposing the socialism and, and socialist state, because she understood it. She, uh, she, she understood very well. She knows what happened in Soviet Union at the, uh, before the Second World War. But my, my father's mother, hate the socialism and communists too. And I talk about it. I remember the, f- the, f- the f- she was the one who taught me how to pray to God. And we always pray to God for you know, to be good to everybody, to us, to help us get through these hard times and to get the fucking communists out of the country as fast <laughs> as they can. So the, so, so it was like, my father didn't know until when he heard it, he freaked out. You, you got in here, this is, this is how you got to pray with your grandma for health, happiness, and liberation. Kneeling next to me, my grandmother would say things like, please send the communists back to where they came from and please take the red Satan away from Poland. And I would repeat word for word after her. After repeating words a few times, I had to ask, who are these people? They are evil. They kill people and keep people in prison. Real demons. Yeah, and I, for me, for a young kid, you know, uh, learning about the hell, about the demons, I thought that this case, or I had to actually ask her, ask my grandmother. So, grandma, they have those horns and tail, the pitchfork and stuff. She said, well, <laughs> say, not that you can see it, but those are that type of people, just what you describe. They just hide, but you can recognize them by their deeds, the, the, the atrocities they commit against other people. You see, like this is like my, my mother's family was very, on humanitarian side, humane. Uh, my father's family, the the parents, his parents, my grandparents, they were. My father was not. He was totally sold out. I can see why, but uh, uh, we can talk about it. But but he was like totally uh, sold out to the the private perversion of socialism. This I, I can imagine you got this one kind of argument. They would get they would get and fight your your father and grandmother, and he, you say here he'd demand that she never talk about communism and socialism. Don't talk to my son about that. That's you. Uh, we're building a socialist paradise for all of us. I am not evil. In response, my grandmother would become very still. She would rattle off the names of people she knew who had been imprisoned, disappeared, or murdered from memory. Dozens of them years after the fact. Yeah. Yep. Those names mean nothing to me at the time as a kid. I didn't understand a lot of that stuff. I was just too young to maybe to understand it. But I knew there was something wrong and uh, that my grandmother, my father's mother, was very adamant about it. And uh, she never uh, she never approved 
uh, what my father was doing until uh, until she died. So, um, yeah, that's that, that's kind of sad. This is how socialism tears the families uh, and friends and and, the, and the, the fabric of society very quickly. Which is one of their goals. This, uh, the goals one they have goals. to they have to because this is for them to to stay at power. It is uh, nobody will vote for them. But if you can turn one citizen against another citizen, it's much easier. You cater to one, you cater to another one, and you cater actually to both. And both were hoping that, yeah, you'll be with them against the other people, and the other side thinks the same, the same. And this is how you end up eventually with, uh, with, uh, w- with being the broker uh, b- between these. Uh, Group, two groups that dislike each other or they, they work against each other. So the, the socialists, the communists, will place themselves in the middle and being those ones brokering the peace. And, and this is how they... they it, it, and even that didn't work them to get elected. So they had to result to fraudulent elections. And, and, and then once they borrow themselves in society, once they establish the pattern of fraudulent elections, you can get them out. Mm-hmm. Basically, it took Poland five decades to clean that these parasites out of Poland and be free. And you can see how Poland immediately, after just got, got rid of that socialism, how Poland flourished. Mm-hmm. I mean, look at the Putin, you know? This guy is, we tend to call this guy an idiot, a stupid, He's not a good guy, but his guy is extremely smart. This guy, we can, I wouldn't call idiot somebody who rebuilt broken empire, put it back together, and is threatening entire West again. So the, the, uh, uh, we just need to be careful and don't dismiss the threat from people because we don't like them. Um, we might not like Putin, but he's extremely smart and well-versed, and he did a lot to bring Russia back into the picture and start threatening everybody. When you talk about growing up um, in this system, in the book you say this, the state infiltrated every aspect of our lives. Learning the Russian language, for example, became mandatory when I entered fifth grade. Even at that young age, I was, I was precocious. I openly questioned why we had to learn Russian when there were people who didn't even know Polish fully. After all, the Russians were occupiers. That didn't go over well in my school. My mother was no longer teaching in the same school as me and I was unable and was unable to provide me the usual first line of punishment. So my teacher immediately pulled me out of class and marched me straight to the principal's office. Once I was standing in front of him, he called the police. Yeah. On their way to school, the police grabbed my mom out of her school across town and sat us all down for a talk. In addition to the uniformed police officers, a member of the state security police in plain clothes joined the police during the questioning of my mother. If this happens again, if we hear anti-communist and anti-Polish sentiments expressed again, they said, he's going to an orphanage and you'll be facing prison time for failing to teach your children the right way to think. That's correct. That's what happened when, uh, and it was not even political from my side at the time. I was just a kid. and You're you know, just a kid going, I don't want to freaking learn this yeah, other language. Yeah, you know, I have enough problems with Polish language, so what the <laughs> hell do I do learn something else that I will never use? And, and, and my mother always tells me that it's just a language which uh, is used by our the occupiers of, Pol- occupiers of Pol- Pol- Poland. So it was not that political at the time. I was just being a kid and saying, so yeah, 
Fuck it. I, I don't want to learn that. <laughs> but this is how it ended up. Yeah. But also, if you think about it a little bit more, this is the, the, the rules and regulation and laws that were in Poland in, in effect allow the state uh, uh, the, the state to take the kids away for such reasons that you would never think. My mother would not never think that there are such regulations that would allow us to be placed in state government, state orphanage, because we don't like, because we are being taught not to like socialism or just taught, uh, you know, that we do not like socialism. And, and the speed at which the government gets involved in that process, oh, oh, from, that, from yeah. classroom to principal to state police and uniformed officers talking to you and your mother, you know, same day. That, oh, same day. That was like 40 minutes, an, an hour. God, so uh, the, the teacher took me out. The teacher was, she had a Russian name, I think. She was a, one of those Polish Russians. And, um, and yeah, so that took me to the principal's office. They sat me down there. They called police. And I didn't know that at the, the time, that's the world police is coming. They're going to arrest me. No, they came with my mother because they go, they arrested my mother, detained her, pull her out, bring her to the school and the office, and they threaten us. I remember my mom was shaking, and uh, I was scared too because I see my mom being so scared. Yeah, and, and that's, how they, that's how they slowly get control and break people. Because what is your mother? She's like, okay, listen, do I want to lose my son and go to jail? Or am I just going to yeah. tell him, hey, be quiet and comply? So... A lot of people are like, "Hey, I don't, I don't have time for this kind of trouble. I don't want this kind of trouble. I don't want to lose my kid. And I don't want to go to yeah, jail." Yeah, there's a lot of people like this. Like, we don't need that. Just go, go, go and say this. Go along with it. Go along with it. But that creates two different problems. Then, once it teaches kids to be disgenuine, it teaches kids to lie and cover it up, and also teaches them that. You don't stand up for your rights, for, for, for what is right. You just do what is safe. Mm-hmm. And I remember, you know, many times going to school and my mother always, to me and my siblings, say, do not talk politics at school. Do not say, do not get provoked. Don't, don't say anything that could be taken the wrong way because we may lose our family. They might separate us. And the state, it was, it did happen. I mean, that's that I got away, but there's some people who didn't, and uh, some people f- because of something like this, they lose kids, and they if they didn't straight themselves up, they eventually, some of them disappeared, and like the kids stay in orphanage forever until they grew up, never seeing parents again. So this is the socialist state, is the control, the amount of control that government has is so pervasive that even maybe like my father, maybe he was he was an evil man. He just totally believed in the socialist system and to implement if, at any price. But even so, so, so this is just so pervasive. It, it, devi- it creates people, it basically allow them to justify almost any action uh, anything again to protect their ideology and you know we've seen this also in adolf hitler's socialist germany uh, national socialist germany where uh, you know if you were just speaking up or you were inconvenient for the so the the hitler's uh, national uh, 
what do you call it? NSDAP, the, the, the Socialist German uh, Workers' Party. Uh, if, if you were not convenient for them, you could end up in concentration camp. And that eventually, uh, whether there was Adolf Hitler, Socialist, uh, National Socialist Germany, or Poland, Polish Socialist, they both end up, uh, or Socialist Poland, they, they both end up having concentration camps. And the concentration camps, actually, there's not the German invention, by the way, but this is a, the, it's another socialist state invasion, the Soviet Union. As a, a Soviet Union, there's the Union of Socialist Republic, right? Not Communist Republic. They had the Communist Party, the Communist Party ran that show, just like in Poland. But also for the facade, they had many other political parties in Poland too, maybe two, three or four other parties. I don't remember their name because they mean so nothing. They're like nobody even care about them. But they always say, hey, you know, this coalition, we work together to, to build a better socialism, to build better uh, Poland. And, you know, on the graves of opponents of socialism. You also see, like, for instance, in America right now, the, the educational system, there's parents that are they're saying, hey, teach my kid how to do reading, writing, and arithmetic. Teach them. That's what. That's what. That's what you should do. Is teach my kid, right. and they're teaching them all the whole slew of other things. Okay. Oh yeah. That yeah. parents. That parents say, "Hey, actually, I don't. I don't really want you to teach my my kid that when they're in third grade, when they're in second grade, when they're in fourth grade." And what I've heard some of the educators saying is, "Well, you don't get. To, you know, you don't get to tell us how we're going. What we're going to teach your kids." That's exactly my mother was told. Yeah, that's what I'm in saying. In a socialist state. Like you, 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 hey, no, uh, Mrs. Zoran, you can't tell us what we're going to teach Thomas. Thomas is our kid now. So in Poland, if you do that, if you still insist, they will brand you terrorist. You, you are actually literally branded terrorist. So the kids cannot grow up in a terrorist family. And uh, they didn't tell you that you, because you oppose social, because you oppose socialism, we take your kids. We say you are you 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 pretty much your views are aligned with the terrorist totalitarian something, and your kids do not belong to you. Which we cannot allow your kids to grow up uh, this way. So we, as a government, the socialist government, will step in. It will provide the education that we need. It's what's best. It's what's the best yeah. for the socialist right. state. What, what they think is best. Right. What they think is best, it's yes. for the best. <laughs> but you know, the first thing that, that what people need to remember in, in those socialist states, attacks on families or families' values. That was like, you, you don't need a wife and a husband. Why would you do that? Uh, all it is, we need to, what needs to happen is kids need to be learning how to be good citizens. And of course, by that, they meant socialist citizens of socialist state. And the kids- What they mean is obedient slaves. Obedient slaves, yes. And those kids from those families that oppose, they never had the chance to go to college. That was just that their, their end of education was uh, at the at the high school level the most, and because to get in college at the time to Poland it was free, but only for the uh, politically aligned kids. So um, and also if you did during the college if you deviate any, uh, you could be removed very quickly if you deviate any from the socialist party line. So uh, they have a special points for uh, being member of socialist youth, of socialist death, communist death. There were points for parents being in the party. There were points for having uh, uh, a family 
aligned with the social the, the communist party in socialist state socialist poland so these are the warning signs this is something that we were uh, you know f- uh, I, i'm 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 seeing some of these uh, something many things that you just mentioned and it really worries me we need to be very vigilant because it is very easy to fall into the totalitarian uh, uh, government that eventually will tell you what you can what you cannot do with with yourself with the kids then you will be eventually forced to do things take medications don't take medications or you will not allow be t- allowed to take medications though because supposedly it's not enough just like happened with i described in the book friend of mine when his mom died um basically they 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 they, they decided not to provide her with medicine not to treat her because she was older they need there was very scarce medicine and they needed for younger people supposedly i believe more for like party line people mm-hmm. so that's that's how evil system is it's not easy it's not very difficult to implement all it is all is needed just uh people in different people who are not who are afraid to stand up for what is right who are terrorized easily by the state and um i think there's a good example for us could be some of these people i describe in poland at the end of my book how they were schooling uh, uh socialists and communist judges and how they uh, uh uh how they stood up to uh to the totalitarian government and again what what is happening here kind of a little bit worries me but we need to be very careful because the first thing that that socialist state will want is violence violence either way they they, they, they need violence well there's many things they, they need a villain but every socialist state will have villain mm. poland had a villain soviet union had a villain germans had a villain so everybody like in the soviet union there was there were kulaks mm-hmm. first the wealthy peasants then there was doctors stalin died in during the purge that purge and uh, and so didn't follow through quite well but uh, in poland there were jews then there were educated people so there were intelligentsia what they call it so intelligentsia is bad we need to promote people from these peasants from workers if you are if you are coming from intelligence intelligentsia family your use were you were scrutinized very well in germany there was of course jewish nation but this is all by the so-called uh, like my mother call it relative morality so your morality is not based in faith in something solid your morality is based in ideology that can change in politicians view that we know changes and this is very dangerous because look what happened in uh, Adolf Hitler's socialist Germany what they, when he was able to pervert the most civilized nation in Europe at the time into euthanasia of sick people on handicapped people into concentration camp into gassing people eventually they turn them onto uh, the the Jewish people the exterminating entire nation trying to do it so that relative morality is very dangerous we need to also make sure that we that we understand it here not to fall into that relative morality model and another thing too Uh, like in Poland they were always saying you need to be tolerant you need to be tolerant oh this is intolerant you can't do that this is intolerant 
But I say to it, like my mother always say, uneducated tolerance is as dangerous as intolerance. You need to educate yourself what you're about to tolerate before you start actually promoting it in, 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 uh, and tolerating. And you know, like we would never tolerate murders, right? Mm-hmm. But if you subscribe to this mor- relative morality in Adolf Hitler, they did tolerate euthanasia, yeah. right? So mm-hmm. you need to be careful. Um, fast forward a little bit in the book. Your your father takes a job in 1967. You're seven years old, and he he basically um, abandoned you guys. Took off, yeah. <laughs> um, you know, it could be a, a number of things that he was ha- having a little success in the Communist Party. Your mom is still being Catholic, being yes. religious. So he felt like there's some some things going on that was, wasn't going to help his career. Uh, you say we moved we moved to a little apartment across town, almost six miles from where we'd been living before at that age in that place. Uh, that was a huge distance, especially because he had to walk or take the bus everywhere. Our beds were narrow and mattresses were thin, much like the walls. To be able to sleep on cold nights, we shoved our beds together and slept head to feet and side by side. To say Polish winters are very cold would be putting it mildly. It was bad enough that we had to stuff our coats with old newspapers to keep warm. The fact that we couldn't afford to replace them with coats that could actually keep us warm was worse. It turned out that my father was refusing to pay child support, so while we were trying to hide our crinkling coats from other kids, he was buying a new life for himself. The court eventually forced him to start paying, which he did. He was always late. Yes. Uh, you know, I was talking about those beds. Actually, we didn't have two beds. We had just one bed, and like it was like single bed. But you know, we were small, me and my brother. So me and my brother slept in one bed, had the toes to, you know, head to toe, mm-hmm. and, uh, and my sister slept with my mom. But yeah, we didn't have two beds. I kind of like, I think mis- misquoted mm-hmm. there that uh, the two, there was just one bed that me and my brother slept in. Eventually, you know, like uh, my mom was able to procure another bed. Mm-hmm. So we, you know, we, we lived in a two room uh, apartment uh, at the time. So was uh, here we had, here two room, you, you mean two bedrooms. Uh, there was not like that in Poland. In Poland, it was just two rooms with two rooms. So, <laughs> <laughs> so, so me and my brother were sleeping in one room, and my mom uh, with my sister was sleeping in another room. They were little tiny rooms. But, you know, there was such a big, uh, for us, it was like a, we have our own apartment because there were a lot of people that did not have even that. There were people living uh, with parents and grandparents in one, in the studio, mm-hmm. bigger studio, just so you, and it didn't even have a bathroom. You have to go outside to the common bathroom. So this is, you know, there was the desolation after the Second World War and also the socialism uh, economy that ruined Poland even deeper and, uh, and, uh, and put people into slavery. You say on top of, this, on top of all this, we we're often hungry. That loaf of bread my mother got, if she was early and lucky enough, you couldn't buy more than one loaf at a time. People could get violent if you tried. This meant we were forced to learn ways to be less hungry. Soon yes. my brother my brother learned how to make French fries from potatoes. I learned how well, to tasty. It was really good, yeah. <laughs> I learned to spot the school children of wealthy Communist Party members yeah. by their sandwiches. Yep. These yeah. were some good-looking sandwiches, too. While my siblings were eating thin sandwiches with butter or margarine, if there was no butter, only, sp- 
often only sprinkled with sugar. These rich kids were eating theirs with fresh meat yeah. and all the best fixings, <laughs> dressing <laughs> smeared across their smug faces. There were two ways to get your hands on things in those circumstances. Money and violence. Since we were poor, I used violence. Well, this is yeah. where I learned that violence works. If it did, if violence didn't work for you, it meant you didn't apply enough of it. I'll be the first to admit I was a bit of a bully as a kid. Yeah, yeah. You know, this is something that you just have to help yourself as much as you can. And at that time, um, I was. I envy these younger uh, these kids. For having this like a nice tasty sandwich, you know, like when I look at it, I, I salivate, and uh, so I figure out that I would just I would just like to try this sandwich like that. You know, we never had one, so I just woke up, I just grabbed the sandwich from the guy, I, ba- I bite it, I bit it, and I was hooked. I was like, <laughs> okay, so this is what's going to happen next. You tomorrow you will bring two sandwiches, and if you don't, you won't eat. Because I'm going to eat your sandwich. So one sandwich is for me, one is for you. For parents, you can just tell them that you are growing up. Because our parents in Poland, everybody, I think every kid knew, hey, you are growing up, so you need to eat more. You know, you need to eat more. Like, I, maybe because our food was very bland. We didn't have like very tasty food. So I didn't want to eat. I didn't eat a lot. So my mom always had to like, you need to eat because you're growing up. So I, t- I advised this kid, hey, you know, just tell them that you're growing, you need more eat. And from what I find out, his parents were very happy, say, yeah, our kid is eating well. You know, he's having two sandwiches now every break. But they didn't know that he was eating just one. I, I will, and another was shared with me. So uh, it was helpful. It's funny that the, uh, or it's not funny, but you know, you hear people that lean towards socialism. Oh, say they, they're, they're so anti-rich. You know, they, they think all oh, the rich people have all the money. And here you are talking about it was the communist kids, the kids that were had the communist party connections. Right. That parents, those were the rich kids because they yep. just took everything from everybody else. That's Ex- what happens. Oh, in this, it, 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 this is how it works. Yeah. I mean, remember the socialist economy is very inefficient; it just does not work. And uh, and so people are people. Whether you are communist, no matter how. Uh, uh, how well-meaning communist you are, you're gonna help yourself, you know, you can't help these, so you're gonna help yourself here, and you're gonna go bring the, uh, 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 so people can eat, but at least you can eat. Mm-hmm. And this is how people start starving, and uh, that, it just does not work. <sighs> um, fast forward a little bit. Again, I'm fast forwarding through the book. There's so many good stories and insightful. You wanna know what it was like, get the book. So you have something to, so you can understand what what communism does to to a people and to a country. Uh, fast forward a little bit, you say by the time I, I was entering eighth grade, my mom couldn't afford to support me. By then, almost thirteen years old, plus two other children, so she did the only thing she could do and sent me to live with my father. Yeah, um, she didn't have much choice. I mean, there was mm-hmm. we're growing, the food was. Uh, expensive and uh, we have we are living in this little tiny apartment with uh, two rooms so basically one bedroom apartment um, so she had to do something and uh, she just she sent me to live with the father mm-hmm. and that's kind of a funny story because um, he showed up he picked me up he didn't like it already but he didn't even told his wife the, 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 cure, the wife that he had uh, that he's coming with me so basically, I show up on the doorstep. He just told her, "Well, he's going to leave with us." And I remember her screeching, "What? Mm. 
no way. I was like, I just wanted to punch that nut. That <laughs> Bitch. And that's that's crazy to hear when you're only 13 years old. Yeah, yeah, know, yeah. We don't you know. want you. But there, I just remember that my mom, she knows that we need it, that that needs to happen. So I kind of like swallow my pride, just look at her and just say nothing and walk past her. What, what, so. was, your, was your dad's living arrangement better? Did they have like a nicer apartment and stuff? Yeah, because they have actually three rooms. So here there, there was one room, the bigger room, and two smaller bedrooms. So, uh, so when I walk into that family, his family, uh, she had a son already from previous marriage. And uh, so they kind of uh, let me have one of the rooms and they both stay in the big room. Because there was in Poland, there was not a division between bedrooms. There was no bedrooms, there were rooms. So we had one room, you have one room, and we, uh, my father and his wife had a, a, another room. Mm-hmm. And uh, I thought this like, great, that would be awesome. The only thing that, you know, what would happen there was not quite awesome. <laughs> now, this is, where you st- this is where you started learning to fight for the first time. Yeah, the well, the, I I already went there. there uh, I started fighting right before I went to my father. So I joined the police uh, boxing club. That was my boxing was my first thing, and I was really good at it. Actually, the, I was so good. And uh, also, what what kind of motivated me is because like I didn't have a father. So the 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 the, the coach at one time when I I describe I beat up one of the kids who beat up my younger brother, and I broke my hand. But he came to visit me and. Uh, and kind of like sit down, you know, talk to my mother, talk to me. And I was like, holy shit, I, can, I must not disappoint this man. I must just do the best I can. So I would start beating, start beating people up with the gloves up there because I wanted to appease him, you know? And he really said like, do you, that, how good I was. So when I went to Warsaw, I was already pretty good. You know, I, I had a good punch. I, not quite few people out like that guy who beat my brother up and that's actually a funny story you know because I was always um, I was not very strong at the, at the beginning I was just bully because I thought that, that my mother is a teacher so who is going to challenge me so uh, I, I never had the hesit- never hesitate to punch somebody or beat somebody up <laughs> and of course it didn't work that way always but but I, just from the very beginning, I remember like when I was being bullied when I was a kid. So there's not like I could come to my mom, say, Mom, can you go beat him up or something? There was like, I didn't have an older brother, so I had to figure something out. So I found like a big steel pipe. I put it in my bookcase when I was going to school, from school, because kids used to follow me and just kick my ass sometimes, like in the, around the block, or just push me in the, into the, 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 the entrance of the apartment and beat me up up there. So later, the word starts spreading that those kids who follow me in my apartment somehow don't show up. The ambulance shows up, takes them out, because <laughs> it was me with my pipe. And it worked, you know? It was like, again, violence works. You just need to apply enough of it. So, so, so that, that, that's where I started it. <laughs> so I was already fighting by this time, and then, so from the pipe, I move on to boxing, uh, gloves, and, uh, and then there was become kind of like well-known, because I beat quite a few guys, and I didn't have to wear the pipe. I don't know, I tell you what, some of these pipes, uh, guys who I piped, it's like, <laughs> I, I really don't know, because they didn't, they didn't move when I left. <laughs> And this is where the word spread out. That, you know, when they follow me in the 
in the into the apartment, they don't come out. <laughs> so kind of they left me alone. <laughs> they got piped. <laughs> <laughs> I, I know how to say it right away, but you know what I mean. I definitely. Just piped yeah, definitely. They got piped. Uh, so when you're when you're uh, in and around Warsaw, you start. You know, you're kind of just like doing some sort of. Uh, Almost like extortion, hanging out with guys, getting money, yeah. making things happen. Well, because I had no fear of, of of kids, especially after the boxing thing. I was just like looking for the challenge. And I remember, um, I, I think I started off wrong food because I was always trying to be like, my mom taught me, well, I beat up the girl in the first grade and I kicked her so strong and we were just starting first grade. <laughs> and they just like told me, oh, Drago, this girl is your girlfriend. And uh, I was like, I don't need no stinking girlfriend. I woke up and I kick her. She just fall. They carry her to the uh, emergency, to the school, to the nurse's room. And I was just proud. I was like, yeah, yeah. You know, and this is like, like how old are you? Like seven. six, seven. Six, six, like six going seven. <laughs> so they told you you had a girlfriend and you went and kicked yeah, her. Yeah, yeah, I kicked her. Said, I don't need no stinking girlfriend. I have no girlfriends. I don't need that. And that was happened that my mom worked at the same school at the same time. That's why I was like, a, I was a bully. I was like, my shit don't stink. But uh, so I'm sitting in the center. My mom rolls in the class, got quiet. I'm just like looking. I like, that doesn't doesn't seem good. <laughs> she walks to me. She looks around the class. She looks at me say, who did you hurt? And I just like think you what to say, but the entire class like, that guy, him, that, I mean, that, that girl right there, that girl. So my mother looked at, the, at this girl and she's still crying there. So she was all bruised between her legs, apparently. She pulled me out by my ear. That's like very common in Poland. Teachers used to do it, just probably by the ear and pull you out of the bench. She pulled me by my ear. She stand me in front of the class. She pulled my pants down and just started spanking me. And started spanking me so hard and so long until I broke down and started crying. And say, don't ever, you know, you want to fight, fight the guys, fight people like you. Don't ever touch a girl. And uh, so that was it. I mean, the, the embarrassment, you know, my pants down, my butt red from the, and, and the sound, you know, being spun in front of the whole class. Uh, and, and, and that was not enough, too, because when I came home, I, that thing repeated itself. But I never touched the girl after that. That was like, that was ingrained in my, in my head. Do not. You cannot do that, and uh, that was just the, the, uh, uh, yeah, that was that was so embarrassing, and uh, was, I think I learned the lesson forever from that. <laughs> but anyway, so I went to Warsaw too, and I, so I was like trying to be a very nice guy, and so there was some of one of the guys I didn't know the, the dynamics, work, the, the gangs working as, at, at Warsaw at the time. So one of them was just harassing one of the girls. So I went up, knock him out. Turned out to be he was one of the those 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 guys, those gang, little gangs. So they they came to me and said, "Look, you're gonna this is what's gonna happen. We're gonna buy us the wine." Gonna go extort the wine from these guys, but uh, and then it will beat you up. Everybody from this gang is going to hit you, and then you know, we'll leave you along. I say, I'm fine with the wine, but if you're gonna hit me, I'll hit you back, I'll knock you out. And uh, so they kind of let me along, but eventually, I, like, they were doing the same thing I did. I mean, their mentality was the same. So I say, like, okay, so um, I bring you the wine, and uh, but you know, if, 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 if you try to hit me, I'll beat you up. And really bad, so they 
they didn't. We just drink the wine and say, hey, let's go extort. The, the, this time not the sandwiches. Let's go extort the wine <laughs> from these and these guys. So we're just targeting guys and say, hey, you bring the wine. No, well, they will punch the guy a few times. Then he brings the wine. We punch him again and then just leave him alone. <laughs> but they, they, what, what they told these guys, these poor victims, that... You know, you can be abused, and uh, like if you want more wine, we just call the same guy who just beat up, who brought us the wine, say, more wine. And <laughs> so he was bringing the wine to us. And I was like, what, 14, 15 years old, so we were already drinking, and I was smoking, and um, I was bad. I mean, kind of uh, not good person, I would say, that's what I mean. I was not good person at the time. <laughs> Yeah, that's uh, you're you're definitely heading down the wrong path again. This is you you, you go into these kind of details in the book. Um, really, it, it's 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 fascinating to read. Um, I'm gonna fast forward a little bit here, just to touch base again on the on on what you're dealing with with the communist situation. You say when the government executed citizens. They were called bandits and insurrectionists and enemies of the state, people who were trying to upend the successful socialist system. Societal values had changed, and the thinking became that these people should be isolated from society, in some cases executed for opposing socialism and the official Communist Party line. Show trials were publicly prosecuted. A lot of charges against said insurrectionists were completely made up. Evidence was made up and there was no opportunity to challenge the charges. People were harassed by state security, police, and publicly humiliated. They were isolated from friends and business. The communist regime was relentless in pursuit of dissidents. They did not need to have any evidence. They would manufacture evidence. They were, there were countless victims. To this day, no one knows how many Poles continue to find secret graves. Oh, sorry. To this day, no one knows how many, and Poles continue to find secret graves of opponents of socialism and communism in prison courtyards, forests, and other obscure places. To this day, Poles are searching for the graves of their World War II heroes who disappeared or were outright murdered by the communists upon their return from the war. Yes, that's something that I mentioned uh, at the beginning here when we start talking about it. This is how a socialist state uh, persecuted the opponents or the people who they perceive could be opponents. It could be something that you just you just came back from the West and you witnessed too much. You witnessed how prosperous the West is. Right. That was enough to put you on the list. And then if you are still speaking out and talking about it, you could disappear. Uh, I think one of the last graves that they that was discovered in Poland was what, maybe like, I think a year ago, I believe, when they found, and this is not all, they're still looking for it. There are still so many citizens missing from socialist times. And they never thought they would be ever found at that time because there was no, there were no computers. There were not, the science was not there to help find these people. They are finding them now and they are still looking for many of them. But this is the socialism. You say earlier too about these fake charges and the spies. Yes, they were all were branded. None of these people were sitting there because for political reasons, according to socialist state. Mm -hmm. There will be disgrace for socialist state to keep political prisoners. So they were all criminals. They were the, I was criminal. I was never like political prisoner. You're not political prisoners. You broke the law. And what was the law? Well, you can't print, uh, uh, you, you can't have a free speech, basically. 
they wouldn't say free speech. Yeah, they would say, they would say you violated yeah. the, the tax code or exactly. you violated the printing law that we had for yes. the government uh, distribution or right. whatever. So there was always some law, mm-hmm. law to, to, to put you in prison or, 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 or enslave you. And this is something that uh, it stays with me today when I see sometimes, uh, well, I don't want to go there, but this is something that we need to be very careful because it's very easy to brand people spies, brand people um, uh, criminals, and then prosecute them. And they will not even have a, a support in society if you are uh, if you are able to brand them as criminals. Just that they were that the, the, their crime was exercising free speech, where there was no free speech in Poland at the time, but trying to speak your mind, people didn't know about it. That was not being told why the person was executed or why the person was in prison. They were told they were spies. They were told that they violate the law. They violate this, violate that. And uh, they are not political prisoners. There is n- there was, uh, they were very adamant. The socialist regime was very adamant that there are no political prisoners in socialist state. They all are criminals. I was criminal. <sighs> That's disturbing. <clears throat> um, fast forward a little bit after my father kicked me out and back to my mom I thought I would be done with the upheavals for a while upheavals being getting transferred back and forth the back and forth had began upsetting and had been upsetting and stressful and I was excited to go back with my friends and classmates in 1975 but I was also drinking and smoking and I decided to take up karate after getting a taste of boxing in Warsaw I was in a lot of trouble for with my mom to say the least um so then you, so then you start training in karate as yes, well. Yes, there was something I was so fascinated about. The, 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 there was the first ever in Zielona Góra, in the city of Zielona Góra, karate Kyokushinkai section mm-hmm. uh, w- w- was created. So I said I need to join it. I just was too young for it. So I was really good with my pencil and pen. Mm-hmm. So I just fake my ID. I just <laughs> take my ID. I change my <laughs> date of birth, and I sign up. And uh, there was a karate Kyokushinkai. Kyokushin. Yeah, and Kyushikin is. Sa- savage karate. It's it's brutal. Uh, kind of, yeah. You have kind of like I tell you that uh, at least at, at the beginning. Every time I was going to uh, to, to training session, I was I was a little bit nervous. I was <laughs> I was like on my toes because I know I, I will be hurt, and you know that's just like uh, we were hurt, you know. But even just the methods that they train us, you know, you have to stand up, you know, take the, you take the sanction dachi position and they kick you in the stomach so hard that you just fly. Make some, some of us make it like I was a very light guy. So actually I end up usually making somersault and falling on my face and my knees because from the kicks or, you know, lay on the floor and the instructors, they run on your stomachs and stuff. But after a while I got used to it, you know, it's like, I'm tough, you know, I'm not going to give up on this. And we're learning and we're actually becoming very effective. I was supplementing my boxing skills with the, now with the kicks and some sweeps. So I was like uh, uh, unbeatable on the street and I liked it. You, uh, you're, you, from everything when I would watch you fight, you have a very, and it might've seemed natural. It might've, when I watched you, it like seemed natural because you've been doing it for a long time, but you you clearly have a natural gift for fighting. Like, when I would watch you throw punches, when I watch <laughs> you throw kicks, when I would see you hit people or kick people, I'd be like, oh, 
you look like a really good fighter and you are a really good fighter but just the the fact that you were doing this at a time when really a lot of people weren't doing this and going out and I know you you spent a lot of time in the streets fighting yes. and I have no doubt that you were unbeatable in the streets the, at that time yeah there was the no chance, especially with these techniques that people didn't know at the time because oh, it was yeah. not popular in Poland yeah yeah it, that was savage it, were you how big were you back then I was fight, when I was fighting in the, for the championship of Poland. Uh, it was in Taekwondo. I was fighting in 169 pounds. I was light, mm -hmm. but you know I was beating big people because, like you know, small guys they they usually don't pick the fight. Usually the big ones. There was the one that said, "I'm going to kick your ass," and especially you small. So the, the the most of the people that I fought at the time they were bigger, but they were also easier to. You know, they were easy to topple. Like they were like wobbly, more wobbly, and uh, I was able to just kick their ass. <laughs> and I was I was beat up too. I mean, I was not always I won every fight, but eventually we end up like a challenge. How many fights you can go without losing one? And I think I went to like a, I think like almost close to hundred, and uh, but it was like a street fight. So, mm -hmm. so the, the there's also too that we are picking up those fights. We're not like at that time when I, the, the the part that we like became that kind of competition, there was the, we were just picking up the fight. It was not like people were looking, trying to fight us, uh, but they would use it as a training. They, they we pick up these fights, not for, there was no cameras at the time. Mm -hmm. So we used like a, we, we, we go and uh, four or five of us from the club. That was when I was doing Taekwondo when I came to a different city, switched from Kyoku Karate Kyokushin to Taekwondo. So we're going in groups and so we're like, okay, so, we we knew where to find people to beat up, like you know, just drinking beer somewhere or you know, places were like rough, mm -hmm. uh, and rough places in Poland were like rough, rough here, even extra rough. So we go up there and we just pick the guy, and then you know we beat the guy up, and then we get together, have a drink, and talk about it because we didn't have a cameras like today you can video it and you can say okay critique mm -hmm. so we critique each other so you're like, doing a debrief yeah debrief yes and so like your kick was kind of good but you skip the guy on the shoulder you didn't hit him in the head you actually kick him uh like there was no effective so the, the, this debriefing then and then we're going reenacting it too so uh, so creating how we were the, the fights and we become really good at it. Mm -hmm. So we became so good to the point that eventually we stopped beating single people up. We were looking for more at one time. So uh, it was like, I remember, and the, the, the news spread around the city too. There's people like, well, this is like, be careful about these guys. If they walk around, just walk away. And it happened that people could recognize us because we beat up a lot of people. But there were some people who didn't, especially if there were two or three of them. So we just woke up to the guy who just grabbed the beer off his hands, spit it and give it back to him. You know it's going to be fine, right? <laughs> especially if he had two, three people around. So he was there. But even that, you know, like eventually we, we ran out of these people too. So if we found somebody like this, we sometimes... The, the rule was who spots the group who wants to beat beat up, then he's the first one to do it. But like when we start running out of people, we, we had to draw the, draw the uh, lots, <laughs> straws, yeah. Who is going to be, beat these people up? And this is how we train. And uh, we find that it was very effective, which, which uh, you know, a lot of the techniques that later I, uh, I kind of master, and uh, help us to also fight in the in the in the dojo in the gym because 
seems like it was less stress up there. It was like everything by the rule. You know, there's not like you're going to fight somebody, they're going to stab you. But on the street, you had to be careful about it. So, Yeah, and in, in the book, you go into some details. You, you guys were training like two, three hours a day. Yes, you were working out. Yeah, you're yeah, you're yeah. doing everything right to, to be ready to f- scrap in the streets. Uh, meanwhile, you say this, as I grew older, my understanding of what it meant to live in communist state grew with me. I started listening to Voice of America, the BBC, oh, yeah. and Radio Free yeah. Europe years before without anyone knowing I began tuning in shortly after my run-in with the state security police after I'd questioned my teacher about being forced to learn Russian I had been told about these radio channels by my mother's brother and this is where you tell the story about your uncle yes my uncle Adam and he's the one that you know showed you how to listen to these banned radio stations so this is where you start seeing sort of the outside perspective of what's going on in the rest of the world and what's yes. actually happening to you all in Poland. Yes, and again, I didn't have a father at the time, so I was looking up to my uncle, and he was a big guy. He was he liked to beat people up too, so like Saul was always idolizing him. And, uh, and he was like, you wouldn't want to mess with him. But he told me about it, because you know I, we knew the story, him being beat up by the police, being kidnapped from the street by the police. So I, he, he told me how to listen to it, because he said what you hear, is is full of propaganda. It is indoctrination. It is censored. You don't hear the truth. You don't hear everything. You need to listen to outside. And thanks God for Voice of America. You know, that's like you could go to prison uh, at that time to, for listening to it. BBC, uh, Radio Free Europe. And you know what is actually fun? I just need to de- de- digress, digress a little bit on that. When I came to America eventually, when I li- moved to uh, to where I live now, uh, where I live, uh, there is a radio free uh, free Europe radio station there. It doesn't, it's, it's not active anymore. But this is where those transmissions I was listening to uh, was from. And I was able to actually visit that radio station it's almost like a museum. Where 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 was the radio station located? Uh, in Mason, Ohio. Oh, really? Uh, so I was able to tour it because you can and see it. So for people, where they were mostly like a technical curiosity. For me, it was much more. Yeah, that's amazing. Uh, and this is where you started getting information. And there's just so much. There's you know we kind of take it for granted you know the fact that we can get information then again you got to pay attention to the information that you're getting because a lot of the information that you're getting is screened and is being censored so that stuff is happening people are getting banned people get shadow banned people get suppressed like all that stuff is going on right now and you got to pay attention to it you you do talk about this uh, i wanted to bring up this one section that you you talk about in the book you say one of the greatest examples of socialist censorship and suppression of information is found with the story of Captain Witold Pilecki. Am I saying that right? Pilecki. Pilecki. Yeah. Yes. In 1940, Captain Pilecki, one of the Polish army resistance leaders, volunteered to allow himself to be captured by the Gestapo in order to infiltrate Auschwitz con- concentration camp. Yes. So I'm going to say that again, everybody. This guy, he's a, he's a Polish resistance leader. And he volunteers to be captured so he can go into voluntarily into the Auschwitz 
concentration camp. Yes. It was there that Captain Falecki organized the resistance movement, which included hundreds of inmates. He created the report that was smuggled out detailing the horrors and atrocities occurring at the camp. This report made it into the Allies' hands, but it fell on deaf ears. Captain Balecki escaped Auschwitz and later fought the Warsaw Uprising in 1944. He was a great Polish patriot and a great inconvenience to the socialist regime in Poland. In 1947, he was arrested by the Communist State Security Police and charged with anti-Polish activities. He was then subjected to torture and a show trial. Captain Polecki was officially executed by the Polish Socialist Government in 1948 and was buried in an unmarked grave somewhere in Poland. They still can find where uh, they are still. Uh, the, the Poles are still looking for him. He is a national na- national hero in Poland, and this he was uh, in resistance. The the Poland and during Second World War has the largest the the the, the big the, the largest uh, uh, partisan army in entire Europe. So he was part of it. And the task was now, because there were already reports coming that something is going on in these concentration camps, and we need to, that that, that atrocities happen, but they need somebody to witness, to write reports, and uh, send these reports, smuggle these reports back. So for him, chance to escape the Auschwitz uh, were very slim, but he, so basically he volunteered for the one-way mission. And he did. He accomplished. He sent the he sent the reports. He described what is going on there, and uh, of course, they, he tried to escape. He was successful. He did escape, uh, but uh, there was very inconvenience uh, for the socialist state because he was uh, fighting on the wrong side. He was fighting on, fighting on the Allies' side. He was not part of the Soviet Union army. He was not part of the Soviet Union, uh, uh, the Polish military sponsored by Soviet Union. So hero like this, especially with his courage speaking out against the, 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 the socialism, was very inconvenient. So he was promptly arrested. And uh, as many of these uh, heroes at the time, he he was promptly arrested, sentenced to death in the show trial, and executed. And he was fully rehabilitated. When Poland became free, he was fully rehabilitated, uh, was exonerated. And actually, there are, today, there are streets, places, and schools named after him in Poland. Yeah, that just shows you how how horrible and evil this is. Uh, it is evil. You know, let me just throw something here too because I re- even I remember there were a lot of uh, monuments. They were totally destroyed because they were not supporting socialist narrative. Uh, monuments of freedom from uh, monuments from po- uh, previous Poland where Poland was not socialist. That were, was destroyed. The history was so twerp and so twisted that I didn't even know about some of these heroes or about the Polish squadrons, Polish uh, 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 fighter squadrons fighting in Battle of Britain. You know, there was all of them was suppressed here and there, a little bit show up, but it was mostly very, very heavily censored. But you know, like the, 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 during Battle of Britain, the most effective fighter squadron was Polish 303. There were movies made about it now. 
But at that time, being a member of that squadron could be could mean a death sentence in Poland. Um, I'm going to fast forward a bit. By early 1981, after the communist government raised food and fuel prices and lowered working wages, Solidarity had a membership of about 10 million people and represented most of the Polish workforce. This is when my mom became involved with the trade union and the first time in any Warsaw Pact country that an organization was formed independently from the regime with real elections and everything. Through the union, strikes began bringing entire industries to a halt. State-run companies were losing money and they were deeply in debt to the West to boot. Desperate, the authorities tried to strike a deal with the unions. The agreement at the end of the day was to allow the trade unions to exist in exchange for fewer strikes. This was just a ruse in preparation for martial law to take down the first independent trade union of the Warsaw Pact. At that point, I was more firmly entrenched with the anti-communist solidarity movement and I'd regularly stay late at the headquarters at Lotz. Am I saying that right? Lotz, yes. Uh, Lotz. But Lotz, yeah. (laughs) That's how you pronounce it. Uh, Now that I was in my early 20s, I had a lot more flexibility to do what I wanted within constraints uh, imposed by the regime, of course. And this is a historic day. Uh, On December 13th, 1981, around 10 in the evening, people started coming to tell us of their parents and other family members who were being arrested throughout the city. The state security police had come to their homes and their family members were gone. We knew that something big was about to happen. We braced ourselves for whatever was going to happen next. People started calling their friends in other countries outside of Poland, trying to organize routes of escape and chains of communication in case things went badly for us. Someone at the HQ turned the TV on, mentioning something about a government message being broadcast. General, how do you say his name? Jaruzelski. General Jaruzelski. General Jaruzelski. Yeah, yeah, Soviet. uh, Who is more Soviet than Polish, appeared on the screen. And he was sort of like, at this time, was sort of the the military leader of Poland. He was the military leader of Poland, yes. He looked grim in full uniform with the Polish flag looming over his shoulder. The National Council, in accordance with the provisions of the Constitution, has introduced martial law throughout the country, he read. This is the last chance to pull the country out of crisis and save it from disintegration. Yep, there's always excuse for something. So the, the mantra was that there is about uprising to happen. People are about to over, ready to overthrow the socialist legitimate government. It was never a legitimate government. It was never they were, they were the, all the elections were fraudulent. But it, so that there was the mantra, and to save Poland from the mayhem and upheaval and possible Soviet invasion, the General Jaruzelski had to do that. Mm-hmm. This dispute, and uh, my opinion is absolutely baloney, that's a bullshit. That was just another attempt, one of the last attempts to, so, to, to, to save uh, socialism in Poland. Besides, they understood, not only in Poland, but in other Warsaw Pact countries, that if socialism falls in Poland, it will fall everywhere else. Mm-hmm. And it did, including Soviet Union uh, later in 1990s. Mm-hmm. But that was the, the, the how they imposed martial law. There was one, there's a, just one night, they arrested, they were running, start running up at midnight. 
they start rounding up people like on the mass scales in every city, every town in Poland. It was well organized, and it. Uh, uh, I, I remember that whole the communications were cut in Poland. The telephone lines at midnight went blank. The TV went out. There, there was no radio stations. Nothing. They were just blank. Nothing. A lot of people died too. People were in emergency, having heart attack. There was no way to call. All the telephones were shut down because they were trying to save Poland from the uh, uh, insurgent for the insurgents mm-hmm. uh, and Polish uh, uh, people who are opposing, uh, who are trying to ruin uh, Poland. <laughs> this is how they explained yeah, this is what it. They viewed it as. Uh, you say it's believed that over 25,000 patriotic Polish citizens were arrested in one night, December 13th, 1981. Yes, and uh, yes, that's the, the thing is that at the time the socialist state uh, was very adamant about it. These people are not arrested, they are interned. We don't keep them in prison, we keep them in internment camps where they are safe. And we do it for their safety. We do it for safety of Poland and for safety of Poles. Not that they, didn't, they did commit any crime. This is why they are not prisoners. They are internees, but they were potentially dangerous to the state. They could be dangerous to the state. So we just hit it up and, and kind of intern them, send them to uh, vacation homes, sanatoriums. That's how they explain. But in reality, they were just arrested, thrown in jails, in prisons around the pond. Fast forward a little bit. When the President of the United States, Ronald Reagan, announced sanctions against the communist regime on December 29, yeah. 1981, yeah. the polls, including myself, were cheering, yes. even further infuriating the communists and socialists. This is when the phrase was co- coined, uh, I'm not even going to try, how do you say it? The worse the better. The worse the better. That's how do you say it in Polish. <laughs> yeah, that's the same thing. Im gorzej tym lepiej. Im gorzej tym lepiej. The worse the better. The worse the better. It meant that the more sanctions put in place to ruin socialism and com- communism, the better for Poland, Poles, and freedom. Anything that even remotely hurt communists was cheered by the Poles. The Polish people were ready for any sacrifice just to get rid of the hated, oppressive socialism that my father worked so hard to put in place. Those of us who escaped or who were left out of the mass arrests met on the streets in the days following and discussed what we could do to resist the blatant show of terror and authoritarianism. The country, fa- the country was faced with news blackouts and total censorship, so we decided it was going to be important for someone to tell the truth of what was going on. We found one guy who had a typewriter and another who had a printing press, so me and a couple of my friends decided to report on what was happening on the ground. In the back of my mind, I kept thinking about what would happen if we got caught. Being found with an unregistered typewriter or, God forbid, a printing press usually meant spending some time in prison. My newspaper was really only a double-sided, single-page leaflet that we produced, but the messages it contained were dangerous enough that I could have been imprisoned. After printing a few hundred copies, we walked the streets pressing the censored newspapers or the uncensored newspapers into people's hands and leaving them in high traffic areas of the city while desperately hoping one of the socialist sympathizers would not turn us in. Following the implementation of martial law on that night, December 13th, 1981, in my city, thousands of us would turn off our city lights every month on the same day that started martial law to show solidarity against the regime. Whole city blocks would be completely dark except for a single candle in every window. 20, 30, 40 apartment buildings all in a row, each 20 to 30 stories tall, each window with a candle in it. 
If you didn't see a candle in a window, you could assume the person living there was someone who supported or worked for the regime. I'll never forget the site. It was one of the most powerful and beautiful demonstrations with the polls showing solidarity with each other and against the regime in overwhelming numbers. You know, that sounds amazing. It still brings almost tears to my eyes thinking about it and remembering that. So polls were t- the, any means of protest, anything they was criminalized, anything you, you, you just the socialists and communists did not like, communists like my father could put you in prison or get you killed. So Poles found a way. They, they on the day that, uh, that, that martial law was imposed every month on 13th, they turned the lights off in their homes. They, and so you can, you can see entire city almost black out with uh, single, uh, uh, what do you call it, candlelight, sin- single candlelight in the window. So there was such a powerful message and what they tell Poles to, that in oppos- opposite what propaganda was saying, millions were supporting the solidarity and freedom against socialist state. There was not like what you heard in the news and press that is a fringe of society. There's only very few people who want this crazy concept of freedom or something that is just, just crazy. And, and there's very few of them. But here, then, you can... Uh, walk through the uh, streets and can see it yourself. You know, there's like thousands, thousands of people who oppose that socialist terror and oppression. So that was very inspiring. You know, this is how you can people can. I guess when everything is taken away from them, they still protest and they still show that what what really is happening. So yeah, that was actually interesting. Yeah, that was amazing to read about. Um, Fast forward a little bit. Some resistance figures I knew quickly became very loud and outspoken, creating their own circles that people flocked to. New organizations were established every other day and just kept getting bigger and bigger. We didn't realize that some of these organizations were actually being established by the state security police who collected names and information and were then able to arrest opponents of so of socialism in one fell swoop. Because my group was very small, no one thought to try and join us, let alone infiltrate us. We kept a low profile and covertly distributed our resistance literature out in the streets. I'm sure the police had been following us for a long time, but they didn't get anyone until early 1982 when I was walking toward the printing press down a tiny little street. I happened to look up and notice someone was watching me. He was maybe 100 yards away and staring directly at me. Of course, I thought that was strange, but I kept walking and got to the building. I climbed the stairs to the third floor. Suddenly, I heard footsteps thundering over my head and a bunch of doors flying open. I had at least eight or nine guns pointed at my head. It really was like an old school police standoff. They eventually got me to the ground and handcuffed me. I stayed down there with boots on my back next to my resistance friends who were already handcuffed prior to me showing up. They waited for others to show up, but no one did. The state security police hauled us off to their headquarters that same night. They stripped me of everything except my clothes I was wearing and carried me off to a dark, smelly, cold prison cell. Even for all my troublemaking over the years, I'd never seen an actual prison cell close up. I'd only ever been in a holding cell. This was far worse. Reeking of piss and shit and mold. There was... There were people huddled somewhere in the dark, but I couldn't see anything. I stood there until someone called out, Hey, you, just sit down somewhere. I had to feel my way around with my hands on the walls, blindly managing to find or barely blindly managing to find a spot on the wall 
among a dozen other people. Eventually, when they turned the lights on, I was able to see it was a small room with steel doors with a raised bed in the middle that was more like a low pedestal. A few people could lie down on it at a given time. And there were food rations, but they were so small, I was soon painfully hungry. Apparently, others were in a similar state. One prisoner, a real mean-looking guy, came up to me sometime after (laughs) dawn and said, I'm going to eat your food today. I wasn't about to give him the chance, not even a slim one. I knocked him out. And when he was laid out unconscious on the ground, I carefully lifted his upper lip and using my knuckles, punched his two upper front teeth and to drive the point home. No one was going to mess with me in here. I pulled the knocked out teeth from his mouth, put them in my pocket, and then I ate his food. Yeah, oh. <laughs> yeah, that was, a, you, know, I, you know, I'm still kind of like, I'm still sad that I lose those teeth because I was hoping to one day to make a necklace out of it, you know, and carry it, but just the, the, during one of the searches, they, they discovered the teeth. So, uh, yeah, I was hungry. And the, but there was the, this is something that we also need to look out, uh, watch out for the, the, the methods the totalitarian states operate. They will have a very small things that you wouldn't think is a torture, but it is. What, so basically, in Poland, the secret services, the secret police were doing, they were just limiting uh, rations and keep you cold. So there was not like you just die of it, but it was enough to kind of ache at you and, and slowly dismantle your defenses and eventually you start talking. Mm-hmm. So that was very common technique. And actually, I have to mention the same technique was used on Chief Gallagher here in uh, uh, by NCIS in, uh, in, the, in the break in uh, California. What, cold and lack of food? Uh, yes, cold and uh, limited food rations. So he was always cold. He didn't allow him warm clothes, and uh, the food rations were very small. And again, this is not the rations to starve you to death. It's just enough to make you uncomfortable, out, ba- out of balance. Mm-hmm. And this is actually well described in one of the research papers you can find on the official CIA website, uh, I forgot what's the name of it. Basically, there's the t- techniques uh, of uh, that used by Ro- Soviet secret police against political prisoners. So they was what was described there. At that time, I didn't know there was a technique. Mm-hmm. I was just hungry. The guy told me, he, "Say me, he's going to eat my food." I say, "Hell no!" <laughs> and I knock him out. But but now, since I was when I came to America, I learned about freedom. I learned about these techniques. And it, was, it really uh, came to realization that these torture, very subtle, mm-hmm. but they were conducted in Poland uh, on, uh, against political prisoners. Um, you do end up, you, someone asked you what you're in for, and you say solidarity. And yes. then, then they know that they, they'll help you out, right? Now you kind of find some brotherhood in there. During my time in the state security police HQ at Lotz, did you say it's like Woods? Is that what you said? Would you? Would you? That's how, so how, that's you, how you pronounce it. Lutz? But yeah, would you? Yeah, L- but the, the, like, God, yeah, yeah, L is like a L, like a would Because it's L with the slash. So uh, this is how we pronounce But I said it one time to my uh, to my wife. She like, sounds like, like Woochie. Something not really something like female <laughs> genders. <laughs> so actually, it's a lot. L O D Z. This is how you spell it. Well, I'm going to say Woodji then. Yeah, that's okay. Fine. <laughs> I don't know if I'll remember it because why didn't they just spell it W O O D Z I E and then I just pronounce it right? Instead, it's L O D Z. L O D Z, but it's O with the little uh, apostrophe, a little okay. point above it, and and that makes it U. <laughs> Lutz. 
Woody. All right. I was interrogated from anywhere from two to three times per day where they asked me the same questions over and over. While in prison there, the police raided my apartment and destroyed everything. They kept me there for three weeks, asking the same questions repeatedly, sometimes beating me when I didn't answer the way they wanted or didn't answer at all. At the end of my stay, they announced they had everything they needed to put me in jail for life and that I was soon going to the big prison. That same night, without explaining anything further, the police marched me out at 2 a.m. in handcuffs. The police kept moving, and under the cover of darkness, they hauled me out into the street and shoved me into the back of a civilian car. Where are we going, I asked. When we get there, it won't matter to you anymore. The thought crossed my mind that maybe they were going to kill me. I prepared myself to fight getting my blood up while I sat handcuffed in the back seat of the car. I knew it was a lost cause, but I would not go quietly. My plan was to hopefully knock out the two cops with a good kick when we got out and make a run for it. It was naive, but I had no other option. The whole time I was brainstorming, they drove for almost four hours in and out of town over and over aimlessly until 6 a.m. when they brought me back to the cell at HQ. When I got back, confused by the change of plans and jittery from my adrenaline, I saw some of my cellmates were crying. They thought I'd been taken out and shot, and they were the last ones to see <laughs> yeah, me. That's how socialism works. Mm-hmm. They were sure I'd be the next. They were sure they'd be next yeah. as the last people to witness me alive. Communism doesn't like witnesses. True. Yep. I didn't even understand that uh, that the, the, the stress I put on my fellow uh, cellmates mm-hmm. at the time because you know I was taken away. I thought that my sh- I could be shot, mm-hmm. but I didn't think they would worry about that. That's somehow until I came back and they explained it to me why they are so nervous. The guys with the tears in their eyes and saying, "Dude, we, thank you for coming back because we thought that we are next because they they're the last witnesses who saw me." So. What happened? Well, uh, he was taken by the police, never came back. And they were afraid, genuinely afraid for their lives. Mm-hmm. And uh, that's how socialist state operates. The terror. The terror. Fast forward a little bit. Four weeks after my arrest, I was transported to an intermediate prison. The police investigation was done. Now they were gathering materials and evidence to build a case against me. The absence of a confession or any proof was no obstacle for the communist regime. If they lacked evidence, they would make it up. But even though I knew they had a bunk case against me, I still didn't have an attorney to help fight it. And going up alone against a corrupt justice system usually never ends well. I was initially placed with common criminals, the worst of the violent criminals in a single cell. Some of them were snitches for sure. The prison walls were made of concrete reinforced with rebar. The whole place was cold and quiet. Mold was everywhere. It was huge. The windows were very high on the walls with bars keeping us in and metal shields on the outside of the windows preventing us from being able to look out. How many of us were there? How many of us there were and for what crimes was anyone's guess? The prison administration's intention was to break me down by putting me in the worst cell. The biggest guy of the group tried to strong arm me into conforming to the cell's imaginary hierarchy of control. Of course, it did not end well for him. (laughs) I I applied a significant lesson I learned on the street. You finish the fight when you are done with the fight, not when he tells you when he gives up. If you stop before submission, he could turn the tables and take you down. Despite this guy's screams to stop, I didn't. I kept beating him until he stopped screaming and stop moving. I fell asleep, yeah. That 
That works. I mean, this is something that I learned on the street very quickly. You know, when you fight, I mean, like, not in the ring, but when you yeah. fight on the street, uh, you fight when until you decide that this is enough. You don't let any even even small glimpse of the, that this guy can control anything, mm-hmm. especially not to when to end the fight. If you let him control that before he, like, you totally destroy the guy, uh, he may turn, and this often happened to us. You know, I learned the hard way the other thing. I got beat up like this. So you don't stop until the guy is not moving. He may scream the bloody murder. Stop, stop, I'll give up. I'm I'm, I'm your friend now, you know. But hey, you know what? You become my friend when you fall asleep. And then, you know, when, when we bring you up, you will be okay. And that's that's how... Uh, it works. Mm-hmm. It is. It may, I know it doesn't sound nice, but it's just the safety, you know, for my own safety. If I stop beating this guy up when he says stop, stop, you know, I, uh, I'm be nice. Uh, most likely, he would still find a way to attack me or or to, to keep his position as the the the, the top guy in, in in the cell. So I couldn't allow them. So. The, 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 I, I, like I learned to beat them up until they don't move. When they don't move, then you, usually when they wake up, they just like they either go home if they can, or in prison they just hold themselves in the mm-hmm. corner somewhere. Sit there. You know what I'm thinking about too. I was talking about your fighting prowess earlier, and also you know what I just remembered from when you and I would train is you have uh, like real explosive muscle. You know, like some people, they have good endurance. Some people, they're super explosive, strong. You have that super explosive, strong muscle fiber. So, like, I bet a dude, because I'm sitting here thinking about this dude, like, think, thinking he's gonna, thinking he's gonna do something to you, and I can just imagine your full force, like, explosion of yeah, violence no on this dude. At that time. Yeah, 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 yeah. That was that's just. Yeah, so that's why they fell asleep very quickly. Usually, when they when when it start happen, that's a kind of. Um, uh, yeah, yeah, that's, you know, that's, uh, all of us have that power, just uh, sometimes, most of us, and here in America is different, I, I would never, now, I'm different, I'm American now, I don't go and beat people up, I, I wouldn't do it, but at the time, there was just the necessity, there was just, you have to do what you have to do to survive, and especially in prison, when there was such a uh, brutal place, mm-hmm. you know, so, uh, it helped me, and, uh, <clears throat> this again like I was saying earlier some of the stuff when you read it it seems to be heavier this is one of those things that I I was reading and I was thinking damn it says the discomfort of prison can't be understated beyond the outright violence there were millions of little things that made life miserable for all of us one of those things was that you couldn't just lie in bed you had to either sit yeah. down on the floor or on the stool but you could not lean on the walls or the beds there were four beds per cell, two bunk beds. However, it was not meant for the 10 or more men that were actually in the small cell. When I first arrived, I didn't think much of it. So, and I was so tired and sore from my weeks at the state security police headquarters that I decided to lie down, even though the other prisoners told me I shouldn't. One of the prisoners said, don't do it or they will fuck you up. Screw that, I said. I'm, gonna, I'm tired and I'm going to lie down. My, were, my cellmates were smiling and smirking at each other in anticipation of what was to come. I ignored them and started to settle into the bed preparing for some relaxation. <laughs> sure enough, as soon as, as, soon as yeah. the bed, which was a little more than a wooden cot, creaked under me, the guards came down on us. My resting time was up. They pulled me out of my new cell and started to work me over. I could hear their punches echoing throughout the prison yeah. as they landed on me. They beat me up and then threw me back in my cell. 
When they were done with me, I thought for sure this was the time when I laid down, they would leave me alone. Yeah, would you think otherwise? <laughs> I mean, they just beat you up, right? You just, you, you can, you are really sore. You walk in the cell, so why would, it's natural. You need to lay down, right? <laughs> so. uh, I was naive to think because I could barely sit straight that they would surely leave me alone and let me recover in my bed. It was not an act of defiance, not yet. However, it happened again. This time they beat me with rubber nightsticks in such a way as to not leave many, too many bruises. Yeah, yeah. This method beating, this meth, methodical beating included multiple hits to my kidneys, and I ended up pissing blood as a result. Once again, they threw me back in my cell. This time I was 100% sure they were not going to mess with me. <laughs> yeah, it was impossible for me not to lay down. I could not sit or stand or stay standing, so I went straight to bed. I thought they were going to leave me alone. I was wrong. They were not done with me. The cycle repeated itself. God. <laughs> you know, there was not the resistance at the time. There was just stupidity. I didn't know any better. I was, I was never in prison before. You know, I was jailed by something. So why wouldn't I lay down now what's the what's the big deal and then when they beat me up i assumed that there's going to be well now i have excuse to lay down so <laughs> i kept doing it but again at that at the beginning it was not just because i was just a tough and resist was resisting i just wanted to rest <laughs> and, uh, and well uh, but yeah that's eventually uh they, that's, dude uh my buddy stoner he was in seer school and Apparently, you know, they give you like certain information that you're not supposed to divulge. You're not supposed <laughs> to tell them like, don't tell them what, you know, where the friendly forces are or something. Right, right. So they capture him in Sear school and they're starting to like beat him and then they're starting to waterboard him. <laughs> and they're yeah. like, they're waterboarding and they're like, where are the friendly forces? And he's like, I don't know. And so then they waterboard him more and they're like, where are the friendly forces? He's like, I don't know. And then they're like, where are the friendly forces? They waterboard him again and again. And finally they go admin, they stop and they're like, hey dude, like you're, this is horrible. You're getting tortured for no reason. You should just tell us the where the friendly forces are. And he goes, I forgot. <laughs> he wouldn't say even yeah, if he wanted to. Exactly. So it's the same thing. He wasn't resisting. He was just freaking forgot where they were at. So there you go. Sometimes it's better be, better be uh, sometimes not like heroic resistance. You just forgot some shit. <laughs> yeah, but you know, the funny thing is the guy I beat up, he's just like, well, you know what, I can, I can, uh, I can I can lay down. I mean, I, I can do the same thing, you know, we, because they let me along eventually. They said, so after so many beatings, they're just like, okay. So I lay there, you know, being sore, and they didn't come for me. So he said the same thing. He lay on the opposite side. <laughs> sure enough, you can just, the doors open again, and I said, like, oh, fuck, that... I'm getting ready for another beating. No, they just leave me alone. They just grab the guy, and you can hear, you know, at least I didn't scream. But that guy is like screaming like a bloody murder. Ah! And you can hear this beating up. They just, the doors open, throw him in the cell. He gets up, looks around. Okay. You get the fuck out of this chair. I will sit. <laughs> so, because you know, he was like a big hair up there, so he could throw people out of the chairs. So there was like four stools, so he sat on one stool from then on. I was laying in the bed, I was laughing my. I was laying in the bed, I was laughing my ass. Off. He, he couldn't. He couldn't quite take the beatings. Yeah, yeah, he could not. I, I think they they could actually like. I was a political prisoner, even whether they admitted or not. He was a common criminal, so they actually mm -hmm. could kill him. Mm -hmm. With me, you know, just like they, I think they had some kind of, uh, uh, at least those common guards, they were not really 
Some of them didn't hate us. Mm. Even through this propaganda and their training, we were trained to to hate us. They didn't. Some of them didn't. But common criminal, that I would, I, would, I have no doubt they would kill him. Um, you got look the get, get the book. There's all kinds of stories in here and and details about this stuff. At one point, you get in trouble. I mean, you get in trouble at a lot of points. You, get, <laughs> you, you spend two weeks in solitary confinement. Um, you, tiger cage. Yeah, you oh, get this yeah. tiger cage thing. Yeah. I mean, this. They took me to a cell, had only an open window covered by a shield that kept me from viewing outside, but did nothing to keep the cold out. I was given thin blanket. They fed me water and bread and regular. Oh, those basis, isolation. Yeah. More. Um. Yeah. Then. Then then this time I was given a week again you get in trouble you're knocking people out you're breaking shit You're just being a freaking savage in there <laughs> Well, Some of it was just from the fear that if I fell, you know, they would eat me alive there mm-hmm. So you just have to be the you don't let you you, you you need to be the pretty much on the top If you don't then you'll have to submit mm-hmm. to other people and stuff and I would never let it happen besides you know I had enough skills and I had enough expertise not to let it happen so it was yeah yeah you get this uh, this one time you get in trouble again I was given a week of solitary confinement once again but this time it was in the so-called tiger cage <laughs> yeah 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 tiger cage. for a moment I wondered if there was a real actual tiger in the basement of the prison but that was short-lived when they walked me into the cell I burst out with laughter it was so surreal within the cell room they did indeed have a real cage it looked like a very <laughs> large dog kennel they could not understand what was so funny and finding my humor in the absurdity of the situation did not endear me to the prison guards. It was so odd to see this misplaced, misplaced tiger cage within the walls, a cell within a cell. The, the cage had a steel, had steel bars as big as my thumb and a low clearance so I couldn't stand upright. My only two options were to sit or lie down on hard steel. They tossed me in and my week started. I didn't hate solitary confinement, not completely. It was cold, dirty, dark. It smelled, and the only light in the room was always flickering or completely dark. I only had a tiny blanket and a wooden slat for a bed, but at least I didn't have to deal with other prisoners or guards for that matter. I spent only a few cold and uncomfortable days in solitary confinement before the prison guards came in. I thought they would surprise and surprise. I thought they would just send me back to my cell. To my surprise, instead they say, we're putting you on a transport. That gave me pause. Where am I going? Russia, maybe. We don't know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. That was, I remember, that was very stressful for me because uh, that was, we knew that there were ready transports to go to Soviet Union to kind of isolate us, the, the political op- opponents of socialism. But, uh, and uh, that was a real fear. And you will see in the end of my book, it was not only me, but other activists actually were talking about it. The Andrew Krasuski, uh, who is, uh, who is, I have his uh, excerpt from his defense against socialist regime, um, the, the court defense. He talks about it. Actually, they were publishing that there are such transports already and could happen. They'd be going to Poland, from Poland to Soviet Union. So yeah, I was scared. Yeah. So what's the next prison you get sent to? Uh, Hrubyshev, on the Russian border. So I actually, I, I, from my cell, I could see the, 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 the Russian uh, side of the, pass, uh, across the river. Uh, there was Hrubyshev uh, uh, prison. Yeah, that, that, that's where I ended up, on the Russian border. Well, not quite in Russia, <laughs> at least. You say it was classified as one of the harshest prisons in, in Poland. 
Yes. The prisoners were separated by blocks with common criminals being in different locations from the political prisoners. Prisoners also had more opportunity to interact with like-minded prisoners. It became very educational environment as we were sitting in prison with many intellectual members of Polish society. Doctors, professors, physicists, economists, and engineers, as well as other hardworking Polish patriots. patriots. We all shared the same disdain for communism and socialism. One of the routine, routines was to open the windows at 8 p.m. and the entire prison sang patriotic Polish songs that the state hated. Every yes. night, entire prison blocks joined together in singing songs about freedom and independence. These songs carried into the small town and beyond. The local Polish population liked to hear this patriotic resistance. The guards tried to squash it, dragging prisoners away from the windows, but we persisted as there were not enough guards to stop all of us and our determination was strong. In a cold, lonely place like that, morale was vital for our collective survival. Yes, I know this is something that uh, uh, when we opened the windows and hundreds of people start singing the same song, it was echoing in the small town where where you know where, where where people were living and that was they couldn't do anything about it. there was not enough guards so there was not like you just stay there and sing when they came to the cell with the, with, the, with the, the nightsticks and all that stuff we were holding the bar so now it's like hey can you move away from the windows like fuck no <laughs> so we just stay there and and they have to drag us out so it took a crew of people to drag each one of us, and then they have to move to another cell and another cell. So as soon as they leave our cell, we just go back up there and still keep singing. So that was really unnerving for uh, for for socialist regime. Yeah, um, yeah. That, that sounds was, like a powerful thing to witness. Too. It was <sighs> August thirteenth, nineteen eighty-two. We started a hunger strike for the recognition of our status as political prisoners. The regime had been hiding and denying for decades that they held political prisoners. The last thing they wanted to do is admit that the socialist state was holding political prisoners, especially at such a volatile time in Polish history. Instead, their propaganda was to show us all as criminals who committed common crimes. After a certain point in our hunger strike, once we'd wasted away a bit, the guards started to force feed us per prison regulations. They would drag us into separate rooms in the medical unit and tell us we had a choice. They could either shove a pipe down our throats and force feed us, or we could eat and swallow on our own. Either way, we had to eat. Most of us stuck to our guns and said no. That isn't what they wanted to hear. The feeding procedure was to bring the prisoner in, strap them to a wooden chair, and shove a corrugated feeding tube down the throat. It looked more like a vacuum tube than a feeding tube. It seemed way too big to be a medical feeding device. They would push the pipe down your throat and deep into your stomach. Using a funnel, they would dip a large jar into a deep vat of (laughs) yellow sludge that was then poured through the funnel into the tube. Yeah. First, they tried to do it to us in groups, but when enough people resisted, they started doing it one by one. This was a strategic move on their part. It was easier to talk someone one-on-one and reassure them that no one else will know, lulling them into a false sense of security. Their method was to convince a prisoner to take the cup for sludge and drink it himself instead of having them have to shove a thick pipe down the prisoner's stomach and having that sludge poured through a funnel. But it was a trap. The moment... After someone took the cup and drank from it, they were immediately informed that the taking a sip on their own meant the hunger strike was over and they were separated from the striking population and eventually removed and sent to another prison. 
Yep, that was the technique used, especially in the older people who, you know, there was, this is something so amazing to me still. I was young, so I could put up with a lot of pain and stuff, but those are older people, like, you know, your fathers, your grandfathers. And they sit up there and they say, no, I'm not going to eat because you are evil regime and this is the only means of resistance I have not to eat, so I will not eat. So they, and they, many of them stuck by it. But you know, there's like older people. We're talking 40, 50, 60, well, I'm 60. <laughs> but they you know, like- you're, you're a tough 60. <laughs> you're a different kind of 60. Yeah. But, so, but so these guys were, uh, were tormented. Some of them were sick with medical uh, uh, problems, like Edward Kenjorski, one of my friends, uh, cellmates from Lots. We 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 were in the the, the the intermediate prison together. So they 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 use that. They say, look, we just if you, we don't tell anybody, but if you just go and drink, we don't have to hustle. You know, it's still the same thing. So we just we said of me we for us to put the tube in your neck, you just drink it and just go to your cell. But there was a yeah there was a trick because mm-hmm. as soon as you take it you take a few sips there was a pff, the cup was flying of your hands they slap it off and handcuff you back again and and uh, march you to different cell and you either stay separated from that uh, striking from us striking population or you were sent to another prison because you were not on strike anymore and they didn't want you to be on the strike. So that was a technique. But these guys, these older people, you know, in days they had so much enough of the socialism that they were ready to die even, you know, being or suffocated. But but they will not give in to to, to socialist regime. So it is very for me it was inspiring to see these old people. For me, I was twenty one, for me sixty years old. It was like old, old, you know, it's like my grandfather. So these grandfathers, these fathers with their children outside and families outside were risking their lives to free Poland from cultures of socialism. Yeah. How, how, uh, how many days did you go before they force feed you? I, uh, I think a couple of weeks, if I remember. There was just there was a, there was a time that they uh, that they have to step in. There's, there's a prison regulations. They will if you refuse to take meal, they will force feed you. But we find out a better way too, because instead of doing it, and we did it too. Instead of just doing it, every, like constantly until you know you die. Uh, you do it just two days a week or once a week or once a month. Uh, eventually, and I were describing the book, those more prominent political prisoners like uh, Binkowski, like Andrew Krasuski, Kenjorski, and other people, they've, they came out with the regul- regula- regulations. And I described after the, the fight for to change that prison regu- re- uh, regulations. So they, uh, they just... Uh, uh, they create like a, our own code of conduct. Mm-hmm. I would say code of conduct of political prisoner. And uh, most of us, if not all of us, were adhering to it. So if you get beat up, there was four days hunger strike. If you were uh, 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 put on the in the isolation cell, there was another strike. So whatever they did, we had always tools to respond and to counteract that uh, uh, the, the the socialist regime actions. Mm-hmm. So that was, uh, for me, that was ins- inspiring, seeing these old people not giving up and say, I'm going to, I want to make sure that Poland will become free. Mm. 
You you say this. Uh, my mother came to visit. The first oh, thing she said that was she was very proud of me. Of course you are. Replied for what? She then showed me a letter she'd received from the prison warden yeah, that yeah. said I was disobeying rules and generally being a problematic prisoner for them. Their expectation was that my mom would come and visit and persuade me to change my ways. But my mother grinned as she read the letter. She was fussing over my skinniness a moment later. I wasn't the same young man she'd been only two months before two months before prior to our hunger strike. I was thin and looked like I'd barely slept because I hadn't. The mental toll of being in prison was nothing compared to the physical toll, and I was feeling both. My mother, despite her pride in me, was afraid for me and our family. Yeah, you know, this is, I have this letter here. I have this letter in the States here. I have it. Oh. Actually, I found it. I found it by accident. I showed it to my wife. I need to find it because we just say, okay, I need to put it in the place where I will remember where it is. And this is where I always lose things. I just put like, I need to remember. So it is there, it is here, and I'm going to publish it on my website. I will send it to you, the yeah. copy, when I find it. I need to search for it. That was so funny. You know, they just like, Your yeah. son is really problematic prisoner. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> just <laughs> overall. Your <laughs> son's behavior is highly inappropriate. Inappropriate. Inappropriate, yeah. So, and he put, so they, they can't coerce her, they coerce her. They want him to come and, persuade me to behave right. so my mom was like for she used it just to see me so i say yeah okay i will come up there i will talk to him and she talked to me say keep going <laughs> don't stop <laughs> that's awesome uh fast forward a little bit the communist regime in poland following following another visit from pope john paul ii announced amnesty for prisoners, including political prisoners like myself. In Poland at the time, people were always tried to dress decently, even if they were poor. When I left prison in the spring of 1983, I was smothered in my old winter clothes, which hung off my starved frame like a costume. And for all the production behind my arrest imprisonment, in the end, the guards just basically kicked me out the front gate and said, off you go. That was it. Besides giving me my old clothes back, they also gave me just enough money for a train ticket home, but I had to walk all the way to the train station in my old winter clothes and heavy boots. Some <laughs> passerbys pointed to me and whistling and whispered, laughing behind my back, calling me a bum. I was freed from prison, but not a free man, not yet. Yep. So in Poland, as a custom, no, people always want to look nice uh, when I was growing up. So even if you go take a trash out, you know, they have like a common trash cans mm-hmm. where the apartments, you just go and throw it in your trash. You always dress up just to look nice, not to look like a bomb. And, uh, you know, w- we often look like a bomb, bombs, not because uh, we dress up like this, because this is all we had to wear. But that was different. There was just people knew that you just, when you step outside, you look your best. And um, so, so me walking now from prison, this big coat, heavy coat, you know, the winter boots, heavy boots, you know, the the I look like a hobo, like a bomb, and people were like, eh, "Look at that guy," you know. It's like so it was kind of odd, but yeah, I made home, so <laughs> that's important. Uh, yeah, that's definitely important. You, you say, by 1983, the people were so tired of hunger, terror, and years of fear they endured under the socialist state that they were ready to hang communists from their lantern post if they could have gotten their hands on them. Yes, that was, you know, and this is something where we need to be very careful. Uh, uh, we need to understand this process that happened in Poland uh, because uh, 
Poland, the, the, Poland just could not stand anymore the socialist state and the communist party apparatchiks. So they were ready actually for violence. And, and they were cre- these groups where you mentioned earlier, they were, they were creating uh, many of these groups were created by the security uh, secret police, uh, the state security police, and they were just like you know what they were. They were the most seems like those agents and informants. They are the most patriotic poles. Seems like they were just trying. Okay, so we need to make the oath to this cause here. Let's get together and let's make a secret uh, meeting. Let's make it so we 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 just. We don't do violence, but we will be prepared for this, prepared for that. And this is, they were getting these people to join in. They were taking these different oaths and different things while these agents are writing things mm-hmm. down. So if you, and, and this is something that eventually they could use these groups they wanted to use. They, they, they didn't have a time to do it because the communists fell. But they would use these groups to instigate violence. And then let's say the, the, the danger was that one of these guys, the, the, the agent or informant, will do something to provoke things or something provocative and then they would have a reason to just arrest mm-hmm. the entire group and they were doing that too uh, there were priests who were, were being trying to be framed there were priests they, uh, they were activists they were being framed like this and they all went to jail because the, the one of the informants did something that uh, allowed state security police to arrest the entire group so and would they, would they use that in the propaganda as well yes and, and yes be yes, able they, to kind of yes they did that way yes they did uh, and uh, uh, but it it cumulated in the murder one of the priests, uh, uh, the father Popiusko, Popiusko, this Popiusko, father Popiusko. So state security police tried everything. They tried to say he's a gun gun runner. He runs the guns, or then he's the pedophile. Then he's this. Nothing stick. This guy was very patriotic. He was very as preaching freedom, preaching don't leave on your knees. And eventually, they got tired of it. They kidnapped him. They murdered him. And uh, and they, they, they eventually, and think this. So if you if you are, uh, and this is the, the, the lesson to uh, to oppressors, eventually, your time will come, because today they are prosecuting these people. These people, these cops. When Poland became free, the security police went to prison. These these agents mm-hmm. went to prison. They uh, they prosecute. Uh, Actually, they are actually uh, uh, they call it extrajudicial murders. When judges were sentencing patriotic poles or fake uh, uh, evidence, uh, or just just sentencing them to death, they call it murders, judicial murders, and they uh, not extra. They call it judicial murders. Oh, yeah. So they, these these judges are being today prosecuted. Matter of fact, I was contacted recently, maybe a couple months ago, by one of the prosecutors in my city trying to build a case against these oppressors today, years, decades after it falls. So if you are an oppressor, if you are pervert, if you are the the Marxist bandit, uh, your time will come. You you will be one day prosecuted in full uh, 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 by the law. And you you're gonna get yours. Uh, they, nobody's immune, and that, that's where basically what happened. That's the best example is Poland. I never thought it would happen, but they were prosecuting these murderers, uh, those judges, those uh, prosecutors, and those police, uh, uh, secret police officers, uh, for uh, for what they did to Poland. Your time will come. 
Yes. Your time will yes. come. Um, after I was re- back, going back to the book, after I was released from prison, I became hyper aware of the communist atrocities being a, uh, committed and the miserable living conditions in Poland. You also had a priest that would do, that would, that would, um, Visit the prison while you were yes, there. Yes, yes, and, uh, and that was pretty moving. To yes, you. Father Pajurek. Yes, this is something for me important. At that time, as a young person, you know, you don't really dwell much about your faith, about uh, you know the philosophical things. But uh, when you know when he starts coming and visiting us in prison and talking about freedom, talking about things that uh, uh, about faith, it really changed me too. So that was like for me it was very. Uh, a significant moment in uh, time in my life where um, uh, he this, the, he had a big influence on me. Actually, I had the chance to meet him uh, recently when I went to Poland for the reunion of former political prisoners in uh, 2022. And, so, and the Pope had a huge influence too. Pope had a huge influence too, yes. And uh, he refused to come to Poland unless the, the, the socialist regime, the communists, running socialist regime, re, release political prisoners. This is how I got out. So um, among other uh, political prisoners, not they didn't release everybody yet. There were still people kept in secret that nobody knew. And there were some people that they deem extremely dangerous. They didn't release. But they released most of political prisoners before John Paul II came to Poland second time. Mm-hmm. Um, what a great person. Though now it is he, he, the, 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 the globalist and socialist elites try to smear his name and uh, destroy his reputation now, today. Mm-hmm. Of course, that's what they do. Yep. Um, you say this, the communist regime believed that depravity and perversion when thrown on society make it easier to divide people and therefore control them. Yes. Relative morality was key. For communism to succeed, your morality must be based on the ideology and the political agenda of those in power, not on God's laws. God gave faith and strength to the people, which made them dangerous to the regime. And independent, thinking independently, and not thinking along necessarily party lines. Yes, that's true. The 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 depravity, the, the perversion, alcoholism, alcohol and vodka, push, pushed on people, make them uh, volatile. Make make them also divide them, and then they can step in. They can broker the peace between this group and that group. But also they use uh, the, these people. They use these groups, mentally ill people. To uh, to wage the war on the nation and to, to, for for control, so people who normally you would have compassion for and a mentally ill person, you would like to say, you know allow them to live in dignity. That was taken away from them. They were being used as a scapegoat often, or as a bargaining chip, uh, trying to destroy the Polish society and, and, and civility in in Polish society. So that was very common, and you know. As uh, people do take uh, sides, they have their own opinions. But if you can, if we keep presenting group of people as uh, as as uh, as evil, or you pre- present evil as the good thing, this is what you're supposed to emulate, and you know in your heart that this is just perversion, depravity, and evil, um, <clears throat> then you are you you already are r- rallied against these people. 
if you present mental, mental illness as something that you have to, this is normal, this is how it's supposed to be, you, of course, normal people will say, no, it cannot be like that. And very often they will lash against these mentally ill people who just did nothing to it. They are being pound used by the socialist regime to control society, to divide us further. So that's how how it worked. This is how the perversion, the private mental illness was used to further uh, f- to further their agenda to dismantle family. The attacks on the faith and patriotism was a big thing. You know, if you are a patriot, there is no way you will go and join international club of the Communist Party or something. So they, you know, if they destroy the borders in Poland, if they destroy the the uh, the, the, the family faith and the patriotism, the national identity, then you are so, so, so easy target for to become the pan-national international uh, 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 subject. And it is making effort, it works today. Because when I went to Poland, I had the chance to speak to f- from f- my f- one of the friends, a German, who I referred to as so a German. Apparently, I offended him. Uh, he was not the German. He was the European Union citizen. Calling him German was the right extremist. It was the extremism, and it shouldn't be ever used. He was not the German. He made it very clear in very stern way to me that he was not a German. He was a citizen of European Union. Germany is just extremism now. Yeah, that's the goal. The goal is to break apart the family, remove faith in anything uh, other than the state. Because then you, the state can control you. Um, Fast forward a little bit. And this was interesting to me. Even though I'd been freed from prison, I was still considered an enemy of the state. It never escalated to the point that I faced prison time again, but it was a constant fear and it became impossible to live my life. Trying to live normally when you're regularly looking over your shoulder waiting for some state security police officer to jump out of the shadows or from around a corner isn't life, it's torture. It lasted for only a few months in the autumn of 1983. I finally decided to visit the US Embassy in Warsaw and request political asylum and ask for help. And it was such impossible thing for me to think that I could ever be allowed to leave Poland and come to live as a free man in America. You know, in America was always for me this this country where people are free, that they can live their lives the way they want to. There is government not telling them how you have to live your life. And and but it was such a distance, such an impossible to to to, to even imagine that I can ever come to America. And and so, but when these things happen, the way you, what you just said, I say, what, ha, what have I, what have I to lose? I, I can go and ask, ask for help. I didn't think they will be even allowed to, you know, to come to such a great country, and especially me being a criminal at the time. Uh, well, not criminals, not really criminal, right. but but with the present time. And no, actually, those opposite happened. I, I found it was found with, with like lot of warmth and yeah we're gonna help you we need to help you so uh, this is what we need you to do I was guided through the entire process and like very quickly I got a promise uh, they call it promessa promise for the to have uh, immigration or visa to the United States and uh, I was allowed to come to America you know that was yeah that was something did you just go down there and knock on the door yeah like 
Yeah, no. I just went to U.S. Embassy and say, uh, and uh, I, this is what happened to me. You know, there were wrong lines already too. But there's, if you if you were political prisoner at the time, I think you, they they look at you differently. So yeah, so I just waited in line. Came to my my time came in. I explained what happened to me. What is my uh, uh, real story, and uh, that's and then here I am. You know, now in America. Yeah, you said it took like a matter of months. Within three, months, yeah, yeah. Three, 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 four, three, four months, yeah, three months. I think that I, I was I had this promise. Usually, it take, took a long time, and to get immigration or visa out even longer time than that. But because it was emergency, then uh, like they understood the urgency of it, and uh, yeah, I was I was allowed to come to America very quick. It was actually funny because <laughs> I, I could tell you about it for for days because um, like no, I was always called so. I, didn't, I, I wouldn't dare to ask. I would just want to come to America. But they even asked me where I want to leave. I was like, that must be crazy. <laughs> so I said, like, anywhere where it's hot. You know, I just don't want to be called. It was like, Memphis, Tennessee. I was like, I don't know what it is. Is it hot up there? Oh, yeah, it's hot. <laughs> Take me in. That's good enough. That's good enough. Um, you say this when I was, I, I'm going to fast forward a little bit. Again, you, you go through some of that details of that. Uh, process of getting out of there. Finally, you get on a plane. West Germany was the first stop on my journey to freedom. In Germany, I learned a lot about the American citizens and Polish expatriates living there who worked for the U.S. State Department and who were assisting me with other me and other Polish political refugees in the transition to our new life in America. They taught me and others fleeing from various oppressive communist terror states what America is like, the customs, so, social morass and how to be successful being good American citizens. It was a lot to learn, and even then, it barely scratched the surface. This is when I made a promise to myself that I would be the best citizen that America could have. It was my pledge to America, the greatest country in the world, the land of the brave and the free. Yes, that's, you know, this is something that is still with me today, very, very, uh, very life, you know. It's, uh, I was never asked, well, what can we get out of you? I was only asked to, when you come to America, we ask you to respect our citizens, respect our laws, and respect our flag in our country. And leave, go and leave, leave in peace. <laughs> that was it. It's like, and there was so like, well, so they just don't, don't want anything from me. No, they, we just want you to come and leave as a human being. And hopefully you learn about America enough. You can become U.S. citizen even, and you can vote. You can actually be part of this, this setting the direction for the country. I was like, that was just that was like science fiction to me at the time, and that's what happened. Mm-hmm. On March twenty first, nineteen eighty four, I landed safely, albeit exhausted, in America with the equivalent of ten cents. Ten Phoenix, yeah. Ten Phoenix. There was German Val. Ten Phoenix is, I don't know, like maybe five cents actually, but it's like ten cents. <laughs> I was picked up from the airport by a church family who'd volunteered to host me while an apartment was being set up. That part didn't take long at all. Within days of my arrival, I was brought to my new apartment near the projects in downtown <laughs> Memphis. I was completely stunned. It wasn't the nicest place, but it was mine. And most importantly, it was America. For me, it was the most beautiful place on earth. The fact that I had suddenly had an air conditioning unit, central heating, and a refrigerator was mind-blowing to me. Oh, yeah. You know, it's like in Poland. I remember when I was growing up in Poland, sometimes watching American movies. 
you can see these boxes in the windows. <laughs> and I was like, why? It is such a simple idea to put the just box. So when my mom puts the when my mom puts the milk outside because this in Poland was cold, so we, we keep the food on the ledge of the window, like third floor or fourth floor. So sometimes the thing fell off. So so we say, what is such a simple idea? Those awesome boxes, mom. Why don't we build the box like have like America here in in our home? Well, I didn't know there were air conditionings. I thought they were just boxes when you keep the milk and meat and the stuff that needs to be cold outside. Oh. So I, I learned that. But yeah, there was such a you know, like, uh, uh, I still remember that time when I came in, like, like, there's nobody telling me what to do. I can ask, they will tell me, but there's nobody waiting to put me in prison. I can say whatever I want to say without, of course, you know, offending other people and, and be free, man. You know, there was like, I really felt free. And this is something that even today it touches me, you know, that, that I still can come back to those feelings where I was really feeling for the first time. There is not the government here to torment me or, or, or you know, or put me in prison. So I still remember. How that. long did it take you to feel like that? Was it like instantaneous? Were you just the, like, the first, oh. when I landed, it was the first time that it's like, they can't get me now. But then when I started living on my own, you know, I was a janitor at the yeah, time. Yeah, so that was your first job you got was, as a janitor. I was a janitor, yeah. So I was cleaning the toilets, mopping the floors, and this was down on me. I can pay for my shit. <laughs> I can pay for my apartment. I can, but you know what, this is, this, this is not all the story because, you know, I wouldn't make, that was be maybe so easy for me. I had American people coming and helping me, basically. This is how you need to do this. This is how you need to do this. Do you need the clothes? My clothes were out. You know, I was making barely money. I was part-time janitor. So just enough to pay my apartment, my food, but like clothes and stuff, which American was bringing me. People I didn't know from Adam. They just feel that, you know what? He's in need. So we're going to help him. And this is something that people here don't think about. They don't realize it even. It's so transparent to Americans, a goodness, being good to other people and, and helping other people. And sometimes I say, well, why you are helping this person and they, well, that's where we are. You know, this is the way America is. You can help, you help. And uh, what, what, what's wrong with that? I said, like, no, nothing. You just... You don't even think what you are doing. You're just doing because this is the way you were brought up as an American, helping people, helping other people. And if you succeed, you help other people succeed. And this is, this is, well, but this is so, this is normal. This is how we are. Well, that's how we are. But this is normal. Mm -hmm. But this is not normal anywhere around the world. I'm, so this I'm, is different. I know a family of refugees from, uh, from Vietnam and they came to America someone paid for them to come to America they paid for this family to have like a small house they paid for like food for them to get started they same thing yeah, yeah so they paid for all this stuff and the family ended up the the sons ended up doing very well they're like super wealthy now they they still don't know who the people are that sponsored them yeah they don't even thing. know it's just someone just gave them a, a, a ride to freedom yeah. and then a, a head start in America. And the people that did that, 
never have stepped up and said, hey, because you're welcome, or hey, how about some payback? Nothing. They just did it out of the goodness of their heart. This is something that American people don't see because it's transparent to them. They are brought up like this. Mm-hmm. This is just, this is the way we are. But for us immigrants, it is different. It's like, holy shit, this is the entire nation is, is, is so different. It's built on goodness, personal freedom, and it's being cherished. And this is something that, that it, it touches me every time I think about it. It's, it's the, 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 the nature of America and the character of, of America, which is like people don't think about it because that's the way we are, you know? It's like, what, what are you talking about, you know? But yeah, there is a lot to talk about. You write in here about the first time you went to a mall. What was oh. that like? You must have been blown away. <laughs> <laughs> well, before I went to the mall, I went to downtown because in Poland there was never malls, right? There was just like, if you go, you want to go see like nice tape recorders or like I was, I was in electronics trying to see like have a nice tape recorder have a, maybe some nice radio so was, in Poland you want to go see you go to downtown and there's like we walk on the street and you see it uh, uh, because it's, the climate is so mild that uh, there's no reason to go inside you, outside so I, went, I decided myself to go check it out myself I was encouraged by the people who took care of me first time the, the older couple to explore America. So I decided to go downtown. Well, I see those big buildings in the far away. I couldn't judge the distance that far. I never seen that thing that far. So I uh, said, so like, I just woke up there. So I put my flip-flops on and flip-flop, flip-flop, just going to jumping to over the interstates. Because like, well, like, I came to the stop. It's like, there's no, how do I go? Well, in Poland, you just cross the street. So I didn't know what the interstates were. So I crossed the interstate, jump over the fence, climb the bank, you know, keep walking. <laughs> and to, to go downtown, it took me like a few hours. And I came in there and it's like, nothing there. So there's like big offices, you can see nice dressed people during the lunchtime, no going to, to eat something, a bunch of restaurants, but like nothing to look at, just the office buildings. So then I was trudging my way back and again, so every so often, some Americans stop, do you need help? Do you need a ride? I was like, no, thank you. I, I, don't, I couldn't hardly say what they want. I could tell what they want because my, I didn't speak English, but I kind of figured out they won't give me a ride or something. I say, no, 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 thank you, and, and keep walking back. But you know, I, there are blisters all over my feet. I say, I will never do it again, and definitely not in the flip-flops. And then like, I, was to, I, I told them about my escapade, and this older couple, so they took me to, to the mall, say, this is where you go. Holy shit, I haven't <laughs> seen in my life things like that. That was like everything there, you know? And these people like nice dress, you know, they're walking around and like nobody's chasing them. They don't try to just run into store and grab something like I was used to. You see something good, you just go and grab it. So I was like, wow, this is so great, you know? So then I was always like, where do you want to go? I said, I want to go to the mall. So I was like, become like the, the, the permanent mall fixture I think in Memphis for a while because I just couldn't have enough of it <laughs> so you eventually get a job uh, you know in a car shop a car dealership yes you're 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 uh, pulling parts basically that they need yeah you're, yeah Oakley Kizzy Ford those Oakley, 
Okay, there. And, and as you're doing that, your English isn't great, so you're kind of messing up some parts that you're following well, eventually. So, yeah, yeah. So basically, the dealership, the Oakley Kizzy Ford, didn't want to fire me because I was working so hard. And they knew my challenges, my English, but they liked me. So they, the opportunity show, opportunity show up in the, another dealership to be a mechanic, either for Porsche, Audi, or Saab. So they say, hey, you know, like, would you, what do you think about, do you know anything about foreign cars? Do you, are, do, uh, do you know the European cars? I was like, yeah, <laughs> uh, I, I, I didn't. But, uh, you know, I, I didn't even know anybody. None of my friends even owned the car. And uh, I never owned the car for sure. And then my father only did, but he was never with us. I never seen that car. So, but you're European, so you must know about European uh, yeah, cars. Yeah, I came from Europe, so do you know about <laughs> European cars? Like, yeah, and, uh, and uh, I just wanted to, uh, you know, progress. I, I wanted to another opportunity, and I knew that I was not doing that great here. I, I was trying very hard, but just my ab- ability was not quite there. But you know, banging with the tools and hammer, I can do that all day long. And uh, so I decided, yes, yes, and we went to. Uh, so they drove me to the dealership, and those three, two mechanics show up first for Porsche, then for Audi. But they both look at me and it's like, you know what? Uh, the, the guy really don't speak English very well, and I need somebody who actually can get up to speed on these cars. They were very expensive cars to to do something. So uh, no, no, thank you. And so they say, okay, well, let's wait for the last one, the sub mechanic. And here it is, you know, the, 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 the rumble of Harley Davidson, the whole dealership shook. So the guy just pulled in. I wouldn't know, I could hear him, but we didn't see him yet because we, we are in the office. And then the six foot something Sasquatch shows up, <laughs> fucking uh, like Yeti, uh, a big guy. It's like, she just looked at me, said, that guy? It's like, yeah. I mean, do you want to be sub mechanic? It's like, yeah. It's like, okay, I need a slave, so I take him as my slave. Where go work for me? And I got hired. I got the job. <laughs> and this guy, you know, they they were afraid of him there. Often they they, they call him motorcycle gangster. Uh, he took me under his wings. Everything I knew and know about cars, even today, I learned from him. And he <clears throat> that, that he basically uh, allowed me to, to move on the next level in American society. I became mechanic, and he made sure that I am damn good mechanic. And um, he, I remember, the, for me, it was still very challenging. I had to read manuals. I had to connect the words that I read with the parts that I'm fixing and working on. So I figured out the easiest way will be to let him uh, go and uh, read this, uh, the text for me. So we were the friends. I said, Jim, uh, I, if you could, I would like you to read this manual for me loud. I will record it. So then at home, I can repeat and read it over and over. I, I thought the first was looking like, what the fuck is he asking me for? It's like, I thought he would kill me. But he says, like, you know what? I help you. But if you tell someone that I was your bitch and reading you books, I'm going to fucking kill you. <laughs> I was like, I'm never telling anybody. And, and I, I think he doesn't mind now I can tell it. But, uh, but at the time, yeah, he was the, he was the, 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 the biggest, baddest guy I think I met uh, till, till, uh, in my life. So he taught me everything I know. He knows the, about cars. He made me good mechanic. 
and he um, but when he read he he was not good at reading and the, the, I, I know his resistance now understand why he didn't uh, he didn't want to read but he did he struggled through it as much I think as I do I think I could do I read as much as he could but he did it and then at home later on every night I was re- listening to on the tape recorder and was following in the text and then uh, the, the the figures the the, the drawings and um, it really helped me helped me really become the good mechanic and uh, I owe him so much so Jimbo if you listen to this <laughs> my respect to you and my gratitude thank you for everything you made me better American thank you brother there you go uh, James, James Moore James Moore James Moore so you end up with that job you end up getting a job then with Mercedes um, Time's gone by. You went on a date with some girl, and she had just been skydiving. Yeah, you know, like I, I never <laughs> thought even this possible. It never crossed my mind. But here I met the meet the girl, and she jumps. So now I feel like a pussy next to her. It's like what the hell? So we talk about it and say, why don't you try? And it's like the I think there was one of the times like unlocking moments that. Yeah, nothing is stopping me. Why wouldn't I try? This is America. This is America. You can do whatever you want to do, of course, within the limits of the law of being the good citizen. But fuck yeah. So I call the drop zone and say, hey, uh, can I jump? Yeah, I'll be right there. And I just drove myself there. And, and I was ready. They would put parachute on me. But I say, well, that doesn't work like this. You, you can do today. You can do the tandem jump. So if then if you like it, then you know you can ask. You can we can schedule the classes and usually take a couple of weeks. That you know you go to class, make a jump, another class, make a jump, and within maybe two weeks you will be skydiving on your own, like as you want. So I made the first tandem jump and said, "Bug, I need to do it again." <laughs> so we went back again, and then I just ran out of money for that weekend. So I said, "Like I I, I want to start skydiving," and they say, "Okay, um, when can I start?" Uh, we can start on Thursday, so we might get Thursday jump. Then maybe you can buy one on the weekend. Then maybe another Wednesday, maybe another weekend. The seven jumps because AFF, and you good. Then you can start jumping on your own. Oh fuck! I started on Thursday. I was Saturday. I was jumping on my own. Well, fucking, we just went through all these jumps. I was just nagging, begging them, say, "Hey, don't leave! Don't leave yet! One more jump! One more jump!" And so the instructors, Tommy Kinder, rest in peace, brother, and uh, and uh, Wolfman, uh, uh, Robert Collins, was, uh, they were one of them. Reggie uh, and Sarah, they were my instructors. Actually, Reggie took me first on the on the first skydiving. This is the guy who hooked me up with skydiving. And um, they were there all the way through my uh, progression until I graduated from the AFF course when I became the uh, the seven skydives on the Friday and Saturday I was jumping on my own actually I borrowed parachute uh, just rented parachute and I was jumping on my own and they and I was always screaming like Geronimo because they told me to scream like this so I was bombing out of the airplane uh, on my on my own after like eight nine ten jump Geronimo <laughs> and also with my name too. Uh, my name is Jeron, so there's like there was like two or three Thomases at the drop zone. So I said, "No, fuck, we call you Geronimo. That'd be easier <laughs> for us. You know, we don't have to worry about that. Your funny name." So I became Geronimo. So you're learning that. <clears throat> you're you're learning free fall. You also at this time um, are studying to become an American citizen. Yes, and y- you memorize all that information you learn the, the american history 
Yes, because there was exam later. Yeah. And as you're doing that, the the war kicks off. The first Gulf War kicks off. You come. You become a, a, a citizen of America. Yes. May of 1991. Yes. Now the the war's going, or it looks like it's going to go off, and you decide you're going to. Go support yeah. my country. You're gonna go fight. Yes, You're yes. That, that, bodied that, American. That was. I'm American. This is my country in war and need. So I will support my country. I will fight war for America. And this is when I decide to join military. I never intended to spend, uh, you know, to do career out of it. I just, uh, I just wanted to fight war on behalf of America because America was at war. So that was. I had to do that. And uh, I, d- I didn't know how to go about it. So <laughs> yeah. I went to post office <laughs> and I found there that thing that says, what, what Yeah, that? you say in the book, in the post office I had found a selective service registration card for the draft. Yeah. I proudly filled it out, sent it off, and went home uh, to pack my stuff. Yeah. I was expecting to get a call from the military anytime. America was at war and I was ready to serve. Yeah, yeah, so they, they so, uh, the guys came in and said, what are you doing, Drago? Uh, I was Geronimo at the time. So what are you doing, Geronimo? I said, like, I'm going to war. So I'll, I'm packing this. I don't know what to do with the parachutes, but you can get take care of it for a while. And uh, I'm, uh, I'm ready. So uh, when are you leaving? I was like, anytime. Because <laughs> I didn't know it. So, so they, uh, they're like, okay. But then the, 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 the response came in that I'm too old. That's just the, that's not the, that was just the registration. It is not the uh, you know contract, the military contract. Right. <laughs> and I was like saddened, but I figured out, well, you know, there's some way I can support my country. I mean, it doesn't have to be maybe military, but I would like to do it because it's the easiest. I cannot build the jobs. I don't have resources to build more jobs for my fellow Americans. So I will fight for them. And I w- and they kind of guide me later, say, uh, well, well, this is what you need to do. You need to go to the po- to the recruiting office and join it. And I had no distinction between Army, Navy, military. Uh, military was military to me. It was like Army, Navy, I, I, I didn't know any difference. Mm-hmm. There, there, there is a difference. So I went to Army office. I said, it's Army, so I, I'll go there. They send me there, and <laughs> they fill the paperwork. They proceed the paperwork with, with all this background check and everything. It took a while. And, um, and in the meantime when they already complete pretty much everything, that came in, that Navy SEALs came in to Memphis, Tennessee. And they, uh, they uh, we jumped together because they like were- like the do- jump team, right? Yeah, it was a jump Leap team, the leapfrogs, leapfrogs. They were doing some demonstration in Memphis, so of course they stopped by our drums to make extra fun, fun jumps. Mm-hmm. And this is how I find out. They, they told them what I'm intending to do, and they're like, well, why don't you go and ask the Navy, go join the Navy, because ask them about Navy SEALs. I say, okay, I really didn't know what the Navy SEALs were at the time. I, I just knew there's some special forces and stuff. It was not my goal to join special forces. I joined, and I just wanted to be in military and fight the war because America was fighting a war. And then, so I went up to, the, to them and say, look, uh, I just met here guys at my drop zone. They told me to come to your office and switch my paperwork from basically not to join army where I'm working with now, recruiter next door, just come to talk to you first. And uh, who are these guys? I say, they call themselves SEALs. Ooh, okay. So what do you want to do in the Navy? I want to be Navy SEAL, just like these guys. Mm-hmm. 
Okay, so now then we start working on it. They told me to bring the paperwork, and that was kind of very awkward for me to go to these guys I already build a relationship with, that, 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 that army recruiters, and go there and say, like, well, uh, thank you, give me my paperwork, I'm going next door. But I did that. I didn't like it, but I did it. Uh, didn't like it because I didn't feel comfortable, you know, like I feel obligated to these yeah, guys. Yeah. And, and then uh, so I brought the paperwork stuff, and that was pretty quick from then on. Because they, uh, yeah, that was that was very quick. Yeah, yeah. I mean, you say in the book, the following Thursday, I was sworn into the U.S. Navy delayed entry program. That Saturday, I left for boot camp. Yeah, so it because went quick. Uh, well, what, what happened is, um, they asked me what. I, at least they were honest with me that uh, they were nice with me that provide me with the job because you can enlist in the Navy as undesignated, mm-hmm. and then after boot camp, the Navy send you somewhere. But uh, uh, they knew that I'm way too old, and my chance to join Navy SEALs was pretty much zero. <laughs> so, so they say, well, at least we give him the guy a job. He's so excited to be part of the military. So, uh, so they say, what job do you want to do? And I say, like, well, something with parachutes maybe, because I don't know what the jobs, Navy jobs are. But with, yeah, parachute again. I say, right on, sign me up. But then he's like, well, but you know what? They call me like next week and say, you know, this is like, if you want to go to parachute rigger, you have to leave now because this is the schedule as boot camp and the, 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 we need to schedule. So from boot camp, you go to A school. If you don't go now, you have to wait another month or two to go to boot camp. And then, so the time frame comes just right. So mm-hmm. after boot camp, you go to A school. So I say, well, I don't want to wait that long. The war is on. So sign me up. <laughs> so I call my girlfriend. I say, I say Delane, uh, we are getting married because I'm leaving for the Navy. It's like, what? It's like, we are going to the Navy. I'm going to the Navy, so we need to get married. And uh, and uh, and uh, she kind of like was a little bit upset, but then she, she she came in because I was in town, say, hey, we need to go and find the judge, get married, sign it up, and I'm leaving this weekend. So we went up there, we, we, we got, we found some judge who was actually leaving home. So say, hey, well, can you can you marry us? So he was a nice, super nice guy. We talk, he talked to us and stuff. We filled the paperwork. We got married. I went to uh, I think on Thursday, get sworn for delay entry delay entry program. And I think Saturday I will ship out to Saturday or Monday. I think Saturday. I don't remember. I will ship out to boot camp. And that was it. So I was I was in the navy. I was happy. Damn, dude. And all I ask is just, just to go to war. I say, like, send me to war, and then never intend to make career out of it. I just mm-hmm. thought to make, uh, just go for fight the war. When the war is over, come back and resume my life because good life. You know, mm-hmm. I was, I had everything in my life I I could dream of. And then you ended up in Navy boot camp. There you go. Yeah, and that was something that uh, was. For me, it was, uh, the initial thing was pretty scary because they were yelling at me, you know, they shaved my head, took my clothes away, give me some, you know, the, the military clothes. It was a big shock. But, you know, the, for a second I was like, that's pretty scary. But then I said, this is, this is the path for me to fight for America. So I need to do that. And I, I stayed that. And I was good because I graduate as a number one recruit in this whole graduation. Mm-hmm. Uh, cycle. So I will receive the Military Excellence Award, number one recruit, 
and was sent off to uh, a school, the next the, the parachute rigging school. And what was you got a kidney stone during boot camp? Yes, right? yes, they, they got actually laid almost, up, almost got rolled back. Yes, so I didn't know what the kidney stone was. I never had one. Never, you know, I was not that educated. I was laying in the bed, and one night, it just like the pain just kicked me right so so badly in my back that I fell off that bunk from the first second bunk on the floor, and it was like you know it was already dark because we were sleeping. And it was like kaboom! It was like what happened? The lights went on, and by the time the uh, they say call the medic because I couldn't speak, it was so painful. <laughs> and 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 I'm on my floor, and with before the medics even came out, I had a big, that big puddle of sweat from pain under my nose. And this guy coming, are you okay? It was like, do I look okay to you? <laughs> I was like, no. Okay, so they called me up to hospital. That was okay, you know. I pissed this thing up when. Um, they told me I need to be moved to the class behind in my company, the 169, I think. It was graduating. I was like, I was begging. It's like, no, please send me back. I'm good. I pissed this, this stone out. I have no problem. I can, I'm good. And they decided, actually, they allowed me to come back. The funny things was, like, inspiring for me. So when I walk into the group, because they announced to the company, to these recruits, that I would be moved to the class behind. I was, uh, I had a, medical emergency and I'm not going to be continuing. And then I'm walking in. So they were like a line up and I was walking there. Everybody was clapping and, uh, you know, it was so inspirational to me. You know, these young kids, these young guys, and they, they like that, you know, that I'm back in, the, with the, in their company. So, uh, yeah, but they also almost derailed my uh, SEAL training because I didn't know at the time, but eventually, I was going through, I passed the test, so I was going to medical checkup, for the medical for the Navy SEALs. And I went maybe like two, three stations, and the, the, the one the doctor looks at it and say, well, I think your SEAL career is, ends right here. <laughs> it's like, well, what, yes, sir. And he said, you have the kidney stone. You have to wait, I think, a year, year or two years. I have this document still at home. So you have to wait a year and then you can reapply for SEAL training again. So midnight, but you can continue with your A school and just go assign the, like the command somewhere. And uh, so I was like, yeah, for well, you, that for would me, be, yeah, that would be game over kind game of. Game over because age. Yeah. I, I already need a waiver. Like I was like going 32. So like four years over. And, uh, and then, you know, another year waiting and then more few years, that, that would never happen. Well, l luckily you got hooked up. You, you got this part in the book here. You say, while in Millington, this is where your, your A school was, where you learned about parachute rigor. Yeah. I visited a Navy SEAL motivator on base. I asked him to take the initial SEAL entry test and I passed it. Then I told him my situation with the kidney stone. He thought for a minute and then told me to bring my medical record to his office. Sure, I ran to the clinic on base with the request, with his request for my medical record and was back within an hour. The record of my kidney stone was on the first page. The Navy SEAL motivator, Lester, told me to wait outside his office. I could hear a loud rip and I was called back into the office. He looked at me with concern and said that he was not able to find any record of my kidney stone anywhere. He asked me if I could point it out for him. As we trudged through my medical record, I could not find it either. Then, looking carefully at me, he asked me if I was sure that I ever had a kidney stone. <laughs> at that point, I was already 100% convinced that I hadn't. 
Yep. That's uh, that's um, Les Barrios. So got mean, hooked uh, up. Rest in peace, brother. That's uh, he's no longer with us. But he's the one who actually put me on the right track and put my career on track the way I, so I end up in the SEAL teams. But you know what, I want to make one point here that my biggest motivation was not to be a SEAL, it was just to join the military, join US Navy and fight the war on behalf of America when America was at war. So, you know, if a SEAL capacity, that would be great, but if not, it didn't really, was that not that important for me what capacity I would be serving America. And uh, so then, uh, but it happened that Les Barrios, he knew what he was doing. He asked me to bring the paperwork. He fixed it. And I went to, and I eventually, because I ended up also with uh, with the trade school, the A school, uh, as a PR, as a, on the top of my class. So I was doing well in the Navy. And I think that's why I got these waivers eventually. So the only thing is, uh, barring me from training was my age. And that was uh, with uh, Les Barrios' recommendation. And uh, I, I was granted mm-hmm. the waiver. Um, yeah. He's, Do you know what the oldest person is to go through buds? Do you know? Mm, I think it was uh, maybe years older than I am, but yeah. there's like four older, maybe like four older people than I was. Uh, yeah, I was gonna. I think I've heard of someone being 34. Uh, there is now somebody who was older than that, but he didn't make it through. Uh, uh, he made out of buds, but didn't make it through the training. He, he was. Uh, uh, he didn't make through SQT, Got it. but uh, but there was just very few people. I think, yeah, I didn't know at the time that that I'm one of the oldest ever going through that, but kind of, you know. Well. Yeah, I've heard. Well, you you just it's hard to recover for guys that are older. Now, listen, you're a straight up mutant because you're sitting <laughs> here right now. You're freaking 63 <laughs> years old. You look like you're about 38 years old at, at the most. Ah, so yeah. <laughs> So, but most guys, they can't recover fast enough when they're 33 years old, when they're 32 years old, even when they're 30 years old. And then, so it's really hard for guys that are, quote, older to make it yeah. through. And then it's also hard for guys that are young to make it through. I heard the other day a stat that guys that are underneath 20 have less than 5% of making it because when you're young, you don't quite have all your strength yet. And a lot of times the guys just aren't mentally mature enough to to be able to gut through stuff. So I think the prime age is probably like 23, 24, something like that. That's the most of the guys in my class, 21, 23, 24. Yeah, Yeah, I was old. I mean, I I didn't feel old amongst them because I could beat up many of them. But but I was, was, uh, but you know, they took care of me. They, They knew I was kind of different. I was different uh-huh. a little bit. They uh, and I was like a, I became like a mascot in the class. I guess even they're just making fun of me. Instructors too, but uh, uh, you know they didn't find any buttons on me. So like to push on. Yeah. So they move on yelling at other students. I got yelled at them too, but like not more than than average in the class. But um, the, when when they pick somebody in the class who was like weak on something, mm-hmm. who was like sensitive about something. They just keep pushing this button until until these guys quit yeah, or, 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 uh, or stop being sensitive to right. it. So. Yeah, yeah, that's right. They can either become hard or they can yeah, quit. Yeah, yeah. yeah. That never bothered me. I, was the, I went to prison time. I went to the, the stuff that actually helped me uh, maybe mature me mentally enough that 
That never affected me. I never, never pay attention to that. They could yell at me all day long. I just wanted to do a good job. I just wanted to be good. Now, you say in the book that your biggest issue was that you weren't the strongest swimmer. And I was thinking about that when I read it. I was like, uh, yeah, yeah, it wasn't like you were going in down to the country club pool on the weekends in Poland or anything like that. You weren't taking shit trips down to the seashore to go swim. So you didn't yeah. have much water time growing up. Yeah, no, not at all. I mean, the, the things, and there was a stream, like a river, a little tiny river by my grandmother. Uh, place where once every year, year, once every while I was going there, but you know, I didn't know how to swim very well. So, um, and I tell you this how naive I was. So I will jump for a second to bats when I show up in bats, you know, that get wet and sandy, run again. So, Many of us just run to the to the ocean. I see these guys just getting like a knee deep, like the ankle deep water. They roll in it and just come out rolling the sand. So I say, that's kind of stupid. I just, why not to just, it's kind of like painful because it's cold. Uh-huh. I just go and let the wave, because with big waves, roll over me. So I just duck, the wave rolls over me, and I get wet and I just roll in the sand and come back to instructors, to the class. Good God, I didn't know the powerful the power of ocean. I thought I would drown. I thought my, my hands, my legs got ripped out of me. I, eventually the, the, the ocean spit me out. And I was like totally exhausted. I say, what the fuck was this? And so I basically crawl out of that thing, rolling the sand and limp back to the, and I never, then I say, oh, those guys were smart. I need to follow them, do what they do. But yeah, I couldn't swim. So, um, I was, uh, and you know, we were trying to practice it, like Jason Cabell. Like Jabel. Jabel, yes, yes. So we, when we met in the PR school, this is when we tried to help ourselves and prepare, but there's nothing can prepare you. I couldn't swim, Jabel couldn't swim ever less than I did. Oh, really? Yeah. Jabel? <laughs> no, no, no. <laughs> oh, the, the, this, I don't know how he, this guy made it to the sheer willpower. He just would not quit. But yeah, we didn't swim. Jay Bell's well. a determined dude. He's oh know, yeah, he's a hard-headed, determined yeah. dude to make stuff happen. And, for sure. And you know, often this is when I had a hard times. We kind of become good friends, and uh, in the A school, so went to bats very often. I just like rely on his opinion on his what he what he thinks. You know, what should I do? And he's the same thing. We're just asking, helping each other out. So Jay Bell was. Uh, so was were you guys in bats class together? Too? Yeah, we're in bats class together too. Okay. So. So yeah, that was something that I think we we we, we are friends forever. Mm-hmm. So we are brothers forever. And then you know we met in combat too in in Iraq. So that was something. But I remember when I was learning how to when I was trying to swim when I first time came in, I'd never swim with the mask in, uh, on my face. So when they told me to put the mask on and they told us swim the laps. When after the first two laps, I was already drowning because I couldn't breathe. I was breathing so much water into in the lungs as air, and and I was like, we were seeing those black spots, you know, this the the about to pass out. So I remember like, if I stand up, they would just kick me out. It's like I can't swim, but if I don't, well, I would not drown. They would pull me out of water, resuscitate me. So say if I just swim. I said I will swim until I pass out, and I didn't. And, and you know, I was getting easier and better and better, and eventually. And the end of it, when we finished with this phase, the next phase came in. I was chosen to demonstrate side stroke swim to these new guys. So, so I did well. <laughs> so you figured it out. Yeah. And I mean, you're used to, you already been in freaking a communist prison camp. Um, <laughs> so once yeah. you got to the swimming, people are yelling and screaming at you, no big deal. Yeah. Uh, 
and then the the running, the O course, all that stuff, pretty much no factor for you. It was I was pretty good at it. I was not the top of the class, but I was never, I was never good until third phase when uh, I start piecing blood. But uh, otherwise. <laughs> Uh, I, you know, I was always somewhere in the middle of the pack. Yeah, and uh, yeah, that, but it was taxing for me. You know, like guys were after finishing, I was with amusement watching like these guys. Okay, let's go drinking. I was like, fuck, I can't do that. I mean, I'm about to. I can hardly move. I cannot leave my hand. <laughs> so, um, but I, I, I did manage to go drink with the guys too, <laughs> just not so often. <laughs> did you ever get rolled back? Uh, I got rolled back just in the beginning of it, right before the hell week. I got this MRSA, oh, uh, MRSA infection, so my legs swore. I couldn't put my pants on, and I was it was not smart about it. Instead of I figure out, like, I don't go to the medical now. But what I will do, I just wait till Friday, so they will cut that shit out, and then I will have three days to heal. And I'm good to go. Yeah. Well, so I went to Balboa in uh, on Friday after we finished with our exercise uh, with our day. And they they clean it up, they cut the shit out, and they send me home. And I was like, okay, I'm good. By Monday morning, my leg is so swollen that for to put my pants on, I had to actually cut my pants open. And I went to medical, and they like they were pissed. Uh, they what happened is in Balua they did not irrigate that wound, so they just cut it out and just send me home. <clears throat> and so, so they they fixed it, and my swelling went like within an hour down yeah. so i say can you put me back in the class i say no because we are going into muds and you have open wound it will get reinfected you can't That's, i was just like no please do it i'm strong i can do it I, I'm, I'm strong <laughs> yeah <laughs> and they say okay if you can run here the, the like, i think they told me to run a mile back and forth and you come back on time oh, we, we will reconsider it and I did. I did run. I was it was painful, but it was, they already cleaned it up. The swelling went down, so I did. I finished it up and say, "Can I go back?" No, <laughs> you, you, it's still open. So it was one class one eight four, and uh, it was before the Hall week, and so I started one eight five, and I finished with one eight five. From the very how beginning. was Hell week? Was it how was Hell week? Uh, Hell week, you know, like I. I don't remember as a bad thing. Uh, for me, it was like we got in, I got kicking the balls, and we left, and I, and I was done. <laughs> the, the, the more important, the, the more difficult for me was third phase. That was a real hell week. That was hell week for me. I was kicking my ass. That was where I started pissing blood, and uh, that was like. Uh, what about what about second phase? What about how about pool comp? Since you didn't swim much growing up, you. How, oh, was by, pool, how was pool comp? Oh, by this time I was swimming good. Oh, okay. <laughs> so, by, so you know that's that's nice about the Navy and but even even if you try, and, and the instructors will help you. They make sure that you you know the material, you know how to swim. And but was kind of uh, I failed the first one, first pool comp, and the second one, I was so stressed out. I was, when I failed, I had to take the test next day. They were so stressed out. Uh, that when I was driving home, I beat up two guys up there at the <laughs> fucking uh, by my apartment. But that was uh, that was yeah, another story. But I passed it next time. Uh, you say something really interesting in the book, which I actually think a lot of guys would agree with. But I've I don't think I've ever heard anybody say it this way. You say Bud's training proved I was capable of a lot of things but it also revealed a lot of ways in which I wasn't as strong as I thought. And I was thinking like, 
yeah, you get pushed to your limits where you can't do anything else. Like you get, you're gonna do exercises and do things to where you know, oh, I, there's a point where you can't just do anymore. Yeah. Like there's a point where you can't climb a rope anymore. Like yeah. it doesn't matter how bad you want it. I always like the the uh, example of climbing a rope because you can climb a rope to failure and you can't climb a rope anymore. Like yeah. you can get another grip and boom, you slide down. Yep. There's That would happen to some guys they'd, on the O course. Like you yeah. know they wanted to pass the O course but they couldn't climb that rope to grab the rope transfer or the ring transfer. So there are things you, we as human beings, like everyone talks about how in buds you learn to push through anything, but you also learn there's some stuff you're not gonna be able to push through and that's why you're gonna need teammates. Exactly, oh, exactly. It teaches you, and it told me too, some of the stuff that I need to be aware of, that, that, is, that, that there are things that I need to rely on other people, and especially on the teamwork here. That, that teaches you that by yourself, by anything, yeah, you can be powerhouse, but you still need a teammate. You can't do it on your own. And it's not only through Buds, but like the entire SEAL career, you learn to rely. And you you know that Buds is teaching you where you need that push, that extra teammate to 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 to, to, to get you through the hump. And why was uh, why was third phase, which is land warfare, why did that kick your ass so bad? Well First, because my, my I think my by this time my body was a little bit exhausted too. I, I allow myself before going to San Clemente Island to be dehydrated, and I remember we came back from the rucksack march and I was pissing blood because I was so dehydrated and I was so tired. I guess and besides my kidneys, I guess were not very strong because the the beatings I got from the they were the, the, that's how they the, the guards were beating us mm-hmm. in kidneys where uh, you. Basically, you have no marks, at least not many marks. So that paid the cut the toll, and I think from then on, I remember I was always, uh, I was weaker. I was weaker than I normally would be. And so when we went to San Clemente Island, as you know, that uh, you you just, uh, there's like a hell week, but on steroids. You don't sleep, you don't uh, you hardly sleep, mm-hmm. you, you always cold and wet, and Everything is very physical, but on the top of it, you need to think. You, you are shooting live ammunition next to your teammate, next to your next student. You move, you do things that could potentially kill you. So you have to, you are tired, exhausted, but you still have to think, and you have to think quickly. And on the top of it, if you want to eat, you have to make those perfect 11 uh, pull-ups in full gear. So like I say, I was weakening already. So sometimes I was able to make those pull-ups, but if you didn't, then you make those races. You go race back to the surf, to the surf and if you don't come back on time assigned to you by instructor, you run again, you run again, you run again, and eventually you end up eating outside. So that was December at the time. was freaking cold <laughs> and, and most of the time I ate outside so <laughs> so it was kind of uh, yeah uh, it was hard it was hell we on steroids that's what I call it yeah you also say this from the outside this training seems absurd and it is brutal but everything that happens during SEAL training is taken from a carefully curated and calculated training guide that is updated and improved upon year after year 
Um, There are no random exercises, and if it's not in the manual, it's not part of training. Unlike the popular belief that some exercises are just arbitrarily made up and crazy, in SEAL training, there is no randomness or haphazard foolishness. Everything goes by the book and manuals. The training is dangerous as it is. There's there's, There's no place for craziness. There are many safety measures implemented to protect students. Most of it is invisible to trainees. They don't know about it, and this was one of the ways to introduce stress on the students so they can be graded on how they perform during duress. Yes, that's what there's a big misconception, and I hear it all the time from people, from civilians. The SEAL training is just crazy. These instructors are coming up with some crazy shit, and they will just drown you, they will resuscitate you. There's like, you know what? But this is so stupid. People need to realize the training, the SEAL training is dangerous as it is. Even the initial part, mm-hmm. that selection course, is very dangerous. So there is no time, there is no place for some craziness and, 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 and wild things. Everything goes by manual. Everything goes by the, the instructions. You cannot deviate from it because if you do, you risk students' life. You, you, you risk these kids' lives. So I didn't know it when I was going through the training. I thought this freaking crazy. This guy, <laughs> that instructor, that thing is crazy. But it is not. Everything goes by the book. Everything is already assigned and uh, and it's being appro- improved upon every class. So, uh, so it's getting better and better. Yeah. Um, <clears throat> so you get through that and you end up getting assigned to team two. CL team two. Yeah. Team and two. Uh, so that was uh, kind of uh, got me too. Because, you know, when when you check in, you, you, you're always under the pressure, stress to perform, to be the good good student, good sailor. So when you check in the teams, that's what they tell us too. You remember, like, get your best uniform you have, you present yourself in professional sailor's way, and that's what I did. I just pressed my, spent all this weekend pressing my uniform, you know, make sure it's perfect, as everything is shiny and, and, and cool. I show up on the quarter deck, and uh, it's like, okay, okay. They introduced me to a CO, uh, a master chief. I went through that initial thing. And then I said, you go to the back, to the back door up there and get your, go to get your gear issue and all that stuff. So, well, I, I did that, but I didn't make it to the, the issue thing because the old seals caught me. And uh, so, you know, I already knew there's going to be some harassment, so I was kind of prepared for it, yeah, but not for that. <laughs> you say, as soon as I was out of sight of the CMC and walking through the compound, I was stopped by other seals, told to jump on the pull-up bars and keep doing pull-ups until told to dismount from the pull-up bars. From there, things got fast and painful. After pull-ups, I was yelled at to lay down and do sit-ups and push-ups, and I was ushered out of the SEAL team through the back gate, marched to the starting point of a three-mile tent run, testing route, and told to complete the run in the required time. Mind you, I was still wearing my dress blues uniform and perfectly polished shoes. <laughs> By the time the older SEALs finished with me, uh, my awesome uniform looked like sweats for playing basketball. <laughs> <laughs> well, you can imagine now, too, so... Uh, so here it is on the base, right? There's normal traffic that people go, but the yeah. hour, hour where we ran those three miles run was along the road where yeah. people drive all the time when they move. So can you imagine the dude with the white hat, you know, with the with his wide long pants and and the shiny boots and stuff and 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 the and the 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 the, the, sc- the, the, uh, the neckerchief, the yeah. neckerchief, yeah. the the flap on the back flapping around, and you run like crazy. So there's like, what happened to this guy? Did he just lost his mind or something? 
something. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, that was that was my welcome to the teams. But uh, uh, I, I, I kind of expected there'll be funny things yeah. happening to new guys. Here, here's another good one. One Friday, the older guys invited us FNGs oh. to join them for a kegger. As a new guy, I was impressed. I thought that I thought there was genu- genuine interest in team building. We were all looking forward to the end of the day. Honestly, I remember thinking, "Oh wow, these older, experienced seals are inviting us to join them for beers. How awesome!" Whoa, yeah, we team like buildings. The, you know, we, we felt like the popular kids that just invite us to sit with them at lunch. I quickly learned, however, that we weren't there to build the camaraderie or hang out with the popular kids. We were there for the amusement of the veteran SEALs. This was them giving us an old school Navy welcome. The cool old guys jumped us and bound our feet with riggers tape. They hung us from the high base ceiling with cranes and chain lifts. Of course, there were more than a few punches thrown throughout to minimize our resistance to their welcome. Yeah. We soon found ourselves hanging from the ceiling like big grumpy bats. Every <laughs> once in a while, we were lowered down from the ceiling for a swig of beer or another beating or to be laughed at when our faces changed another shade of red. We weren't back on our feet until the kegger was over. While this ritual might be considered hazing by outsiders, it was meant to be a kind of testing ground for the new guys. We had to prove we were tough enough to be trusted in any situation. Today, there are no longer kegger Fridays in the SEAL teams and no alcohol is allowed in the compound. Very strict policies regarding alcohol are now in place. The old welcome to the teams has been softened and put under control so the new welcome procedures are not mistaken for hazing. There are very strict policies in, in place regarding any welcome events, but at that time, it was all good to go. <laughs> yeah, you know, and I, I, I think there was, there was nothing wrong with that. Mm-hmm. Um, they say that some people got hurt, but I think that mostly their feelings got hurt. But yeah. you know, if you have to have a thick skin in the teams. So for me, kind of like, you know, I just roll with the punch. I say, this guy's not gonna kill me, at least I hope not, <laughs> and it's going to be fine. So I, I put up with it and uh, eventually, you know, they move on to somebody else. Yeah. I mean, you know, you, you do deployment, then you are dishing out this kind of hazing stuff. Mm-hmm. So there were funny things too, you know, like when I was already, I wasn't a new guy anymore, I was the, season seal <laughs> so we had the new guys coming to the seal team too and we did the spy rope exercises uh-huh. you know just uh, the the hero comes in drop the rope you hook yourself to the rope and then takes off with like five six guys hanging hanging on the rope yeah. and so we just talked to the pilots say you know what it's just like when you fly over this pound up there why don't you just dip these guys in it and uh, so it's like mine is like december in virginia beach is them cold Ooh. and it was not for things you know it was not frozen yet so yeah we just flew the hill the hill came dipped these new guys in it put out and then flew them around for a while you know <laughs> freezing like oh, so so you know things like that happen but um, again it makes you harder it's like n- nobody got hurt yeah. maybe a lot of feelings got hurt and yeah. i know these people who whose feelings got hurt they no longer they, they, they didn't spend a lot of time in the seal teams yeah you know uh i always felt like the guys that didn't as a matter of fact when 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 i was in platoons like if if you didn't like a guy or if you really wanted to kick them out of the teams, then they wouldn't get hazed. They would just get like ostracized. So yeah. hazing was kind of like, or whatever you want to call it, I guess you can't call it hazing, but whatever this is called, hazing. Welcome to the teams. Yeah, this, like, this, this, yeah. this stuff was kind of just for fun. I do know that there were sometimes, there was there were some times where it got out of control. Excessive, yes. And I was like, yeah, that's over the line. And so the problem is, I think, instead of saying like, okay, here's, and look, it's you can't be like, hey, here's the rules. Yeah, this is how you haze the guy. Yeah, yeah you can't, can't do that. <laughs> but you know, they could have put some kind of parameters on it. It was also good because 
man, it was it's humbling, right? Like you're a new yeah. guy, you're showing oh, yeah. up. You, if you're a wise ass, or you think you you think you're the greatest thing in the world, you you don't think that when you get to the team and you see what's going At on. Least not for very long. Yeah, yeah, not for very long. For about seven <laughs> minutes before you're getting you're getting squared away. Uh, it, yeah, so I think it was a, a cultural thing. Um, and you know, I mean, I I know you've got in here that it, there's official regulations against it. I don't know necessarily that it's that there's not clandestine welcomes going on, uh, <laughs> <laughs> but but yeah, you know, I I think like anything, if it's taken to an extreme, then it gets dumb. Yeah. But there was something really positive to it too. Um, you know, there was a thing I watched this documentary about hockey. And there's a there's a player in hockey called the enforcer, and the enforcer literally just beats people up, and he beats people up that do things that aren't okay in hockey. They're not illegal in hockey, but they're not okay. For instance, there's like a star player, yeah, and someone would blindside hit the star player. The star player's out there. He's he's a skilled guy. He's focused on scoring goals. And all of a sudden, someone would blindside hit the star player. Although the enforcer would come out and freaking beat the shit out of that guy. And so what happened was, there's actually balance. And people go, yeah, I don't want to do that because then I'll get the shit beat out of me by the enforcer. So there's what there is is respect. And yeah. so I think, you know, in the SEAL teams, there was respect because you didn't want to get the shit beat out of you. Yeah. And guess what it forced yeah. you to do? First you listen. First you pay attention. So, you know, again, if it gets out of hand, obviously it can get stupid. But it was a good way of me when I was 19 years old checking into a SEAL team thinking I was a badass. A good way to be <laughs> like, oh, I'm not a badass. I'm just a dude and I need to get on board with the program. Cool. Got it. Got yeah. it. Yeah. So, you know, it's it's humbling and it's good. Um Oh, this is the way I look at it too. It never, it never hurt me physically or mentally. It was just making me kind of like. I thought it was funny. Yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's like, fun. It's like fun. But it was painful. <laughs> I, you know, I didn't laugh all the time, but 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 it was kind of like accepted. It's you know that this is the way it is. Yeah. And uh, and it doesn't make me weaker. Doesn't make me. It makes me just better, tougher guy. Yeah, so, yeah I'm fine. Yeah, and it's a little camaraderie. You know, yeah. it's a little classic Because after, after the beating, we still drink yeah. together. Yeah, so. let's go. <laughs> uh, so you end up, you go to SEAL tactical training, oh, S- yeah. STT. This is back when we did it at the team. Yeah. Um, this was funny. You didn't have your freaking clearance yet. Oh, yeah, yeah. Uh, that, that was kind of like... Uh, I knew that you need this, something like a clearance, but apparently I never, but nobody ever asked me about it. So I thought maybe this is something I misread, didn't understand well. So we went through entire STT course and uh, the uh, and the phase when you do the radio communication and cryptography, mm-hmm. when you learn how to crypto encrypt messages, decrypt them and work with this uh, secret equipment. So we went through entire course, me and another guy, Scott Linton. Mm-hmm. Uh, Scotty, if you hear it, cheers, brother. Scotty. Yeah. So, so me and Scotty that uh, we sit in the in the in the bench like day before the FTX, the final exercise, then we need to like like get exam from the crypto and all that stuff. So we are all, all ready. We we can take the test. The instructor comes in, so like, hey, uh he looks, comes to me, he's like, Do you have a clearance? I'm like, what clearance? Like secret clearance? It's like, I don't know. Uh, <laughs> 
never heard of it. I mean, I never heard them. Nobody asked me that before. Okay, do you have a clearance to schedule internet? Do you have a clearance? It's like, I don't think so. I'm not a U.S. citizen. <laughs> Scott, Scotty Litton was somehow, he's born in England or something. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, he, so, he in, and then he moved here when he was like 10 or something yeah. like that. But he still had a little bit of an accent. Yeah, like he, he did. spoke he, with an accent. He's so, a great guy. Yeah. Oh, yeah, for sure. But it's the fact that no one picked up on it and said like, hey, bro, where are you from? Because <laughs> he was clearly not from America the yeah. way he talked. Yeah. Uh, yeah. yeah, I love Scotty. So, so we, he just pulled us out and said, come on with me. Uh, he was already shaken at the instructor. I don't remember his name, but he was like, okay, this was going to happen. Never, ever say to anybody that you even seen this course. You have not been here. <laughs> Understood? Yes, instructor says, so. okay, you're going to get your clearance. You're going to pass this test again. It's easy for you guys because you already went through this course anyway. Just don't... Don't say to anybody. Yeah, and and we came back, and uh, eventually, I, for me, because my background, I, the the clearance took longer time, but it came in. I went, I took the test in the radio shack upstairs and passed it. Scotty Linton actually, we all went to his citizenship ceremony. He Hell had to become yeah. citizen first <laughs> before he could. Uh, so he became citizen. He got his clearance, and we deployed to uh, to to Bosnia. Yeah. I mean to. Uh, uh, Italy at the time. Yeah. Well, I mean, you had first. You had to go um, go through like you used to have a probationary period in the teams. Um, yeah. And you said it's after the probationary period, passing the seal board, yeah. made up of chiefs and officers. We awarded the the seal trident in the morning muster in front of the entire entirety of SEAL Team Two. We were called up front and center and were presented with the coveted tridents in the presence of Admiral Joseph McGuire. He's an admiral. Uh, today back then he was a commander. Yeah, it was a great milestone in my life It was a great moment, but it also made me reflect on many things It was crystallizing in my mind that this could only happen in America such an exceptional country only in America Is it possible to come without even knowing the language and carrying only a bag of clothes and still succeed through hard work and determination as much as I was proud of my seal trident there was an even greater honor that was bestowed on me before it was American citizenship. The citizenship and American flag encompassed the trident. I was a trident wearer because I was an American. Boom. You see, this is why, like, I don't wear a trident once I'm out of uniform mm-hmm. now when I'm already civilian. Uh, people do and they can. They deserve. They, they earn this thing. But I wear an American flag because <laughs> this encompasses everything. It does encompasses the trident. So w- me wearing the trident is like a distraction to my American flag that I wear. <laughs> so this is this is what is important. This is what what what, what drives me. And yes, there's, people say they congratulate me on being a SEAL, making the SEAL training and being a you know good operator. But that's not my biggest accomplishment. That's my biggest accomplishment. My biggest thing that I ever did is become American. And not only through uh, just through the ceremony, but also thinking like American and being my heart American. So this is something that I'm very proud of. Yeah. That's the proudest thing. Uh, like you just mentioned, two months after I received my trident and officially became a SEAL, we deployed to Italy. And yep. um, 
This was cool. Soon after we landed in Italy, we were sent on a mission to find and, if possible, rescue a downed pilot from behind enemy lines. An American pilot had been forced to eject from his plane, then to survive a week in his own hostile on his own in hostile territory before he was rescued. SEALs were among those sent to look for him at this point. The full realization it was real now hit me. I was no longer in training. There are so many safety nets in training precisely to make sure that students don't get injured during the training. However, these safeguards are no longer there during missions, and you must rely on your training and your teammates to reduce the chance of injury and to ensure mission success. From the moment I first checked into SEAL Team 2, it dawned on me that every day we were doing something that could kill us. Training, obstacle courses, parachuting, diving, swimming in the open ocean. I remember during one of the flights over the Adriatic looking for the down pilot, one of my teammates, Scott, was sitting on the edge of the helicopter's ramp, legs dangling with his head, leaning out of the helo. He had a safety belt on him to keep from falling out, but at one point it slipped off by some freak accident. He was sitting on the edge of the ramp with his safety belt unbuckled, laying behind him. Bill walked up back to Scott, grabbed him, yeah, right on, grabbed him and pulled him away from the ramp inside the helo. We were afraid that if we yelled to Scott, he would move and fall off the ramp. That would be tragic. It was and narrow escapes like that that reminded us we weren't training anymore. And it happened. It actually did happen in SEAL Team Two uh, uh, later on and uh, in Bosnia. We lost guy like this, fell out the helicopter, and with Scott, yeah, there was uh, there was Scotty Linton actually. There was, uh, oh, that was Scotty. Yeah, there was Scotty. So he was sitting twingly with his uh, uh, sniper rifle, and um, uh, you know these belts that yeah, we yeah. have, yeah. they had there's like a buckle that yeah. you can just sometimes touch it, it catches it, and just comes off. This whole belt comes off. So when we look at this, he's sitting like on the ramp. He's uh, on 53. His legs are dangling. He's just like leaning here, leaning there, just twiddling with his gun. If we call him, he would just turn. If he turned around, he would lose his balance. Most like he would just fell off it. And uh, so uh, Bill White actually, he just we, we look at it like in horror. So <laughs> Bill, instead of saying anything, he just kind of just grabbed him by his by the neck, by his shoulders, and just dragged him inside. He was like, "What the fuck?" But it's like, dude, you almost died. And he, we show him the belt. Yeah, yeah, he had no problems being manhandled. <laughs> but uh, but yeah, there was things like that happen, you know. And and we, this is why it did down on me that those safety nets that we had always have yeah. in the training, in the initial training, they're no longer there. Mm-hmm. The balls to the wall. Mm-hmm. Um, you you tell other stories in here. Get the book to to get the rest of these stories. You come back from that deployment. And, you know, when you come back from your deployments uh, in the SEAL teams, that's your opportunity to, about six months, you can go to different schools and whatnot. So people put in for sniper school and breacher school and JTAC school. Just put it in for a bunch of different schools to get more skills. Uh, you say here, I was assigned to English 101 school on base in Little Creek. <laughs> As yeah. guys would pass me in Navy buses on the street on their way to their respective schools, they would shout, hey, Drago, where are you going? I'd hold up my heavy textbook, I'm going to English class. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so, you know, they they seen something in me, something promising that instead of shit-cunning me from the teams, uh, because my English was not that good. Uh, I mean, it was, was good enough to mask, to cover it, but I still have to listen to you translate in Polish, then translate in English and, te- and answer to you. 
I was quick with it, so nobody caught it. But it took me a long time. So that English class, whoever uh, made the decision to send me there, actually helped me a lot and made me uh, allow me to continue with my career. So yeah, that, I was like, that was my my. Uh, I was not even upset about it. No, I was like yeah, saying, this a, anything to make me a better seal. If my English is lacking, I will fix it, and I did. Were you an AW in your first platoon? Machine gunner? What'd you do? Yeah, I was AW, the, uh, the machine gunner. Just I was like for three platoons, I think, it was machine gunner. So I, I, I loved it. You know, it was, it was heavy, but you carried a heavy stick. So when you unload it, when you open up, everybody knows that you are in line there. Yeah, I love that. Hell yeah. Uh, second deployment, you go Germany and Bosnia. Um, yeah. And what's cool about this, you mentioned this, uh, the biggest influence on me in my SEAL career, the guy I always wanted to emulate was. And that's uh, his uh, first name. Uh, was a great leader. Yeah. Not only was one of the toughest, he was also dedicated to making us the best SEAL operators there were. I swear the guy never slept. He was always trying to think of ways to make the platoon harder, better, and stronger. His knowledge and expertise were legendary, especially in winter and Arctic warfare. He taught us how to ice climb, ski, navigate Arctic environments, everything. Nobody else in SEAL Team 2 knew as much knew as much as who in his late 30s was also older than most SEALs about that stuff. Legendary guy. A legendary guy. Yeah. I can say his name, I think, now. I hope he doesn't mind me that, but uh, you know, if he does, we can always cut it out. Well, right? let's just not say it, because I don't want to. I, I know uh, he, he uh, still uh, does different. You know, He still does yeah. various things. Yeah, but I, I think know. he knows who he is, and he is the oh, guy. He definitely knows who he is. Yeah, I mean, he knows who that. And everyone, everyone in the team knows who you're talking about. Yeah. Yeah, so he, this is the guy I was trying to emulate always. And, and to the point that even like with Rob O'Neill, I said, how, dude, that thing's so easy. When you do this stuff, it looks so easy. How did you get to this? I said, I'm just, I'm just trying to be like my chief and try to emulate him. He was the, but you know what? There was not only the toughness mm -hmm. of him, of, of his, I mean, the, the, guy, the guy was, some of the guys in the SEAL team too, the training cadre, he thought he's unhinged. They, they even came to us and say, you know what, we, we can catch you, we can, regardless of what your chief wants, we can put you back in the barracks because they did not allow us to sleep in the barracks. We go to barracks only for the weekend. We sleep in the winter time, in the, uh, in the winter time, sleep on the range. Sleeping bag, BV bags and everything. And we're on the range, Minnesota, we slept on the range. So uh, he was, uh, he was he was that guy but not only that you can tell this guy hard he always knew he always asked if he how you are doing how can he help you and in the platoon so like time we stop you know we have this breaks a little bit we, we set the perimeter he was always there how are you doing is everything okay there's, there's anything you need are you okay is everything's fine yeah so he was he always makes sure that each one of us is fully ready to, for the next thing and stuff. And it was such a pronounce that I told myself from this person, I want to be like him. Mm -hmm. I want to be like him. And uh, and that's that's what I tried. I failed many times. I was, yeah. uh, there's the caliber of people that you can't sometimes emulate. Yeah, and, and just universal respect from everybody knows who he is. Yes. And he just freaking loved the teams and yes. cared about the teams. And yes. when you get a guy like that, like, it's just awesome. And I, I never actually worked with him. I only would, like, I'd, I'd 
but we'd you know, be at some like conference or we'd yeah. be at something, and so I'd get to talk to him. But uh, yeah, every, every, just just an uh, awesome reputation, and it's cool that that is what carries you know an officer. The officer in our platoon too, Bill. Again, uh, this is thing I, I wanted to call him. I just connect reconnected mm-hmm. with him. Uh, I just didn't have a chance to ask him about it to bring his. So I will not mm-hmm. use his name, but he knows who he is. Mm-hmm. He was the OIC of that platoon, mm-hmm. Bill. He's uh, he's very successful now in this, uh, in civilian life. But so th- th- these are these officers that I was so lucky to to work for them you know like i never had bad officer mm. you know it's like, it's like all of you guys i work with it was just like fantastic I, I was extremely lucky because you know sometimes you have officers you may not may like less or you don't like but i never had officer that i i would not uh, uh i would think less of him mm. because they, they were just uh, every uh, always above the cut Every, the officer I work with, so I was very lucky. Yeah, that is lucky. That's awesome. Yeah, that's awesome. Um, so you get done with that platoon, and then you go into your third deployment, which is Bahrain, and this is when you and me were together. In what platoon was what? What were we? Foxtrot or we Echo? What platoon were we? Do you remember? Uh, Echo. Echo. So yeah. that's where we were. SEAL Team Two, Echo Platoon. Um, oh no, no, no. That was the. Uh, I'm sorry. That was. I think it was. Uh, it might have been Foxtrot. Maybe. You see, like I, I, tr- I was not putting this in the books because yeah. I try to avoid this. Yeah. Uh, you know, not to give away too right. much. Like what the SEAL teams, what how many combat missions, uh-huh. so nobody can figure out. You know, yeah. up tempo or stuff like this. So I try to keep it away from the book. Is, this is, not is that bad operational security? I just broke by it by not knowing my own platoon. <laughs> <laughs> you didn't break security to that. I guess no one learned anything because I don't even know it. I'm kind of like stoner. I can't give but you the you know, information because I don't know it. <laughs> <laughs> you know, there is so many platoons you do yeah. that, that, that yeah. it blends. Yeah. <clears throat> uh, so we do. We get in a platoon together, which was freaking um, oh, yeah. really fun. That really was platoon. when, you know, this is when I met you first time yeah. too. And God, I remember that. This is the first time when I see you. Actually, we end up doing the the swim, the the qual swim qualification dive. Oh yeah, yeah. So I'm just like, I look at you because I was we are paired up. So uh, <laughs> and it was three men pair. Oh god. And I look at you and it's like, well, that guy's big, so he ain't going to swim that fast. I think I'm good because I was never a fast swimmer. I can swim <laughs> long, but not fast. And so he just give me the buoy, and I say I swim with the buoy, and. Uh, so then it's like, for a while I'm doing okay, but then I feel my dragger is getting hot. But the, hey, it's like, <laughs> fuck, I can't, I can't keep up like this. I, I, I'm, so I'm, I'm kicking my ass. If I look at this guy next to a three-man pair swim, he's already in, in total tow. You're just towing two guys. <laughs> and suddenly I was the same thing. And so we swim there and back, and uh, I was like, fuck, that's... As a big guy, but that guy's an animal. <laughs> so, so yeah. So that that, that was right there. The, the respect, like fuck. Uh, I thought I'm good, but <laughs> not that good. We we had a, a awesome platoon. We had a we had like a condensed workup. If I remember, like we didn't have. We just as soon as we formed up, we were in workup. Yeah, there was that? The, yeah, there was a the first strike platoon too. Yeah. So they were like in the rush, I think, to put us out. Yep. So <laughs> we did a, we we didn't have any like what they call pro dev phase where you're kind of going to schools. The thing I just talked about, where you're going to schools, no one went to schools. Everyone just like boom, we were in yeah. a platoon and we were yeah. automatically in a workup. 
and that was um, fun. I know I was trying to get people to train jujitsu. That's 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 the thing that, that the, the welcome to the platoon. That's like the guys. And like I was like jujitsu. I didn't know much about jujitsu. I didn't really know. I thought it was like a judo or something. Mm-hmm. And your, your first thing was you just came back. You look at the platoon. And say I'm going to check out the entire platoon in ten minutes. <laughs> so we were just laughing. It was like ah, yeah, right. like we didn't know who you were. So so by the first two three guys stepping out or pass out and you know, the, the, the thing that I remember like most of the guys just they lay on the bag and we are shaking their legs to bring them back to consciousness. You know so so, so that was okay. So, and then then I can see like a couple guys like well. I need to do something. I'll be right back and just run the errands. <laughs> like they never came back. But yeah, this entire platoon, including myself, were choked out. And that's another thing, you know, it's like then I was fascinated. Fuck, I want to learn that. <laughs> I, I, I want to be that good. So this is how we actually we start doing the jujitsu in there. Yeah. yeah, you have a little note, a little story in here. You you were uh we were doing some jujitsu in the platoon and I was kinda kinda coaching and watching you guys. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And um here I'm like yelling, uh, Drago, man, you gotta let him go. Let go, man, he tapped out. While while choking him even harder, I started arguing that he was not tapping out. Yeah, yeah. I did not feel or, nor hear any tapping. They had to pry him out of my grip. I released yeah. my sparring partner confused. He didn't tap out, I told them. Yeah, he did, Jocko said while laughing. Did you hear the t- 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 sound? <laughs> dip, dip, dip. I said, yeah, what was that? My sparring partner eventually caught his breath. Dude, you had me so pinned down that I couldn't even move a finger. I was trying to say tap, 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 but I didn't have enough air. And the only thing that came out was before passing out. I immediately apologized. I felt awful. Well, maybe a little. Uh, yeah, actually, I reconnected with Scott. So I was uh, after that. What that was uh, just Scott? recently? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. No, I not Scotty to, Linton. Was yeah, Scott, no, uh, I know the other Scott. Yeah, 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 yeah. I talked to him the other day too. I traded some text with him. Yeah, that was who it was. He would get, he would get so mad doing jujitsu. He would get, <laughs> he would get. Uh, what's the word? He would get personally mad at me. Oh. He, I would be rolling with him, and like, he would. He would, I would just be a cross side or something on him, and he would just tap out and he'd be like, Dude, just, girl, just get off me, man. Just, just, dude, just, 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 that's not cool. What the fuck is this stuff? He would be mad at me, like literally mad at me. And then, like, five minutes later, he'd be like, Dude, I suck or whatever. But in the moment of, of claustrophobia, yeah. he would get freaking mad. <laughs> yeah, but you know, this is a typical team guy yeah. stuff, you know, aggressive guy, and yeah. he's just, just losing, you about to pass out. So, fuck. Just get mad, you know, get scared, get mad. Dude, so he, he was, and uh, he, the jiu-jitsu was not f- working for him well, yeah, but yeah. Uh, but I like Scott, he was a gr- great, oh, no, great he, guy. And, and he's uh, so funny, he yeah. would say the funniest stuff. He would, um, he had this voice that he'd use, like he'd say, Ice cream, Sammy. <laughs> he'd be like, "Let's go get an ice cream." No, come, my memory comes and back. He'd yeah. say, uh, "He'd say that's because I am an athlete." He would say like that. <laughs> he would say, "I am an athlete." That's what he'd say to me. Um, you know, he's like, "I don't need to get on the ground with you. I don't need to do this kind of stuff. I'm an athlete." <laughs> he was good, you know. Oh, he yeah. was like very physically. He was. A, he was a, a very. I think he played some kind of like college. I don't even know what sport, but he was definitely a really yeah, good athlete. Yeah, yeah. My respect to Scott. Yeah, oh yeah, but funny as hell. Funny. He had this story where they were in sniper school, and they were going through the drill. Kim's keep in mind, right? So you got to yeah, look out yeah. at the field and you got to find stuff. Yeah. And so there was a guy that was going through sniper school with him that they didn't really like. This guy, I guess he was kind of arrogant. He's kind of an asshole. 
and he was pretty good pretty doing pretty good in the school so they're all on the line and they have to look out into the field and find you know they'll have like a canteen yeah, yeah. and they'll have a notebook and they'll have this that and a bullet casing and so you got to find as many things as you can so all the guys are on the line and they cheat and they kind of tell each other like yo there's a you know canteen at 120 yards and then like it's building so they all cheat and they but they didn't tell the other guy and so they all write down and you had to find like 10 items and so they all turned in their pieces of paper they all have 10 items and instructors are like yeah and they and they're like hey yup everyone did pretty good one guy failed um, and you, they could tell it was him the guy that they didn't like yeah, they tell it was yeah. him because he was like his face turned red he's all mad and Scotty goes <laughs> Scotty goes they're walking back to the to the freaking buses or to the trucks or yeah. whatever and as they're walking back Scott Scotty's talking to that guy and he goes I'll tell you what you got to be a real piece of shit to fail that test. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, just in the stubbing the bug. You and the way he said it, I'll tell you what, you got to be a real piece of shit to fail and that the way test. He says oh, the yeah. I, can, I, I can see it. Just I can freaking see it. savage. <laughs> just a total but savage. But you know, we had the awesome platoon. These guys were like comedians. Oh, yeah. There was always like Steve Droom. Yeah. That guy who had a so quick witted, but <laughs> the, the, the nickname didn't work out with me because this is where I got my Drago nickname. And he was like, why don't I get a cool nickname like that? And then you came out with a nickname for for, for Steve. But he was just such a quick witted, such a funny guy. Yeah. And Rob O'Neill. Of Good course. God, yeah. Robert. Freaking. I mean, that, that was just like co- comedy show. Yeah. I have never laughed so hard, maybe in prison a little bit, but even not in prison, as I was laughing in this platoon. That was the funniest group of people oh, I ever been fun, with. Man. It was fun. Um, I had, I was, we were out at some bar, and something happened with Rob where he left, right? And some girl comes up to me. <laughs> I don't know where this came. I don't know where this came from. This girl comes up to me and she goes, "Hey, do you know that guy Sloan?" And I'm like, <laughs> I, I, go, "I go, I go, uh," and I have no idea. I don't know anybody. So I, she goes, "Do you know that guy named Sloan?" And I go, "Yeah." I go, "I think so." What does he look like? She was like, oh, you know, he's kind of like a little taller and he's got red hair. And I'm like, it's got to be O'Neal because he's the only like red haired <laughs> yeah. dude I know. And I'm like, yeah, no. And she goes, where'd he go? And I, I'm like, he went back to our, our house, right? Barracks. I'm like, oh, he went back. I'll take you. So we like, I get the, and I, I bang on, on O'Neal's door. <laughs> He's passed out, and I'm like, "Hey, bro, I got you something." And I'm like, "I go, hey, Sloan," and he's like, "Yeah, he's all confused." And I'm like, hey, this is uh, I forget it, you know, whatever her name was. Yeah. Like, yeah, she was looking for you, and he's like, "Oh, thanks." He's and he was passed out, so he was just like looking at me all confused and crazy. <laughs> he had no idea so then I started calling him Sloan. From then on, I started calling him Sloan. <laughs> all kinds of nicknames. Rob, yeah, he yeah. always grew up something. That's where you. That's the platoon. You got the nickname Drago. Yeah. Yeah, and that's from Tony. Tony G. From, that's from, from Tony G. Gave you from that? Tony. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was when I beat up on the uh, 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 Shad. Uh, you know, but, uh, the the new guy. He was oh, a new guy. Oh yeah, yeah. That's, that's a, that so was they started so, calling you Drago. Yeah, yeah. Because well, uh, he was just saying. Then Cabby came in to me mm-hmm. and say, "Hey, uh, 
why why did you do that? Why did you just did it to him? I said like he I was, was he was a new, <laughs> yeah he he was new guy he was mouthing off great guy he is the funniest you know there's the whole entire platoon it was like a comedian's yeah. show you remember the time in Fallen when we went to patrol and the, so, the, so we trained the, the the reaction to ambush right uh-huh. so the op force came to brief us this is how you go you go yeah. this way this way we will ambush you somewhere we want to see your response how you acted so. So we are getting, we, the, the guys left. So now we are you know, lining up to, for p- patrol. And, and it's like, where is Shad? Uh, I don't know. Shad, Shad. As we come radio, hey, are you guys missing the, the, the op force, the, mm-hmm. the, the guys who are supposed to attack us? Are you missing the guy? Yeah, we are missing Shad. There's a motherfucker walking behind us and patrolling, passing us the signals and all that shit. And uh, he's he's like uh, acting like real security. There's that guy. So yeah, it's got to be that guy. So basically, he went with the op force, oh, and this guy was just lollygagging, just walking, you know, talking, planning the ambush on us. And this guy was patrolling behind and passing them the signals, like yeah, it's good, you know, it's, uh, it's going with the guy. Freaking Jack. Yeah, Tony G. I, what was pissed me off about him is he was like this little guy, kind of like a little bit stout, a little round. By the powerhouse. But he was stronger than me and faster than me. He would freaking outbench me and <sighs> could run faster than me. It was freaking annoying. Tony G, I know you're out there, bro. That always pissed me off. I never let it show, of course, but I'd always be like, God damn, dude, he's fast yeah, and yeah, strong. Yeah, yeah. And just unassuming looking and super squared away across the board. Yes. Um, he, was, I was, he was in my buds class, too. He's an awesome guy. Um, yes, I miss him. Yeah, yeah, for sure. Uh, so, yeah, we also on that on that deployment, we we did a cool. We did like what at the time seemed like a pretty cool mission, taking down uh, that one big oil vessel, Volganeft, the Volganeft one forty seven. Yeah, that was actually funny story too. You know, it's like for for at that time, you know, that we were not at war, so this was the first time, like first real life mission that we actually went and hijacked the the, the, the foreign ship. So we just we we. Uh, uh, and I, I remember we remember they move us from the carrier on the uh, on, on the destroyer, uh, and then from Hilo we just launched the, our assault yeah. on the on the on the tanker, and Robo Nilas was there too, and so Robo said, "Hey Drago, let's go. We need to go." So we, we were already prepared. So we just dress up, kit up, and and, and go. So we took down the. T- remember, we had a very limited time to do it because yeah. uh, they, they were they knew that we are watching them. So they were skidding the territorial waters yeah. of other countries. So we had like three minutes to take it down because uh, otherwise we had to jump off the ship, not to cause international incident. Like the mm-hmm. U.S. armed forces are getting somebody's else territory. So we went to be quick, and uh, we faster on the ship. We took it down. Very quick, and we had like three Russian speakers. I was speaking, yeah. Mr. F. I yeah. don't know if I can say his yeah. name, but you know this. Yeah. He speak and uh, Rob uh, yeah. spoke Russian. It was crazy because uh, like seals don't. We we suck at languages, and like the special forces, they go to language school. That's part yeah. of their pipeline. In the SEAL teams, like generally speaking, guys don't really. Guys don't really know a lot of languages and all that. And we, for whatever we, reason, we kill people. We don't speak to them a lot. Yeah. So. so for whatever reason, in this platoon, we happen to have our platoon commander who had studied Russian in college and then gone and done a semester 
in Moscow or something crazy. We had a Berkeley hippie that studied <laughs> Russian in freaking college, and so he spoke Russian, yeah. and then you were forced to speak Russian by yeah. these communist bastards. <laughs> yeah, yeah, So yeah. we had, th- out of 16 guys, we had three freaking really good Russian speakers, and we went down to take take down this Russian ship. That was awesome. Yeah, yeah, I remember too. So I, I could hear, and uh, so Mr. F could hear too, that the, the, the captain, yeah, yeah, don't obey him, don't obey Americans, resist what you can, don't do anything, and uh, Mr. F said, Drago, just take this guy out, explain <laughs> to him. So I grabbed him by the scarf, walking him up, there was a chimney, and I was like opening, the size maybe of the briefcase, like a bigger briefcase <laughs> or suitcase. So I told him, you know, you, you open your mouth one more time, <laughs> <laughs> I'm going to squash you in it. I will fit you in it, and you'll spend the rest of the travel in this chimney right there. So let's look at, look at this chimney. Look and at you this. said that in Russian to him? Yeah. Oh, and yeah. then he says, like, okay, I won't say anything. <laughs> and then we just like him having that thing. But do you remember the funny things with it when we searched the ship, right? Because we were the initial team, to, yeah. the, the group that took it down. Yeah. Uh, the, so after we hijacked it, it was already on our control. We moved out and other uh, squad came in, the, the other SEALs, yeah. our, our SEALs came in. And then we changed them again. We we're like rotating. So when they coming back, you remember they came out with a big bag for clunking shit, oh, and it's like, dudes, you just failed. You just left all these weapons, all that stuff, and it's like, damn, that's not good. How did we leave all these weapons? What it is? Let, let them see. And so he opened the bag. There's a fucking butter knives and forks and spoons <laughs> in it. There's like, dude, are you fucking shitting me? And then you. So they were trying to make us f- like we had missed these weapons that could be used. It, and the, he's like, hey, you guys, you guys missed some weapons over there. I'm like, oh shit. And like, then you look at the binoculars. <laughs> yeah, that's right. It's like, so, and you just didn't mind those axes hanging up there on the door? You just stole their butter knives and forks and these axes are still hanging there? Yeah, they had like damage control fire axes that these guys, these, I'm like, hey, what about those freaking straight up axes that they got sitting over there? That wasn't a threat. They were like, damn. Oh, well, yeah, forget. But you know, the funny thing is that then when we exchange again, we came back, these Russians, they knew I speak uh, Russian, so they came to me and said like, Please help us. We we need our forks and knives and spoons back. I said, like, why would you need the back? You know, can you eat with your hands? It's like, no, we can't. We don't have teeth. And they open their mouth. And I tell you, so all these women and, and, and young guys, everyone is missing so many teeth that there wouldn't be even one set of one full set of teeth among all of them they were so, just over there gumming out on some damn chicken yeah so patties, boy. you remember i came to you and say like this is what they ask and w- w- they can't eat that they, they don't have teeth so we say okay so you you tell you tell these guys to bring the, the, the their forks and but butter, they have knives, their butter and knives back yeah. we'll, we'll, we'll mitigate oh, the threat but they were so grateful that they didn't cause any problems after that you know they were just happy they were greeting <laughs> thank you for the knives and forks you know they, every time they eat they're like we learned when I was passing by it's like they, they were shaking their uh, forks and knives like thank you spasiba spasiba yeah, <laughs> so. yeah. that platoon I, I just remember you talking about the first uh, squad going on there and we were trying to get as big as humanly possible and so we wanted the average platoon weight to be over 200 pounds and we had some smaller guys too that were in there and we so, made up for them. Yeah, we made up for them. I got to I got to 250. So when we left for deployment, I was like 247. 
Yeah. And we, yep. the first place we went on deployment was Spain, and they had an all you. Can, we stayed at some oh, all you can eat buffet yeah. hotel, and yeah. I was like, oh, I got this. <laughs> and so for like three, four days, I just deadlifted and ate. And uh, I got to 250, and I was like, cool, I'm going on a four mile timed run. And I was like, all right, I need to lose some damn weight, boy. But yeah, we, we all freaking, did. Yeah, we were all freaking jacked. Yeah, yeah. But you know, that was so awesome because you opened the, we went to Rota, right? Uh, mm-hmm. I think it was in Spain yeah. or whatever we were up there. Uh, that, the place where we stay, we just opened the door, that the resort. You step on the beach, yeah, it was and nice. it was maybe like maybe 20 yards is the ocean. So the, the the Atlantic, so that was such a great trip. There were so many good things. You remember we went also to see the uh, 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 the Indiana Jones. Pyramids. Oh, then they went to the pyramids too. Yeah, but the, like, I was not fascinated by the pyramids because like I remember they. Uh, those people were just coming and they're just like, Mister, Mister, here is your, here is your. We give you the the Arab garb, you know that yeah. that 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 what do you call this? I don't know. Scarf. What, it's called, what do you yeah. put on your head, right? Turban. Turban, yeah, like, yeah. Say, like a turban and sure. stuff. And, and they just give it to you, but then they start giving the money. Give me the money, you know. You need to pay for it. So it's like, well, like, where are you from? I was like, I'm from Bangladesh. So they're like, oh, Bangladesh, okay. So they're like, from Kenya. So like, leave me alone. So uh, they, they went hassling somebody else. So they, yeah. they worked for me. Do you remember the, when we got to Rhoda, the other platoon? I don't know what team they were from. I think they might have been from Team 2. Team, those Team 2. Yeah. And freaking Tiny was there. Oh. <laughs> was, yeah, we, we were rushing the medicine for him yeah. because he was like out of medicine and was in such a pain that we just need to do some stuff. The first thing we did, I remember, just break away from the platoon, run to Tiny. It's tiny, here it is. Here, t- take some shots. So, God, he had yeah. some, he had a horn. He had like, that, like that, an that, animal horn. That was from uh, I don't know, but Brad actually acquired it. Oh, so it Brad a had a horn. horn of Satan. Yeah, what it was the called. horn of Satan. If you drink from it, you got in trouble. Yeah, like, it no was like what you guaranteed did. getting guaranteed in trouble. trouble. Yeah, and I remember Tiny was just like drinking prolifically from the horn of Satan. <laughs> yes, yes, yes. And then and, entire. Plat- and by the way, Brad, he didn't need any extra help oh, finding no, Satan no, when he drank. No, dude. no, no. <laughs> he was freaking. No, no but the, the funny thing is, like, so we we barely made it. Like two days later, the entire platoon is being called out. Say. Anybody see this and this guy whipping out the genitals on the table in front of two lieutenant females? It's like, no, we didn't. <laughs> like, okay, so there's a full investigation. It's like, who did that? <laughs> there, was, there was not us. There was no, not no, us. But, uh, but, uh, but yeah, there was like first thing. The whole platoon had to go and... Uh, and, 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 and they were that. suspect. They were, yeah. Yeah, they knew who it was. I, I know who it was. We know who it was. But, you know, there was like a... It was like, you know, it was just so funny. So it's just, we were just <laughs> laughing our asses over the, the way it, it happened. That, um, yeah. <laughs> well, that's what you get when you when you hang out with people from other military branches. Sometimes these things happen. Um, yeah. All right, next here, you go. So we get down with that deployment. For, uh, good times. Uh, like pretty. Like it. It was pretty cool. We got to do. So we got to do other like little vessels inside the Persian Gulf. We tracked those things down and board those things. So we were actually yeah. doing work, which was kind of nice because it was the '90s and there wasn't much work to be done. 
Yeah, um, yeah. You get home from that deployment, and you immediately, and a bunch of guys immediately get reassigned to SEAL Team 4. Yeah, well, actually, we were assigned even while on deployment. On the way back, we, we came back as a SEAL Team 4. So, oh, dang. So that's, uh, so me, Rob, a couple other guys, a few other guys. But it wasn't like not a big deal. Like my family was already falling apart, and I just, all I need to do is just grab my kid, kid bags, and move from one building to another. So there was an entire move, you know, P- P- PCS move. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you say you say in the book here, what was waiting for me when I got back home though wasn't great. My marriage had fallen apart while I was overseas. It's no secret that life as a Navy SEAL puts serious strain on your personal life, family, and marriage. My life was no different than my SEAL teammates. Most of our time is divided up with six months or more of platoon workup, then six month deployments overseas. There's never really any time at home. Once the divorce was final, I lost my home along with my family. I was financially broken too. Without the structure and distraction of being deployed, I was getting myself into a lot of trouble back in Virginia Beach. Eventually I ended up in a new platoon doing another pre-deployment workup. Our deployment was scheduled to Puerto Rico. That was our launch pad. I I returned to the only place I knew I could trust the people I was with, my fellow SEALs who were like my family to me and whom I knew better than my real brother. That's That's true. Yeah. That's that's how it is in the teams. You know it. You know these guys. You know the guys next to you better than you know your family. And people say that this is, uh, well, this is not good, but you know what? At that time, that's all I had. That was the only family I had. And uh, that was great, you know. That was kind of compensate for my, you know, I had my my son. My uh, I, I hardly got to know him uh, uh, during all these uh, things. So we we are missing a lot, and I didn't understand the, how much I lost, how much I didn't see my son growing up, until eventually after the Navy, I had my children where I could actually observe them, observe them every day, be with them every day. This is when I realized how much time I lost with my son, with my first son, mm-hmm. and it still bothers me uh, 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 often. Uh, but uh, yeah, that's the way there's life it is with the SEAL teams. Yeah, you know, when uh, when you and I, when I left for Iraq, when you and I were in Iraq, yeah. when I left for Iraq on my first deployment, my son couldn't crawl when I left, yeah. when I got home he was walking. And then you go again on the trip, then the, everything yeah. you come back, the guy, yeah. the, the little baby already does more and more and more. Yeah. So like for me, my son was always baby, even he was big, he was still baby, because this is how I remember him. Mm-hmm. And uh, it is not good. It's not good for family. But sometimes you just cannot change things. You cannot be there when you need to be there. Yeah. And uh, and I also tell I tell I've told many guys this over the years. Like men have been leaving for the entire existence of humanity. Men used to go and hunt, and they'd go on hunting trips. Yeah. In the then we were going on sailing ships around the world. Then we were going to fight wars. Like this is nothing yeah. new that we are doing. And it's not that you can get through it. You can you can get through it, but it's going to be freaking hard, and it's going to take a toll, you know. Yeah. Um. But this is nor it's kind of normal, right? That if you were around in the freaking seventeen hundreds or eighteen hundreds, your dad might be going on a ship and might not be coming back for a year and a half, two years. You know that these things happen. Roman Empire, yeah, exactly. Greece, that's yeah. same year-long campaigns. Yeah, they're going on deployments for three years. You know, like that's the yeah. way it goes. Um, it, but I can tell you, like, I was talking to Leif the other day, my my buddy Leif, who well, you know Leif, and yeah. you know he he 
he has kids now, young kids, and he he was just like, I don't know how you did, did this because he's not in the mode of being in a platoon, going on deployment, being in a platoon, going on deployment. Yeah. Yep. Yep. That's so normal to us. It yep. was so normal to me. I. I didn't understand what it would be like to do something else. I didn't see any difference. Yeah, I didn't see like how different could that be? Yeah. That, that's just that's like, the way the life is. Yeah, this is the way life is. <laughs> this is the way me and all my friends, this is all we do. We go in platoons, we go on deployment. We go on platoons, we go on deployment. That's what we do. So everyone has kids, they're going on deployment. They're like, goodbye kids, we're going on deployment. Yeah. Yep. Yep. Uh, and and like, like what you're saying, Leif now looks, and he's like, man, I don't know how you just we're able to just go on freaking six month deployments, another six month deployment, another six month deployment, yeah. and freaking to the wives like they're 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 having to hold down the fort. Freaking and big it's, age. It's, it's a rough tour. Yeah, for, my wife was you know at home with three kids and just holding it down, right, and yeah. just not ever asking me a damn thing. You know, she didn't even barely knew, you know, what I look like anymore after a while. She was just yeah, like, yo, yeah, where's my paycheck, son? <laughs> <laughs> um, but it's hard, you know, and it's it's it can be very hard. Um, you, and, and it pays, you, you, the family, usually the one with, uh, that, that pays the biggest toll, oh. because then uh, it does, the, the, the divorce ratio is just incredible. It's 90%. The, because there is no way to hold the marriage and, and family when you're constantly gone you, and uh, come back just for a little and gone and gone and gone. Yep. It's, it's so, definitely very brutal uh, for family lifestyle, life. Yeah. And the the guys in the teams myself included like if you have to choose between the teams and the family you choose the family i'm sorry you choose the teams you're like you're like oh we got you know your daughter's got a recital tonight yeah cool but i've got to go do this training mission yeah oh your your son's got his first freaking wrestling match yeah i've got a night hit down and whatever and see that's just the way it goes it's not like you can go and say well you know i will skip this training or i'm not going to go with you guys because i have my kid my kid has something to do that's that's something that uh we know we accepted it, yeah. and uh, I, I hope maybe people understand and give us a little bit of leeway that we are less than perfect fathers uh, and husbands when it happens. I mean, I mean by not being there where we need to be there, but uh, you know this is the way uh, the uh, goes in the school teams, and this is the some is that sacrifice is needed because we need to protect America mm-hmm. and our citizens to live safe, and this is why you know Jack. Uh, Sometimes what I like to do now is I go sometimes on the street or to the park. I sit down and I watch these people. Mm-hmm. I just look at them. And they have like careless, they think nothing about the war, nothing about what's going on. They just in love, you know, <clears throat> there's a couple going on and kissing and, and, and talking. There's older people, couple walking and, and talking. And it makes me feel so good because it tells me that we do good job to protect these people, that they don't have to look over their shoulders. They don't have to look into uh, for, for, for being unsafe, uh, or being uh, the, our country being over, uh, destroyed by somebody. So so it, it makes me feel really good. You know, I was just like, yes, that's, mm-hmm. that's, I was part of it. So part of that protective segment of society that these people can leave and don't have to worry about the war, about anything else. And this is how it's supposed to be. Yep. This is how society is supposed to live, that with, without fear for the war. Yeah, and, and even right now with no war going on, what we just talked about, there's 
people in the military right now that are missing everything with their family because they're on deployment somewhere. There's no war going on, but they're still putting stress on their family. They're still missing their kids' birthdays. They're still missing the graduations. That's what that's what they're doing right now. There's no war going on right now, but that's what's happening. But, but there's no war going on because these people are there exactly. guarding us, including myself now in my family since yep. I'm no longer with the military. But we, yeah, we sympathize with these families and with these guys. Yeah, it is. Uh, it is definitely to to think about that bubble of protection when you're at the park yeah. watching these people and they don't even think about it. Yeah, and but it makes me feel good. Yeah, you know, be mad about really it. Enjoy, be yeah. like, you're cool. Yeah, yeah. Good I mean, I, I really enjoy that. You know, going to the stores, go to the mall where people like really enjoy their lives. I say, this is what we provide that safety. That this so. So they can do that. Mm-hmm. Uh, our citizens can, because there's violent people standing and guarding their lifestyle, our lifestyle, and and, and the way that America is. So mm-hmm. it really makes me feel good. It's a good thing. So when when you were scheduled to go to Puerto Rico, when did September 11th happen? Where were you? Uh, I was in the quarter deck of SEAL Team Two, and this is when. Uh, I w- actually, I was working out. I was in the gym. And that was SEAL Team 2, SEAL Team 2, SEAL Team 4. I was at, no, that was, I was still SEAL Team 2 quarter deck and I SEAL 2 gym. I was, we were working out. And somebody's coming out to the gym and say, hey, just airplane run into the, into the building in New York. So the comments like, yeah, so what the fucking idiot. Some just, just, just small. Mm-hmm. Everybody thought it was a small plane. Yeah. And then say that somebody else came in and say, dude, this is a commercial airplane that just crashed in the building. So that was like, oh, that's not good. So then we all go to quarter deck and just watch what's happening Happening this first time it's building. And then we see another, that, that's as it happens, we see another plane flying to it. So there was like right away, mm-hmm. that's not the accident. We are the new, so we'll be deploying, we knew we'll be, we'll be kicking us. How, and so then you go to, you go to Puerto Rico um, on deployment, and um, yeah, on the east coast, nobody was deploying it to yeah. the war. There was west coast platoons deployed, and I remember. So we are, you know, like team guys, we're aggressive. We want to go to war. Everybody like, damn, you know, we are. I wish we were on the west coast. I wish we were there. You know, I wish we could go, and all of us. But then, like in the three months into deployment, you know, I've been called by chief, and say, hey. Uh, you have orders to go to Baghdad. You'll go to Iraq, uh, and you'll help. You know the platoons, the SEAL platoons that are there. You start working with them and coordinating the the, the our missions with uh, Polish Special Forces Grom. And I didn't know what the Grom was at the mm-hmm. time. And uh, so I packed my shit and uh, flew to Baghdad. So there was like in the I think in the half of the deployment then the, then then I was sent there, and I have to say it here too um, as there's a chief Baggett, uh, I can say his name. I ask him mm-hmm. about it if I can. So I owe this guy a lot too. I mean, there was where I was all kinds of troubles by the time you know oh, he tried to kill this guy, tried to do this, tried to do that. So um, he was the chief actually who stepped in and say, look. I'm going to help you, and this is what's going to happen. And this, and he actually took me under his wings, and he straightened my life. Mm-hmm. And uh, and then he sent me off to war. So, <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, I mean, it was great. I mean, I always will be grateful for him, and he'll be deep in my. He always he'll be in my heart, especially that you know under his, uh, uh, I, I was under his leadership that 
he sent me to war. Mm-hmm. So yeah, I was I was I was I was happy. Um, you fly over there, a civilian plane. You say from there, I was taken to Seal Compound Camp Posey, where I quickly acclimated to and got to work for the. F- for those first three months in Iraq, I didn't hear from my commanders in Little Creek once. I figured they were busy, so chose not to bother them. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. I was, like, I was like, you know, you're busy, you do this stuff, so why would you bother yourself calling somewhere there? It's like, then by the chance they might say, enough is enough. Because I'm supposed to be there for three months mm-hmm. only. So basically, it would be six months deployment and come back. But three months pass, like nobody calls. I say, right on, you know. Like I'm not saying anything. I call Rob O'Neill sometimes and say, hey, Rob, I'm still here. First, I was saying, just tell my command I'm still here. But after three months, like, hey, I'm still here. Just, just don't tell anybody. Yeah. <laughs> uh, you say, my job was to help coordinate missions and facilitate communication between SEAL teams and Polish special forces using my. Polish and English language skills to do so. My commanders were wary about sending me on direct action missions incorporating the Grom assault element structure. They were worried about my safety. I refused to stay back and asked to be allowed to join the Grom assault during direct action missions. Yes, that was normal. You know, there's like, we don't know these guys. Like, I didn't know much about Grom Mm -hmm. and our commanders didn't know much either. So now put me under the command of uh, foreign force. And, and risk, uh, you know, we could die, mm-hmm. we could be killed during these missions, right? So um, they they were like, they were very protective of me. They didn't want me to participate w- uh, in assaults with the element they did not understand very well, didn't know. But, you know, when they go my way, I just like, look, I couldn't respect myself. I cannot just sit and watch it and not to be with them. So if I need to work with them, I need to be part of them. And eventually they did a couple of missions that, yeah, okay, that's like, go ahead and see and report what's back. And these guys are good. I mean, these guys yeah, are the pros. Pros, yeah. Yeah, so like the, after that, there was like no issue whatsoever. And, you know, we blend so much that that sometimes it was hard to tell who is who. And there's quite often I had those calls. The Fontrago is the is our guy or this is a, is a grom guy. I said like, I don't even know myself. They look the same. And then I just like came closer. Yeah, that's a grom guy. You know, so or this this our guy. So yeah, they were good. It's, they were fast. It's funny if you think fast forward a couple of years and, and seals were out operating with random freaking Iraqi soldiers that had rusty AK-47s and didn't speak English yeah, or didn't. Yeah didn't freak know their left from right you know what i mean like yeah. and oh, here wow. we were worried about sending you with them like a tier freaking one element of yeah. awesome operators from poland but at the time we didn't know yeah, exactly much about them so that's that's where i where i came in finally we started learning about them and actually we we learned a lot of stuff from them and i brought a lot of things to the teams that i learned from these guys too so uh, that's that was like that was for me it was impressive um, yeah, some of these missions, I think one of our missions that when we remember, we, we snatched those Syrian uh, 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 terrorists from the hotel oh, yeah. in Fallujah when the Fallujah was evacuated, yeah. like nobody yeah. was going to Fallujah. Yeah. Just uh, They were just sending us to just clean that spot or that spot. Yeah. And it was the hotel. Yeah. So that was like, I remember, so <laughs> so we were breaching like every door. It's the hotel, yeah. so we breach every door. So there's that, that buses everywhere. And the end of it, we gathered them, you know, and the, in the, in the, in the uh, the hallway up there, on the I think it was the third floor, and uh, and then so everybody grabs one, one of these terrorists, and so I grab mine, 
And that motherfucker didn't want to go. I mean, that was like, he was falling down every single time. And every step we did, he was trying to fall down. So, you know, I'm a strong guy, but sometimes I fell with him too. And, and, and we were just like dirty in this dirty yeah, dust. Yeah, there was blood all over the yeah, floor. Yeah, blood all over the floor. So we come back to the home. I'm coming back and one of our guys said, Drago, what's happened? What's, are you okay? I say, yeah, but this motherfucker just doesn't want to go. He's resisting all he can, man. He just laying on the floor. I had to basically carry him out. She's like, dude, Drago, no, this guy just doesn't have a leg. <laughs> I was like, what? This guy doesn't have a leg. So I pick his skirt, you know, his uh -huh. skirt. I was like, fuck, he doesn't have a leg. <laughs> so that's why he was falling down. He didn't want to go. I didn't understand Arabic if he was saying something. So... Uh, that the guy just like couldn't go. I just didn't know it. So I would drag him down the stairs, falling down myself sometimes. If I knew it, you know, I would just grab him on the other side and like hop around. But I didn't know it, so we kept falling down together, and I was mad. So I was I was just using the drago language sometimes to get him back on the feet, and and you know using the drago persuasion tools and the and the drago translator to make him go. And that that worked, but we got tired. And yeah, he just didn't have a leg, unfortunately. Yeah, that was a that was kind of a crazy uh, operation. Um, but you know, this is the time also that I developed the Dragos Accelerated English Course for terrorists. Mm -hmm. So it was very effective. You know, you just you give me like five ten minutes with the terrorist, and sometimes even I envy the guy the way how well. He learned English from me. He spoke with better accent sometimes than me, the terrorist. Yeah. So that's that was. Uh, you say, you I'm say, going to patent it. You say in the book, this is where I met Tej for the first time. He's another seal. Yeah. Uh, he was attached to SEAL Team Five and had already been in Iraq for some time. We immediately became good friends, and we still are today. We were big and heavy, and because of our size, we were often designated as prisoner handlers to haul terrorists from targets. This is where I devised a kind of crash course in English for terrorists, otherwise known as Drago's Accelerated English Course for Terrorists. Oh, yeah. Working yeah, together, yeah. Tej and I applied this technique very effectively. My motto was, give me 10 minutes with a terrorist who doesn't speak English, and by the end, he'll come out speaking better English than I do. <laughs> <laughs> that's what that's what happened, yeah. And well, we, we uh, that 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 work. I remember that we had the, you know, we were with different officers. Mm -hmm. uh, so one one of the ladies officers of uh, the, the three letter agency, mm -hmm. she was uh, she, uh, this guy just no English, no English, no English. So I was like, well, ma'am, just like me and Tage, just give us like ten minutes, and uh, we kind of uh, we'll teach him English. <laughs> she didn't know what we were talking about, but she left and she told me, can I come in? I say, yeah, he's pretty proficient in English. So when she started talking to him and asking him the questions, this guy was like, me and Tage were amusing. Fuck, this guy speaks better English than I do now even. <laughs> so yeah, yeah, it, it was very effective. It worked. <laughs> um, <clears throat> here's another one. During another mission, this one to capture an Iraqi Air Force general with proven involvement in various terrorist attacks, our intelligence indicated he was hiding in a building with solid doors that would be very difficult to breach, a standard compound, a standard mission. As we approached the house in the dark, I noticed the doors were strong, but not quite as thick as I anticipated. 
I had initially calibrated charges for a stronger door. I knew if I breached the door per the original intel, the explosives would do more damage than expected and potentially kill anyone inside. Familiar with the uncertainty of urban warfare, I was prepared for the situation and immediately replaced the original breaching charge with a smaller one that would get the job done. I was unaware that while I was bre- while I was breaching the door, the target was standing on the other side of the door with his hand on the doorknob <laughs> and his ear against the door trying to listen yeah. to what was happening outside. He obviously couldn't hear me because after I detonated that smaller charge, we found the general standing in the doorway holding the doorknob. He didn't look severely injured at first, but he was obviously dazed and confused by the blast. It got him on the ground. I got him on the ground and cuffed him with zip ties, but as I clinched the plastic around his wrists, I had a hard time understanding why the general had three hands. On closer inspection, (laughs) I realized the hand had been holding onto the doorknob and had been split clean up the middle in the dark it had the effect of making it feel like the guy had 15 fingers and three hands yeah yeah. luckily the zip ties worked well as a tourniquet yeah i thought that maybe i just killed somebody there but for a second it was like there's three hands so what is the what is the other guy mm-hmm. whose hand is that and it was just just this guy yeah definitely he was listening because he was listening on the other side so i gave him an earful how do you say in english like i gave yes, him you gave an earful. earful so yeah he 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 he, he was okay uh, we hauled him out of the target but uh, yeah that was actually one of the funny things <laughs> uh, you got all kinds of interesting uh, mission post mission debriefs in here you say during this time in Iraq circa 2003 I devised new breaching charge I devised a new breaching charge that allowed us to explosively breach obstacles with yeah. minimal fragmentation this prevented injuries to non-combatants innocent civilians who often found themselves in the crossfire the charge was safer to use for us as well as it allowed for a smaller standoff from the explosion and less fragmentation this charge was based on a principle that was different than the standard breaching charge principles we learned in breaching school this newly devised breaching charge became widely used in the SEAL teams um, in breaching operations throughout Iraq. I also started using different tactics from those taught in breaching school. I was one of the proponents of those tactics modifications that were eventually accepted into the breaching curriculum. Additionally, I created a database containing all the pertinent information for each breach operation. I consider these safer breaching charges and tactics my biggest contribution to the SEAL teams. After I returned from this deployment, I was ordered to meet with Tier 1 SEAL Team Breachers and brief them on all this new information. It was a great honor. Yes, that was the time that we uh, we did injure people to the breach on target very often or even more. And something has to be done because uh, the breaching, uh, the, explosive, the, the entry method with explosives was very much safer for us because it stunned people inside and we were able actually to, to dominate the room, dominate the, the, the target before they kind of came to their senses. So that was great. But again, the, 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 the old type of charges that we're using, we find out in Iraq, I cannot go into details here, but were ineffective. They either bounce off the, you know, the, the Iraqi don't have a, Iraqis don't have a standard doors. Mm-hmm. So you can find the steel doors in the same building, the same type of building, and you can find also plywood doors. Mm-hmm. And the doors can open both ways too. So there's like, it's crazy. there's no standard like right. here in the United States. So it seems like all the charges were geared up to our standard, to the US standard, and that didn't work well. They either bounce off the walls, bounce off the door, or just did so much damage that injured people inside. And remember, we were actually dealing with um, we we're dealing with the, with the terrorists, with the bandits that were had no scruples to put kids and children in the front rooms. So when most of the time when we we're breaching the doors, coming the doors, we were st- we were actually 
stepping the room full of children and women and, and, and these terrorist bad guys behind them. So that was, uh, that was my concern. And we had to do something. So these charges, were, I cannot go into details, or the different principles. It allowed us basically bridge from the feet from the door. And it was so much more expensive. It didn't care. It didn't matter if there was the, there were metal door, wooden door, or, or whatever door there were. Mm-hmm. We were able to, uh, to, to, to enter the target fairly safely. So the, 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 the first mission that I described, the, the, the first pages that I described, these charges, if I use our standard charges, I would kill myself with it, oh, yeah. most likely. So, uh, so the, this thing, knowing these charges, knowing that the, the 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 targets, the being so familiar with Iraq and the, their building uh, uh, and the, their constructions of their buildings, doors, it helped me to just create this charge that it would become like when you guys came in. I remember I came to Bahrain. I brief you on these new yep. charges, a new way of uh, of of of. of of doing this because the way we were doing till this time was very dangerous. I mean, we had we had the guys without. We still have guys without hands or mm-hmm. fingers because of the this type of methods that uh, I discarded and uh, and we abandoned that. Yeah, no, we started using the different things. Big improvement um, for sure. Um, you also say this. It was while working in Iraq as an NSW lead breacher that I began to really notice the impact of close proximity explosions from the breaching charges. I started to notice some memory issues, problems with my vision and balance issues. This didn't scare me as much as it made me very aware of what I was doing. I made it a point to be extremely focused during mission so I wouldn't forget or mistake anything after. So you're just eating freaking breaching charges yeah, on but a regular the, basis. And uh, some of our breaches, they knew about our guys, like and the Polish guys, they knew that some problems that I have. But I forbid them to say anything because that would mean me being pulled out of the theater and I didn't want to go back. I mean, by this time, I became so customized. I've been so, for being so long time in, in, in combat there and doing that stuff, I just fell at home. And there was like getting me out of the home somewhere else and throwing me into unknown place. You know, this is something that I think you had the same thing. There had to be the feeling that eventually you become so immersed into that situation there in the combat that the what happens in the home, the safe America, the great you know malls, stores, people walking around, kissing each other and holding hands. It become like a fairy tale. It becomes so unreal. Like now we can think about some science fiction things, right? So uh, you, you can think about it, but just like it's there. It's like uh, in it's like in Vietnam movies when they say, "Oh, you're you're going back to the world," as if it's another place. Yeah, like it's some other thing. And We're it, not in the world where this is something else. Yeah, for me. That, that world up there was a fairy tale. It became this way. The, the, the home became there. And I felt needed up there. I felt useful. I felt I was doing something for America. So that, for me, was very important. And, and, and you almost forget that this is not normal. The normal life is there in America, mm-hmm. but became like a fairy, like a dream, you know, like a fairy tale. Sometimes when I was going to sleep, I was thinking about it, and I was thinking, like, th- this is, uh, while falling asleep, like, this is such a nice place up there, you know, such a, such a thing, like, a, again, fairy tale. Yeah, I mean, the, the way you put it in the book, you say, life in America seemed distant and almost unreal. The yeah. real was here, in Baghdad, in combat, and I loved it. 
Yes, that was that that was, that was me. This is why uh, you know we we all there is no no none of us there is no one there is no seal that haven't been injured this or the other way in Baghdad, including yourself, and you know it. Sometimes we don't tell it, and I didn't want to admit it for a long time. But yes, that's eventually that didn't happen right away. I, I was already having these problems in Baghdad that I couldn't read because I read the paragraph and I forgot what I read. I, I didn't remember the beginning of the paragraph, so it didn't make any sense for me. I couldn't make sense out of what I read. And that's kind of was already a little bit alarming to me, but I figured out that this is because the lightning, because you know, the tents, were leaving the tents, the lights were like scars, it was not really good, it was like always dim. So yeah. you get used to it, and I, I thought it was just because of that. Yeah, and I mean, but, it's so obvious now that we understand all the TBI. Yeah, we didn't know at the time. We just didn't know. And, um, you know, when I, when, when, I, when I eventually came out of Iraq, uh, when I became, uh, so I got the orders to be a breaching instructor. Mm -hmm. And at, by this time, I already knew that something is wrong with me. I couldn't any explosion, uh, any any even shot fired next to my head, Eesh. was causing me nause, being nauseated and 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 losing balance. So um, I I call uh, Chief I can he's passed away Chief Berenger, and so he was he was in Iraq with me with us, yeah. and then uh, so he was the uh, he was the detailer. I say freaking great guy, yes, freaking outstanding. Yes, guy. rest in peace. Mm -hmm. And uh, I asked him, please help me because I, I, I these orders to be breaching instructors will kill me. I just need to send me somewhere. I don't need to be around explosions and shots. So he. It was hard to do it, you know, just change the orders on the fly. But uh, in a short time, he changed my orders to go to BATS, to uh, mm -hmm. be SEAL instructor. Mm -hmm. And that, that kind of saved me. And it, but this is when I started learning about TBI. Right. Because when I came up there, like every two o'clock, every time, two o'clock in the morning, I was waking up wide awake. I could sleep the best, dreaming the best, best stuff and just wake up two o'clock say, fuck, why do I wake up? No, I had to go back to sleep. And then I couldn't fall asleep. So... You know, talking to to you know, what what do you do? Just go to the other guys, right? The team guys. Hey, this is what's happening to me. Like two o'clock, I'm fucking wake, awake. So we think we try to figure out what the fuck is going on, and the consensus was that fucking apartment is haunted. There must be a ghost up there, <laughs> and that's I didn't know I was scared of ghosts. I was like, fuck, that scared the shit out of me. I say I'm moving out. <laughs> so I was looking for another apartment. I could apartment I couldn't find because was the uh, I couldn't find it because uh, you know it was very expensive. That was like a really good apartment, but I was scared of that ghost. So um, so you know, I was dreading f for a long time just going back at night by myself to this apartment and facing the ghost. But it was not a ghost. It was just brain damage that and TBI, which we didn't know at the time. Yeah. But you know, with the, with the, the problem with team guys is too. There's like, fuck, some, my wife or somebody, my neighbor's telling me I am fucked up. So what do you do? You talk to the guy. Hey, you know, my wife tells me I'm fucked up. I'm I'm this. You know, my neighbor fucking yells at me and says I'm fucked up. Am I fucked up? No. You just like me. No, we're not fucked up. You're not bad. You're good. You're good. Well, he's fucked up like I am because mm -hmm. he went through the same shit. You know, he has the same 
issues, same problems. So for him, I look normal. He looked normal for me. So I ask for assurance about myself with the guy. So we both are fucked up. I was like, no, we good. You know, so this goes. And this is the problem till today. I think sometimes with the guys, like, am I, do I have a problem? Do you think to you? Do I have a problem? Do you think? No, just like me. But they both have a problem because they have both went through the same thing. Right, right. So that was like very educational for me. Eventually, we learned that this, that this is TBI. This yeah. is not the uh, uh, not not a ghost. It's not a ghost. <laughs> yeah, it's your your first your first deployment over there was almost a year long. Yeah, and um, <laughs> you freaking come home, and you get to the airport. There's no one to pick you up, and you, you know you. Oh, <laughs> you call and you're like, "Hey, I'm Drago. I just came back from Iraq. I need a ride." And the guy says, "Dude, we don't have anyone in Iraq because you because that team yeah. wasn't deployed to Iraq. Well, there was no West Coast, no no East Coast deployed at the time. We we don't have anyone, buddy, in Iraq. What action is that anyway? Stop calling or I'll call the police." Yeah, yeah, yeah. That was because they didn't know. Uh, well, this is how I came back from Iraq. I would stay there longer, but you know, when I called for my night vision, there was like the guy was like. Because my night vision broke out, and and like you guys didn't have enough. I mean, this like Drago, we can help you, but we cannot do that all the time. So I called up there, and it's like, where, where are you at? I'm like, I'm in Iraq, in Baghdad. But the, the the first the first response was the new guy, I think, in the armory. So he thought basically that the guy calling from Baghdad, from Iraq, who wants to send the, he wants night vision to send to Baghdad, to Iraq, and the guy don't speak English. <laughs> so, 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 so like, what if, so, so like, he was like cracking jokes. I said, do you want a suicidal bomb vest with it too, maybe? And just, because, you know, there was the suicidal attacks at the time, uh, quite common. And uh, so I just told him like, you motherfucker, I'm going to kill you when I get up there. Get me Master Chief online. So Master Chief comes up. Oh yeah, Drago. Good to see, dude, to hear from you. You know how's everything going? I say great. Uh, where are you at right now? And in Baghdad. Oh, oh yeah, yeah, yeah. That's right. How long have you been there? Like a year almost here in the, on deployment. Oh, okay. Hold on, say let me get Exo online. I think you need to come back. So so I couldn't win all my more time anymore. And they mm. yeah they I was I was sent back. I went home, and. Uh, it's and crazy. You're, you're, so you get home. Yeah, and they, they, for a day, they didn't pick me up at the airport, too. So my, actually, my, my first night after year-long deployment, uh, almost year-long deployment, I spent in the IHOP. I, I hope. And I don't mind because I love IHOP. I always <laughs> love the pancakes. They remind me like my mom used to make them. And the cheese blinds. It's like my favorite. Cheese blinds, I love it. So when I show up up there, this guy in the airport say like, hey, you know what? Can you uh, do some help? There's like a few of guys came... But these guys were picked up by either their wives or the, the command vehicles. So I said, no, just help me carry it to the car. But the truck is picking me up. And, uh, and it's got, it, was, it was November, so it was very cold. And uh, so I went up there. It's just like it's afternoon. So I just wait. The truck will show up any time. And as I wait, I fell asleep because it was like fucking, I was tired. I didn't realize how tired I was. So I fell asleep, and then I hear zzz, you know, this, this this fucking light buzzing above my head. It's getting dark. These lights came up on the lot up there next to the airport. It is Saturday, so I think everything is shut down. There's no more flights, so they shut the airport down. And I'm like fucking going hypothermia. I have bombs, grenades, and bomb and and everything with me on the curb, 
sleeping like there's nobody there to pick me up. So I was like, what do I do with the bombs? So uh, with the guns and all that stuff. So I tried to knock on the door and they didn't, nobody shows up. So I say, fuck, they left. So I'm going to go, I have to get inside to get a phone. My phone is dead. It expired anyway, so being a year away, that, that they shut my account. So I picked this, that concrete casement for the, what you throw the, the, the can inside. Mm-hmm. It's actually pretty heavy, so that doesn't get sway in the wind. So I pick it up, I want to heave it into the glass because I, you know, I, I just need to save my life now, save myself because I'm freezing. And, and I'm like really freezing. <laughs> And this guy shut up, so like, no, no, no. Uh, so I say, she opened the door, say, well, what's going on? I say, I need the, I'm like shaking, I, I need my, I need the phone, I need to call, I cannot even say it right. So eventually, I, I didn't even know the number. My mind was so messed up, I didn't remember the phone number. We had to, he had to find me the number to group two. The, the SEAL team was already somewhere else. And so I called the group too, and this is what you say, like these guys say, like, we don't have anybody there, fuck off, just go. Basically, what they, they didn't say fuck off, but they say like, no, just leave us alone. But then I said, like, call the OD. I started using the lingo that, you know, they like, got their attention, say, OD, they got this, this. Okay, hold on a second, and I can hear the shuffle of the papers. And whoever was OD at the time say, Drago, I am so sorry. We, I remember seeing the message somewhere, but we totally overlooked it, overlooked it. We are sending track right now. Just hang on there. We are sorry. And, and you know, I don't have a, I understand that. There was the time when we changed how we do the business. Mm-hmm. I don't want to go into details yeah, here. Yeah. But but so the, 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 the team was gone. They were doing something else. There was a few guys left here and there. And uh, there was nobody in the SEAL team at the time. And, 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 and so, you know, there's like, they have so much shit going on, but especially going to war that, you know, Things like that will happen, will fall through the cracks. And uh, so like, it was no big deal. I think now I think it's funny, but that time I was really pissed. So so they came in and picked me up. And yeah. yeah. Then, and then and then they don't let you stay at the team. Oh, yeah, because so, I like, have no place to go, right? Because I didn't have a family at the time. The girlfriend that I left supposedly for three months only uh, was already mad after six months. But after a year, she finally said, quit. She just... She fired me, so uh, so I, I didn't have a place to go. She just told me like, when you come back, just let me know. I will put the track, the, your jeep and your cruise box. That's all I had, and your cruise box on the parking lot. You can and key inside. You can pick it up. I say okay, but my I couldn't call. My phone was dead. My uh, I didn't even remember her number because my my, my brain was so messed up. And uh, yeah, so they, they drove me to the teams, they took my guns, everything, and now just by thinking, I just snuck the key from the quarter deck. Because we didn't have people on quarter deck by this time. Mm-hmm. So there was, uh, so I snuck the key, put my packet, and, and because then I said, well, later on I will go eat something or, uh, but so we were out, the, the guy, the tech, there was not the seal. I have a lot of respect for him. He's a good guy. I really like him. So he shuts the door and I say, hey, what's the code? I need to get back in. He said, dude, no, we cannot give you the, I don't give you the code. It's weekend and the UCLs must not sleep, cannot sleep anymore in the cages. Because there's a bunch of us usually sleeping in the cages. There's so many SEALs without families, yeah. having no home. So they, they just like, they, they stay in the cage, they go sleep in the cage, the cage is mm-hmm. big. And then we have a like, the, the way like we have a free TV, free cable TV, Free, the free, free toilet paper. Yeah, free toilet paper, everything. <laughs> so you know, some people didn't mind it, and I didn't mind it either. So I wanted to stay, but he just shut the door and took off. I'm like, fuck. 
So I used that key. I went through like three or four tracks, parked in front of the Team 4, found one that it worked. So I drove myself. I said, I need to go and uh, get something to eat. I'm hungry. So I went to the bank. It was like $25 or $30 left. I pulled whatever I could, $20. What can you eat for $20? Really not that much, but there's my favorite IHOP. <laughs> so I said, okay, so now so I'm going to IHOP. So I went to IHOP up there and... And got the coffee, got the cheese beans. I ate and just like down on me, how I'm home, I'm safe. So I was like, the thing I remember, I'm far, I fall asleep, and it's like, like, hey, you okay? It was the the security guard, like the rent a cop type mm-hmm. guy. I said, I'm okay. Uh, he says, uh, I, I told him that can I stay here a little bit longer because like, like I'm, I'm I'll, I'll buy some more food just to so I can relax and rest a little bit. And I was still like days, like, he just woke me up, I was like, he looks at me, yeah, the bitch kicked you out, did she? <laughs> I, was, I was like, like, what is he, fuck, what the fuck he's talking about? But then I was like, oh, yeah, yeah, she did. He said, okay, you can stay here, but just don't, don't cause any problems, just stay here as you need and, you know, it's okay. So I fell back asleep. So my first first night was in Nihop. <laughs> Welcome like, back to America, yeah. damn. Well, you know, things like that will happen from time to time. That was not intentional. Yeah. Uh, fast forward a little bit in the book. I couldn't find myself in Virginia Beach. I didn't have family there anymore. When the opportunity came to go back to Iraq, I was excited and jumped on the opportunity. Yeah. I was missing Iraq. I was missing combat. I missed the work I had been doing there. I was told I could join them for a couple of weeks once again, and once again as act a, as a liaison with the Grom. I'd be helping them out since the new team hadn't had any previous experience working with Polish Special Forces. Two weeks went by, and I was expecting the call from the command to return f- to Virginia. It never came. Two weeks became four weeks. Four weeks became four months. After yeah. <laughs> my first extras long stint in Iraq, say the saying went, "No news from Drago is good news." So you just basically did it again. Uh, yeah, and so that well, and, and and again, the call came not from me but from my team. Say, Drago, you need to come back. We're mm-hmm. you need to join the platoon. We are deploying in like very short time, and uh, it's our turn. So you need to come back. And I went back and came back again to Iraq with my SEAL platoon. And, the, and that's your sixth deployment to Baghdad yeah. or to Iraq, um, or I guess total, your sixth total, deployment, total, sixth total, deployment yeah. total. Yeah. And you say, by my last deployment in 2005, things had changed considerably since I'd first come to Iraq in 2003. In the wake of 9-11, the bureaucracy had intensified and the war was now being fought largely by the Army and Marines. Even our pre-raid briefs when we received last-minute intel reviewed and reviewed dossiers, maps, and recon photos had become longer and longer. This wasn't the old days of maps on the walls and physical files either. Everything was digital now. We called it death by PowerPoint. Yeah. It seemed like we were briefing for the sake of the brief in order to brief more. Yeah. If that sounds confusing, trust me, it was. I still believe to this day that it was an Army requirement that we were being forced to adopt. Then the missions became scarcer and we were no longer assaulting targets every night. Actually, this this is what happened because the the briefing that the the, the, prepar- the mission preparation took so long. It was by the yeah. by the army standard that the, by the time we we, we complete the, the the preparations, the target was gone. Yeah. So we basically were hitting empty houses or didn't do anything. I and remember uh, I had uh, oh sorry no I no no the, 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 so that was just just that yeah I I mean just to go to the other end of the spectrum. Um, my commanding officer at SEAL Team 7, like after we'd been there for a little while, he he came down to the camp and talked to me and he goes, hey, 
when I'm briefing up the chain of command, how much time do you need to prepare <laughs> for a mission? Like, how much time do you need? We and, went uh, quick. And I said, uh, I said, well, sir, 15 minutes. And, and he actually, he, he thought I was kidding. And I was like, he goes, he goes no, but I mean, like, seriously. And I go, no, 15 minutes. We, we, we've launched in 15 minutes. I said, I need the, the location of the target and I need the frequency of the conventional forces that are that own that battle space and give me the satcom link because so we were so in. proficient we yeah. did so many times that it is not there's like really no brainer mm-hmm. most of the time those missions were not as complicated as as some people want to believe yeah. and we did launch in 15 minutes on yeah. on, on yes. a bunch of operations yes 15 minutes load up the trucks Th- there were times that we can remember we came back from the mission yeah say hey we have another target here so we are like about to just drop our kit off and like oh shit let's keep up let's go back we we did one as a matter of fact i remember when we came back i said okay hey from now on when we roll out put your actual put your military uniform on because i said hey we're launching in seven minutes and guys were like i was looking up at turret gunners they were wearing like random clothes with their body armor on and i was like all right that's not cool bro (laughs) we can't do that again take an extra two minutes to put your actual military uniform on yeah yeah shirts or kinds of like coral shirts still with the corals that was funny but yeah that that happened because but they were so fast we were so efficient and we did so many times that we really could pull it off, yep. but then we were kept slowing down. No, this is not by the book. This is how we need to spend time on this. And then I found myself, I, I was watching, and the Grom was watching with very amusement. They never did that. They were like watching, what the fuck is going on, Drago, up there? So we, we, we first we we brief, we, we, then we rehearse, then we rehearse again uh, to the same thing. And then we brief, just so people can listen to the brief and improve the brief, mm. make the better brief. And then we go with the brief, <laughs> once there was a brief to brief and then was listen to the brief and the brief again, yeah. that was going to the to the army guys to, to, to approve, yeah. to army command. So that took us a long time. And that was so bad that I remember, uh, you, you, you seen part of this debacle that there was a two, another unit, uh, Grom unit showed up working with Green Berets, great guys, I have a lot of respect for them. But the, 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 the cycle was so slow that these guys got really finally pissed off and say like, they came and say, hey, we need to get us out from, I want to work with sales. We want to, I want my unit to work with sales because we don't do any missions there. Mm-hmm. And it takes so long time to plan. And uh, that caused kind of a little bit friction between us and Green Berets. Uh, I had to explain to Grom that that's not like, it's not up to us. Mm-hmm. We can't make these decisions. And they were upset. They were like, genuinely upset. We want to go and kill these bad guys. And we can't mm-hmm. because the, that briefing, the, all this, this this process goes so long and, and, and so precise. I'm not saying that this is wrong. Mm-hmm. I'm just saying that it just took so long time that a lot of these targets got away. Yeah, and, and this it, is what bothers me till today. This is something that people some ask ask me if I have any regrets from Iraq. I I, I do have one that bothers me that 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 it it some very often I reflect on it. Is we didn't kill enough of these bastards. There's too many of these bastards just got away. And the, the reason it bothers me is because if if we did get maybe then one son of the bitch, 
what some of our brothers would come back later on they wouldn't be killed later on by the son of the bitch so that that weighs on me and even now sometimes I, I, I sit down and like almost every night I have these things that I think every every son of the bitch that got away that I wish I could kill so I, I, I think we all have this almost like a guilt that we, 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 maybe we could do more so some of our brothers would come home safely yeah, no, no, no doubt about it you, you don't know yeah that's the only regret I have <sighs> yeah but you know I think about this like when I was yeah uh, so yeah, I came back and I asked later to to go to bats because every every shot like from the gun around my head or close my close proximity caused me to be nauseated mm-hmm. and uh, and sometimes I'll lose the balance I was like for wobbly <laughs> for mm-hmm. one so yeah I mean that's nothing unusual because quite few of our guys suffer from that yeah so that's that's what um you know you you, you go into this what you what you were talking about earlier where um you came back they gave you orders which was smart they're thinking hey let's let this guy go be a breaching instructor because he's done hundreds and hundreds yeah. of real world breaches he developed this breaching protocol he developed breaching charges like but then they didn't know about the medical things you were facing. You called. You I called was hiding them. it for a while, but yeah, yeah. Then eventually, I confessed to him to to Berger. Yeah, that I, so, something's wrong with me. And luckily, Berger is a freaking awesome guy yeah. who has figured things out how to take care of the guys and how to take yeah. care of you. Yeah. And um, so you end up going to Buds. What, yes. what job did you have at Buds? Were you a second phase instructor? I was second phase instructor. So <laughs> yeah, that was pretty cool. I mean, it was funny. I think that the most difficult part for me. Was to answer like the question how how would you describe your work in SEAL teams? What are SEAL teams? You know, and the, uh, I have I, I kind of struggle to because you can talk about these jobs about SEAL teams forever. So make it short. I said like you know think about like government customer service. You know, government the, 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 but my customers were always wrong, and I got to kill them. So this is something that <laughs> customers always wrong. <laughs> yeah, you know our, our customers were always wrong. Yes, they were. So I think there was the, like they never bothered me after. You know, like they, they laughed at it, but they just, I didn't have to make those long answers. Uh, when you're at Buds, what would what did you learn? What did you see? Uh, as a buds instructor, that was like new knowledge to you. Obviously, you learned that everything is structured and organized, which you didn't know when you were going through buds. Right. That's so the, one of these are this uh, explained all the structure, the safety mechanisms that are transparent to the student. But what I learned the most, I think, what struck me the most is the how was the extremely humbling experience to me to go up there and see it, and. For me, when I was going through bats as a student, it was just kicking the balls, kicking the ass, and just spit you out, ready for real SEAL training, right? So when you go up there as an instructor and you have to dish out these punishments, you have to do all this stuff. And it is almost like I couldn't believe that it is possible to make through it. Almost thinking like these people have balls. I mean, to go to the shed and how can this kid, this 20 years, 19 years old, 25 years old kid not quit from uh, after this? Uh, you know, most of them quit, but there's those guys who didn't. Holy shit, this is like new fount of respect. Mm-hmm for these kids, these guys. You just can't make them quit. 
you, you just cannot. Did you did you work any hell weeks? I did, yeah, sometimes. Because my, I was second phase, but I was assigned to uh, sometimes to support the hell week because the hell week goes 24-7. Mm-hmm. There is no break. Yeah. There's always evolutions going on. The students don't sleep. So, yeah, I, I was supplementing sometimes these yeah. guys. I kind of wish I got to watch some hell weeks or work some hell weeks because I never did. And the only hell week I saw was mine. Yeah, you know, oh, which I, you know, was just like you're like, what the hell's going on? It is incredible, you know. And then you can see that the 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 at the end of it, these people like they don't even sometimes know what's going on around them. They know what's going on around them, but they are unable to quit, even if they wanted to, because their brain is already set. I'm going to make it. I'm going to go through it. So some of them have to be actually pulled out of training if there are serious injuries and there are such sometimes so this is why those inspections are going on this is why we don't allow uh, 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 people to to injure themselves mm-hmm. you know there are some who hide it who lie and they, those are those people who get usually injured you, you, if you are dishonest you do not follow the instructions to report yourself injuries if you don't if you hide from the doctor stuff you get injured and this is why we have to be, this is why the inspections are the way they are. Mm-hmm. Every night you are in, inspected and make sure that you are still good to go. But Hell Week is uh, it's just what it is. It's not the most difficult part of BATS. Uh, I think the, the, the second phase is very technical, mm-hmm. where you, most of the people actually fell out. Uh, and the third phase is like real Hell Week on steroids. That's the, reason, <laughs> the way I experienced that. Now, at this point, you are finally kind of settling down a little bit. Um, you start to think about maybe you got to find the other part of the American dream here, you know, like settle Life down, build find a family. family. Yeah. Um, you, you say, with the help of some of my SEAL brothers, I turned to online dating services to try and find the woman of my dreams. Uh, yeah, because I was trying to uh, find somebody in San Diego. And actually, I, I can say that Joel, brother, peace, respect. Uh, so he was trying to hook me up and, and help me out find some, some girl, but every time it came out to, it was like, not good, you know? It's like, the guy don't speak English, looks scary, and it looks, <laughs> the, the, uh, so what, that, that, did, that did not, not work. Not exactly and the my Romeo clothes, they were looking for. <laughs> yeah, and the clothes, you know, like, I never feel the need, after Iraq, I spent so much time there wearing just the camis. I didn't feel the need to wear nice clothes. Nice clothes for me, was jeans and uh, black t-shirt. But if, when I wanted to be fancy, I wore black jeans and white t-shirt or something like that. Mm-hmm. And that was it. So finally, Joel said, dude, you can, you, you, you're not finding anybody like this. You cannot go like this and, and people and expect the girls will fall for you. We're going shopping. So he took me to the store. We start buying stuff. And, and uh, he's like, the things that I pick up, he's like, dude, this is like 1970s. <laughs> Don't wear that. So he picked the clothes for me and everything. And when we came back from this trip, I'm still grateful for him. I thought there is no girl able to resist me uh, from then on. But, you know, I I think I already burned myself out in San Diego. So I decided to go and find some. I was advised to go online and find somebody online. That was disaster, too, for a long time. And I, I can talk about it. I, I wrote about in the book. But eventually I made, made yeah. up to Rachel. So. Eventually you say uh, you, you find a girl. We emailed back and forth a couple of days. 
I was totally charmed. Her name was Rachel. She was everything I was looking for in a woman, in a partner, beautiful, witty, smart, successful in her own right. She was much younger than me, which made me a little nervous. What if she thought I was too old for her? On the advice of my teammates, I had taken a few years off my real age for the dating site. Yeah, yeah. Even then, I still barely fit her preferred age range. I, I found out later because like I didn't know it, but I was like months away from being cut off even <laughs> after I lie about my age. So How many years did you take off? I think like five. <laughs> <laughs> five or six maybe. I don't remember. Four, five, six. A lot. A lot. But, That's pretty significant. But you know, she was like way, way younger and yeah. uh, I was like, there is no way she will, f- she will, you know, want to date me or see me uh, and i'll supposedly i looked scary at the time so <laughs> and, and then you say i didn't want to risk losing her so i asked some of my seal teammates to help me write love letters to her. yeah yeah because you know i still my english is not perfect as you can hear it I, i'm until this day until this day i'm more proficient speaking with bullets than speaking with words. <laughs> so yeah, uh, who could help me? Now, my closest family mm-hmm. that was fellow sales. So whoever I could drag to it, say, can you help me? Can you correct my grammar? Can you fix this? It's like Drago, if you, if you, if you write this, you're gonna get, uh, sh- sh- she, will, she will not want to talk to you. You don't speak like this to ladies. You don't, so basically they were writing the love letters for me and I was just you know, typing it and just sending to her. And she liked it. But you know, there was only two. I could only pull that shit off for, the, for so long. So eventually, you say I met Rachel in person about two months later. It felt like an eternity. She came to visit me in San Diego. I asked a fellow seal to come with me and assist in bailing me out if Rachel turned out yeah, to be a catfish the, from the p- previous dating experiences. So yeah, I had my swim body with me, and <laughs> uh, I had her picture and a flower. The flower I kept hidden in my Jeep just in case I had to make a last minute escape. I had no reason to worry though. My teammate and I both recognized her. She came down an escalator at the San Diego airport. Holy shit, Drago, my buddy exclaimed. She's too young. Did you rob the cradle or something? How did you pull that off? I laughed and replied, you guys wrote the love letters. I lied about my age. It worked. (laughs) My buddy threw up his hands and laughing, turned around to leave. Whatever, dude, she's hot. I'm out. Now really nervous, I approached the escalator to wait for her near the bottom. When she walked up to me, I was scared out of my wits. I extended my hand to her, stiff as a board from head to toe, and muttered, Hi, I'm Thomas. Rachel looked at me with a twinkle in her eye, and she replied breezily, Thomas, it's nice to meet you, but I didn't fly all the way across the United States to shake your hand. Give me a hug. Holy shit. I melted and leaned in to give her a real Drago hug. Oh, damn. I was in love. (laughs) Yeah. Oh, yeah. at the time you say Rachel was living in Ohio. Um, for a while, you freaking were helping her out, like you know, giving her, sending money out to her. Uh, she was in changing the job at the say right. at the time when they transition time. Mm-hmm. So I figured out like I, I just can be, I can be helpful, you know, and uh, and and kind of like so she likes me more. I was I I I would do anything for her to love me. So so I was like you know, I, like. I was wooing like a, I was doing everything just to so, so so that included giving up your apartment, yes. moving into the cages like a freaking new yeah, guy at a SEAL team, and then eventually you just got sick of the cages, so you you kicked a couple of bud students out of their room and you moved into one of the bud students. <laughs> yeah, rooms. Jared, Jared Ogden, he's one of those students, and we 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 connect, we reconnected back now. And the, wait, who was it? Jared Ogden, Jared, oh, okay, Jared right, Ogden, right, right. great officer, yeah. great officer, great guy, so much respect for him but even more respect because 
you know, like he was living next door. So in the morning I get up, I, I brush my teeth, spit in the sink and stuff. And then I was running back again, inspecting his room and his yeah. in the bathroom that just and getting spit. him in trouble that for the bathroom. Uh, yeah, so he, I, I, I admire his restraint. He didn't, he didn't you know, die me out or anything. He just like took as a man. And uh, and yeah, we are friends. We are friends still today. And uh, uh. a lot of respect for this guy as an officer, but also as a student. <laughs> Uh, fast forward a little bit, you say, even as my personal life began to fall into place, I struggled to wrap my head around the fact that I would soon be leaving the Navy SEALs forever. Yeah. I began looking for jobs, trying to think of whatever career could possibly satisfy me after years in the teams. The problem with the SEAL life is it's harder to get out of than it is to get in. I know that sounds impossible given everything you've read, but you must understand how much of your life the teams occupy and for how long. For years, your SEAL teammates are everything to you, your family, your friends, your coworkers. You eat, sleep, breathe, and fight with them day in and day out. No one in the world knows you better than the, those guys do. Not only that, but they also understand what you've been through better than anyone ever will. That's true. Totally true. Rachel helped me a lot with this process. When I was put on terminal leave, meaning you were getting ready to retire, yeah. she helped me do everything from typing up my resume to teaching me how to negotiate job offers. Job offers. Never accept the first <laughs> offer they give you, she said. Rachel helped me post my resume online for my job search, and three days later I received a call from a software development firm. They asked me some basic screening questions and then invited me to come in for an interview. On my way out, Rachel reiterated, do not accept the first offer they give you. She emphasized for me to come home, we would talk about it, and then I would negotiate for terms I wanted. Naturally, I said yes to the first offer they gave me. <laughs> yeah, you know, but so I promised our listener more closely from there. I forgot to mention this whole time, and I was going to mention when you were talking about the database that you built for the breaching charges. Yeah. You're a computer guy. You're yes. a computer nerd. Yeah. You know freaking, I remember this a team too. You like new computer languages and stuff like this. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I says this, how I got that, that job. But you know what? With this, yes. So what I did, I was taking picture of every breaching charge and the door, the target before and after it. And also notes what was what charge did I use the the I don't want to go into details that there's yeah, new yeah, charges yeah, yeah. so uh, when I, so I was told that I need to go and meet with these tier one guys and uh, and I went up there and uh, talked to them I gave them all the information that I had so they were very you know they, they said thank you yeah, and yeah. I, I, I hope it helped them a lot and uh, and yeah, they they were appreciative of, yeah. that, of that stuff. I, I was very, very every charge, the size, the the the, the standoff, the everything mm-hmm. that need to be there. I was I, I was I and, and you had enough computer savvy to know how to make the Create pictures the stuff, and all yeah. the stuff. Yes. And so that's like something we always talk. I mean, I always talk about you, you know, punching people in the head and blowing shit up. But there's a whole other side to you that like is a computer programmer and has. Knows how to do all kinds of stuff like that. So you end up getting this software job. Um, yep. You say this: the military provides structure, camaraderie, and sta- stability to a lot of people who have never experienced any of those things before, and it can be extremely difficult to leave behind. In combat, I did not see anything the Navy didn't prepare me to see. I did not do anything the Navy didn't prepare me to do. I don't have any regrets for my actions in the war. There's nothing that ever bothered me about the war. On the other hand, traumatic brain injury is a different story. As a lead breacher, I was exposed to countless close proximity explosions. Some of them caused bleeding from my nose or ears. It definitely had some effect on my health, and I did have trouble sleeping as I transitioned to civilian life. I'd wake up in the middle of the night, 
at 2 or 3 a.m. In the past, when talking about with, with my na- fellow Navy SEALs, the consensus was it was ghosts. But the more information that began to come through about these problems, the more I began to realize the damage done during my time in the military was still with me. Every breach, explosion, shockwave, and concrete powder inhalation had left us with varying degrees of physical trauma. This had affected things like my memory, balance, and speech. I carried a lot of bad habits from my time in the SEALs for quite a while. Probably some of the bad habits from my earlier life too, now that I think about it. Rachel, who has always been significantly more proper than me, had to tell me on multiple occasions not to just spit out the first thought that came to my head when somebody said something stupid or not to beat up some random guy in the street just because I thought he looked at me funny. Sometimes I felt like I was taking etiquette classes. Yeah, I'm I'm, I'm fully domesticated now. (laughs) I know, you uh, use that term in here. He keeps saying she domesticated you. Well, you know me, you knew me from before. Yes. I was like... yeah, that guy. <laughs> but now, you know, I'm I'm proper. I'm uh, I'm, I'm I, I know the uh, I'm good person. Yeah. You know, and I'm, I'm a good husband. I'm good father. And uh, I was neither one before. Well, and, uh, from my perspective, you were f- an awesome person before, because I know that no matter what was going on, I knew I could count on you. Thank and you. And that was what our jobs were. And it was a different, I mean, it takes a different type of person. So do you have to maybe shed some of that, uh, shed some of that a little bit when you go and be married and all this other well, stuff? Well, Rachel beat it out from me. So uh, she, she, <laughs> she, 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 basically what she did, she, uh, she, uh, she, she fired Drago. She fired Drago and brought yeah, Thomas back. Yeah, Tom, well, Thomas back. Drago is in the cage now. So <laughs> He's in the lion cage, the tiger cage, whatever it is. Uh, I just had to read this one section. It says, my bud students shared how much they valued my perspective and what they learned from me. At the end of each phase, students were required to write a review of the phase and provide evaluations for all the instructors. One of my students commented, instructor Drago was so motivating. I can't imagine how much more motivated I would have been if I understand, understood half of what he said. <laughs> that's actually a real critique. That's, that's the part that I, I still have it. I have those critiques at home, uh, some of them. So yeah, uh, so yeah that, that's... <laughs> um, you decide you're going to ask Rachel to, to marry you. You freaking take her to our desert training facility. Uh, uh, because, I, you know, like uh, uh, the divorce, the, 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 the being away, that ruined you also financially. And uh, I was trying to, my best to kind of impress her to, you know, I, I was in love with her. We were in love with each other. So finally I say I need to pop the question about how do I do it? I start reading books about it. <laughs> go to vacations, you know, go to Cancun, go to here, Hawaii. It's like, I don't have the money. I don't even know how to do that. So I figure I'll just do what I know the best. I just, I invite her to the range, make her shoot, and I, I ask to, be, to marry me. So me and my fellow team guys, my team brothers, SEALs, devise the thing that we, we're going to go and line up the gun, every type of gun in our inventory on the range where we train SEALs. And we invite her. So he starts shooting from gun to gun to gun to gun. And the last gun will have those uh, Mark 48, <laughs> will have the, when you leave the tray to load it, because I tell her she needs to load every gun. Uh-huh. So uh, we put actually two Mark 48. So Mark 48 with the tray, so so she can kind of get used to it, uh, so she doesn't smash it. Oh, and yeah. Forgot my ring, the, the one that I, the, the ring that I secure up there. So the first forty-eight was just plain for forty-eight with the. She loaded the gun, shot the tray, shoot. She was a good shooter. I can like 
making me feel like, uh, yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so the second gun, the last gun on the line, she, so she went, she was like, she knew how to do it because she didn't the first one. She confidently opened the tray and here's there's a hanging on the ring, there's the, on the thread is a ring. And on the bolt, it says, marry me. Instead of the ball, I put a piece of paper or marry me. Yeah. So she looked, she had the tears in her eyes. Mm, me too. <laughs> and, and she said, yes. And, I, and there's actually, I have a video of it. Oh, I will no post way. on the website the, of that, uh, actually the, the video when I asked her to marry me with the guns and I have a pictures that I'll post online too. <laughs> she said, yes. Pretty epic. Um, fast forward a little bit. Rachel and I were married on August 18th, 2007. That also happens to be the date of the Battle of Thermopylae in 480 BC. And we were married in a small town that was named after the Spartan King Leonides. Yeah. I had been fascinated by the ancient Greek and Roman history for years, and these coincidences felt like a confirmation of our beautiful life ahead. We have five children together, including three from our previous marriages. Our older boys are in their 20s. Adam is happily married and has a young daughter. Blake is starting college after serving honorably as a U.S. Marine with deployments to Afghanistan, and Connor is loving life while serving in the U.S. Coast Guard. Our two little teenagers from our marriage are Grace, the little lady of the house, and Dorian, our future warrior. Yeah, Gracie rules the house. That's my my little lady, and uh, yes, she's the, she, she she's the lady. Yes, I officially retired from the U.S. Navy SEALs at the rank of Petty Officer First Class on June thirty first, two thousand eleven. I am proud of the contributions I made to the teams, and thankful for the great men I was able to serve with and learn from. And you go on to say this: I love Poland. And sometimes I still get asked if I would ever move back. And every time I say no, I'm an American now. I'm an American by choice. I'm fiercely proud of my roots, but America is where my heart belongs, where I live, and America is where I will die. Yes, that's, that's me. And you know, I, this, this book is freaking great. Um, you, you put so much stuff into perspective. And, and here's another thing. It just I have seen what happens when a totalitarian government takes control, and it's why I'm so grateful to be a proud American citizen. America is my country, and I consider myself blessed to live here. This is where I found the SEALs, who gave me a new life and a new sense of purpose. Where else but America can you show up with only a bag of clothes, barely able to speak English, and rise to the ranks of the world's greatest fighting force? America is where I found love, a renewed sense of faith, and I was able to build a family and a life for them without ever having to look over my shoulder. Only in America. There is no other country in the world where you can come and be whoever you are able to be and, and live safe, great life. And that's the life I have in America. Mm -hmm. I'm proud of my American. There is no hyphen in front of this American here. <laughs> Just American. I want to I look again, get the book. I just want to close it out with this one, one little uh, part. You say, ultimately, I believe the American dream is about more than material prosperity. It's about being able to live a safe, simple, fulfilling life and having the freedom and opportunity to pursue our individual dreams regardless of what you think or how you vote. Patriotism to me means respecting one's neighbor and loving one's family and being willing to defend both. I fought against a totalitarian government when I was younger. 
Doing so taught me to be strong and to never lose sight of what it is I'm defending. Whether it's a person, a flag, or a place, every American can love something about this country and fight to make it a better home for everyone. For me, at the end of the day, I owe everything to this country and the people in it, and I wouldn't have it any other way. That's what uh, I would like to use this opportunity here to say thank you to every American. Thank you to America for my freedom. I can only live free because of America and American people. So I would like to say thank you. And you know, very often people say thank you for your service. Thank you for what you have done for America. But people don't understand. You cannot repay freedom. How can you? So. There is so much more. There's always more, more you can do or you should do. So I, so for me, as I'll say, like you, you don't say thank you. There's me who should say thank you and who is saying thank you for my freedom. So uh, I would like to say thank you so much. Thank you for everything. Thank you for allowing me to be American, be part of this great country. Yeah, that's freaking outstanding. And there's so much more in the book. Like we didn't even touch on. You've got... You got journals from people that you knew when you were a political prisoner. Yes. You got their journals in this book. You've got you mentioned this earlier. There's documents from the show trials that yes. that some of your friends uh, went up against, and and they stood up to the to the tyrannical tyrannical yeah. governments. Um, it's it's just a freaking outstanding it's outstanding document it's a historical document it really is it's a historical document that people are going to be able to look back on well, so tell us what what you're up to now you got connect zing right yes so uh, i was heavily censored by facebook linkedin and matter of fact linkedin i had to like open this is my like third account every time i open something they shut me down and i lose all the followers so uh so, and, and twitter that they, they, they kick me out of it so i decide to open my own social media <laughs> and this is, it is connectzinc.com and it, it is in the book so this is something that uh, i think there is we don't have socialist fact checkers uh, you, you know, there, there were no fact checkers until the truth started coming out, and that's that's what's triggered that that uh, censorship. So there is no censorship here. We, we let people decide what they want to uh, read, who they want to connect with, and uh, and what they want to believe in, and what they want to post. That's that's their forum. There is no censorship. So that's that's I think is my other contribution to free speech and free America. I think is. Uh, 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 yeah. So, but, so it's connect zing, Z I N G dot com is where you can find that. You also have the Navy SEALs Fund dot org. Yes. And what that is, that's a five, it's a charity, it's a five oh one uh, C three charity. It's relief, support, and education. That's what you that's what you yes. all provide. Yes. Um the the quote that you have is quiet, flexible, and responsive. And what it is, it's just a no red tape action arm that can make stuff happen when, when people need it. Yes, and especially nowadays, when the wars are winding down, there's a lot of people from our community coming injured, and that they are usually, sometimes they are branded as a troublemakers, and when they ask for help, there is no help for them. Many charities turn them away because they're well, 
you were troublemaker. We don't want you here. We don't. We can't help you. Uh, f- uh, for for Navy SEALs fund, there is no such distinction. You were fifty three twenty six uh, or officer in SEAL teams. We will help you. Will not uh, will not uh, uh, allow you to fall. And uh, and this is another thing is there is no paid position. This, the, the charity is run by Navy SEALs only, and that we don't get paid. This is something that very was very important to me that. Uh, we do it because it is the right thing to do, not because we get paid. And uh, there's a group of great sales on our board of directors, and we are very quick. We can respond within an hour sometimes, and this is necessary because very often we get a call you know, with the sales is they don't ask for help. Usually they try to deal with mm-hmm. it themselves. We, we don't want to uh, see being seen as vulnerable or in trouble. So, so they don't ask for help, but we get a call like, hey, so I ran out of option. They're gonna take. They're gonna repossess, or I will default on my mortgage. And tomorrow, I, I will be done with it. I need help. Can we do something? And there's quite a few times we had to step in within an hours of foreclosure or something, mm-hmm. and pay that bill and and put the guy back on his feet. Because sometimes it is. I'm, at least I don't know if you were, but many guys I know were, and I was the situation that I'm almost there. I'm almost mm-hmm. got myself out on the on, on, on the in the clear, but this last thing is going to sink me. I just need a little bit push to get me over the hump, and I'm good. And I have a job lined up. I have this and this, and we are there. We 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 gave that push, so the guy can get on his feet. And 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 another things too. What is important for Navy Seals Fund is get people out of this vicious cycle of contracting. There's many guys, they like it, and I mm-hmm. understand it, and I, I think I would like it too myself, but there's many guys that are tired already. They are tired of war, they are they the combat deployments, but when they, when they retire or they leave the Navy, they don't have sometimes much options. Their skills, as you know, Navy SEALs, their skills, our skills are not easily translated into civilian world. I mean, you could be great uh, Walmart, Kmart guard, or something like this too, unless you have other skills that you acquire while in the teams, and a lot of team guys are, but there are some that don't. So we don't want to send them, uh, so what they do, say, okay, well, what I'm going to do is, I didn't find the job this time, so I will go contracting for six months, I make tons of money, and then I come back, I will have a cushion that I can find the job. Well, there's, there's no longer these tons of money available, mm-hmm because the wars are winding down. The guy going to play on such contract comes back with the money. Six months later, six months later, there's no money left and there's still no job. So what do you do, what the guy is doing? Well, I just try one more time. So just then he tells his family, his wife, his kids, I'm going again, I go one more time. Next time will be better. And he goes again on, the, on this contract, comes back, it is not better. So, so we we are looking for the way to break them out of the cycles. Those guys who want to get out, yeah. Navy Seals Fund is standing by and uh, and they're trying to help to get out of it. Besides, some of these guys are already injured, yeah. and they don't need to go on this on these type of trips anymore. Yeah, yeah for sure. Um, all this information can be found at uh, Drago Giron. dot com. That's where it is. Uh, your last name is spelled D Z I E R A N. The first name is spelled Drago. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Uh, you are back somehow on social media. You're you're on Instagram. You're on Twitter at at Drago Drago Zeron. Uh, 
Yes. Um, so you're on both those places. And this is what you got going on. The book freaking just came out. It's just, it's it's outstanding. Um, does that get us up to present day? Do we cover it? Oh, I know what we didn't cover. Y- yes. Y- your friend from, uh, from Bonefrog. Yes. Bonefrog Coffee Company. Yes. Bonefrog Coffee, bon, bon, Bonefrog Wines. Uh, he is, uh, I, I would like to bring it up because it's great coffee. This guy is, he's, there's a seal business, great business, and the, the coffee, you will like it. You will love it. This is something that, uh, that's all I drink. Uh, I would like to bring it up and uh, I would like to uh, encourage people to mm-hmm. support this Navy SEAL business. It's, it's great, uh, again, great coffee, great. Uh, and these guys are supporting our charities. Uh, they, uh, the Bonfrog uh, Coffee and Bonfrog Wines are supporting Navy SEALs fund. They are always very active with Navy SEAL community. They support, uh, again, NavySEALsFund.org. And uh, I would like to encourage people to look into their website. It is, going, it is posted at the NavySEALsFund.org as, a, as one of the, our supporters and, and, uh, and uh, active, uh, actively helping our community. So this guy that made this company, Tim, he's uh, he, is a team guy. He's a Navy SEAL. Yeah. Yes. So he retired. I think he did what twenty five years. I think something so. like that. So, and then he, you know, he's one of these freaking coffee junkies. People that are super into coffee, like, and so it's bonefrogcoffee.com. Um, and uh, I don't know if you want me to say this or not, but you were saying that he donated so much money to you and your charity that you had to be like, hey, dude, you. you you don't need to give us any more money right now. Like we'll get money from other people. That's that's what that's where where his mindset is at. Our he wants concern, to help out. Uh, yes, because uh, so uh, it is on our website. Uh, we want him to take care of himself right now and his family because uh, his uh, beloved wife. Uh, I think I can say about it because this is officially uh, on our website. The, the support for his wife uh, has. Uh, cancer and he's fighting with everything he has to provide to his family and save his his wife so uh, please go to the navysealsfund.org to our support page and read about uh, my teammate who is fighting for his wife's life right now with uh, and still trying to provide for for his kids for his children so um, again I have to be very careful how I say it for the legal reasons I think, but this is the man that we support. We actually had to ask him to do not, to, to, to instead of donate to Navy SEALs fund, just provide for his family, mm-hmm. for his for his uh, wife. And we are standing by his side. So the Navy SEALs fund is on his side. We try to help him. But this business is, it, 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 the coffee is great. This is something that I drink every day. And I was not the coffee drinker until I ran into this coffee. Mm-hmm. So um, if you can maybe show it to. Uh, so one's called Bone Frog Blend. The other one's called Frogman. Yeah. Yeah. Freaking. Um, Frogman is the, my favorite one. Yeah, that's your favorite, believe it or not. <laughs> 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 so let, let's support Tim. Let's support Bone Frog. Bone Frog. Bonefrogcoffee.com. There you go. Um, also go to NavySealsFund.org where you can read a little bit more about right. uh, what we are fighting for right now for his family. There you go. So so check those things out. 
And um, does that get us up? Does that, does that get us to present day? I think that gets I think us we're there. in a present day. Yeah. Okay. Carrie, <laughs> uh, you got any questions? I saw you over there taking notes. Were you just taking a, a, a freaking admin notes or you got some, <laughs> you got some shit to put out? Actually, What's up? I, I did have one question for you, Drago, just because I'm curious and, and I definitely plan on reading the book. Um, but in, in, in socialist state Poland, mm-hmm. about what percentage of the the Polish people would you say were bought into what was happening with the socialist government? Because it seems like with you know uh, people having rooms taken away from them in, a, in an apartment mm-hmm. building to put somebody mm-hmm. else there and uh, food scarcity, it, it seems like you the the people would look around and say something here isn't right. This doesn't seem like it's working. Um, but I I'm not sure how 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 many of the what percentage of the people are bought into this and, and are believers, and, and yeah. what percentage are kind of felt like you and and your kind of comrades? Yeah, very small percentage. Mm. They, although, if you listen to official socialist propaganda, the press, mm. the the media, the fake news media, that you would think that everybody is for socialism. Mm. There's only few this this. Uh, 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 they they call it insurrectionists who oppose it, but you know people in Poland knew about these murders after the Second World War when they were executing people opposing socialism. They, they, the, the apartments and stuff this is not the not, not the biggest deal. Yeah. That was just inconvenience. Mm-hmm. But we're talking about the imprisonments, the persecution of opposition, the the the, the prisons. After the Second World War, people were being sent out to Soviet Union, to Siberia, from Poland. So that was uh, that was so pretty much common knowledge that even strict censorship, falsified history, and destroyed monuments, burned, destroyed books, the history books, uh, 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 did not help to suppress the discontent and the hate for socialism and communism, the, the totalitarian oppressive systems. And actually the Polish constitution, I think Article 13, I believe, says that uh, it, it, it forbids any party, any type of organization which whose ideology is based on totalitarian system like socialism, like uh, fascist national socialism or communism. It is illegal to promote this type of ideologies in Poland now. Wow. Although now there's a, they try to change that uh, uh, they, they, there's a lot of forces now financed by Soros and bankers who are trying to dismantle Poland right now. They try to bring a lot of refugees in Poland. They try to build a, a hate of Poles one towards another. They try to build this French group or group with questionable morality. They try to push a, a man into girls' bathrooms. So this is, this is something that is coming from overseas, from outside of Poland, which is Poland, it is now under attack. Mm. So they try to they, they, they try to defend themselves. But you know, think what happened here, you know, I think the best, the real life teaches you a lot. The girl, the, the, the girl who was jailed in, uh, in Russian prison, mm. she refused to stand up to, uh, to our flag, our anthem, and look how she changed after she experienced uh, how patriotic she became after she returned from prison after two years uh, and become the stand up for for anthem. Now mm-hmm. she she I believe she's patriotic, 
But imagine how patriotic I am after 20 years in this type of prison. It, and and this, this is one of the things, I, the other thing I wanted to say is just how grateful I am for the perspective that, that you give us in this book. Uh, I think I, a lot of times, lack that perspective. Uh, and just to be reminded of it is, is really powerful. So I'm super fortunate to, you know, I'm... Thank God America got Drago, and thank God the SEAL teams got Drago, man. <laughs> well, so I, I want thank to, you. I want to say thank you because you actually made my point. This is the, the reason I wrote this book. I want people to read it and not and, and muse how bad it is. Everybody knows how bad the socialism and communism is. I want people to read and think how great America is. Yeah. I want this book to be a prism, a lens, where you see the good things about America, which we tend not to sometimes notice. I see people here, or not maybe some of the younger generation, not being aware about the great America and how unique country in the, in the world it is. So that's that's why I wrote this book. Yeah, that way people don't have to go to a Russian prison in order to realize that they should be uh, very grateful for the freedom that we have here in this country. And they can just go, oh, yeah, we're blessed to be here. Yes, that's that's what I would like to see people to see my book. Well, that's what it delivers. Any Drago, any closing thoughts? You got anything else for this time around? I think the same thing. Uh, for me, it is important. We lost many guys in this war, M many uh, teammates, but also other military personnel, and they live. They are still alive in our minds, in our hearts. So. We, this is how we need to keep them alive. And we must not allow them to die again by fading from our memories. So we need to call their names, we need to be, we need to, rem we need to remember them, and we need to pray for them and their families. And we are the, 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 the f these families lost their protectors. We need to step in, we must be their protectors now. So just, just that thought. Yes, indeed. Um. Well, you know, as I read the book, I know that from the book years ago, before you even made it to America, while you were waiting in, in West Germany to get, your, to get your final flight over here to America, you made a pledge, you made a promise, you made a, a pledge to be the best American citizen that you possibly could be. And uh, I want to tell you, without a doubt, you achieved that goal. And I think you've gone above and beyond that pledge, you know, from working as a janitor to a parts picker to a mechanic to a parachute expert. And then when our country went to war, what did you do? You went and volunteered to fight. And you served with a distinction as a SEAL on multiple combat deployments and it was an honor to serve alongside you then and it's an honor to always be able to call you brother and likewise likewise it is great honor to be called american and i this is something that i cherish the most and uh it was an honor to serve with you and other my fellow seals and uh, so i would say thank you for for allowing me to come to this country and live as a free man. And that, that uh, thank you is for every American, every every person here in America. I would say thank you. I will never forget that.
Well, thanks for your perspective, and thanks for being an American. Thanks, brother. And with that, Thomas Drago Zaron has left the building. Not much. I mean, damn. What a freaking story, huh? Talking about getting better, man. That guy, so socialist, communist, Poland. Prison. Prison. Yeah. yeah. Walks up to the embassy. What's up? Yep. You know what I f- failed to talk to him about? First of all, I kind of went into, like, he's kind of a mutant. Mm-hmm. Obviously, like, he's 63 years old. That's crazy. Right? How does he look? Uh, I mean, I, w- I would guess, like, early 50s. I- I'd probably say around fi- late, like, I'd probably say early 50s. Really? Yeah. I think he looks like he's 33. He, he, he looks, <laughs> yeah, saying, he looks young. Dude. And he's freaking jacked. Dude. He's jacked. Uh, yeah. He's, and uh, and he's a, he was a really, I hinted to it. Like, he was a, when you'd see him, like, fighting, you'd be like, yep, he's he's a good athlete. Explosive. He has explosive. And, like, I trained with him, you know, mm-hmm. so you could feel like, oh, yeah, he's really explosive. And he would learn really quickly. Uh, but he's just a, just a stud. But what was I going to say about this? Oh, just a beast. Yeah. A beast. Oh, what I didn't what I didn't talk to him too much about, like how did he prepare for buds? I think he just I think his life was preparation for buds and his genetics are preparation for buds. Cause uh Yeah. He yeah. he was putting that he was putting those MMA pieces together early on too when yeah. he was talking about the the boxing fundamentals, then the karate, then yeah. the taekwondo stuff. He's just getting that little mix and then taking it to the streets. Yeah, taking it to the streets. <laughs> Uh, but what a what a what a great dude, and you know a big freaking heart, you know like just a big heart wants to help people out. So awesome! Oh, I, was, I was lucky to be able to work with him, and I worked with him a lot, man. Like you know, we did a lot of ops. You know, it's freaking legit. So uh, like I said, man, what a freaking awesome dude. So there you go. Um, I think we need to take advantage of our freedom here. And we do that by getting after it, by getting better. So we're getting better with Jocko Fuel. Jocko Fuel. JockoFuel.com. Go get yourself some. Go get yourself. I'm right now fueled up on Jocko Go, by the way. It's like 10 o'clock at night right now. We just recorded for however. I don't even know how long it was. Four, four and a half, five hours, something like that. Something like that. But guess what? Here I am. Do I sound amped? You sound amped. Because I'm still freaking fired up. (laughs) I'm kind of fired up because of Drago. I'm also fired up because I got my go up in me. So get yourself an actual clean energy drink. Get yourself some some milk. Get yourself some of that 30 grams of protein hitter. You know what my combo is now? Milk cookie, 14 grams of protein, and a milk, 30 grams. Right there. You're good. 44 Gs (laughs) of the protein (laughs) machine coming at you. That's That's a... that is a gratifying thing to do in your life. Like you know what it's like. Let's say your you know your timeline, whatever you need. You need protein. You yep. already jack steel. Maybe you did squats. Maybe you did snatches. I don't know what you did, but you know you need some protein. Boom! You get that milk cookie, mm-hmm. and then you get that milk RTD hitter. Hey. And- and, and you do it in 37 seconds. <laughs> you get them both down. And yeah. I think the actual time is 44 grams of protein in 44 seconds. Yeah, <laughs> One gram per yeah. second. Uh, JockoFuel.com. Get yourself joint warfare. Get yourself the, get yourself that freaking time war too. Get in there. Get in there on that. Um, 
jockofuel.com, you can get it all. Vitamin Shop, you can get it. GNC, I just had someone text me, just got it at GNC. Yo, we're in there. We're at Wawa right now. People were hassling Wawa the other day because on Twitter, some people were like, yo, I just went to I just went to Wawa. They had a one can bottom right corner. I'm like, yep. I said, hey, let let Wawa know. Let you know. want your go, and people were getting fired up. But who knows? You know, we're up against some some billion dollar, literal billion dollar uh, conglomerates there. We got, at we got Wawa. the people though. We got the people, right? You know, we got rebellion. We got solidarity. We got solidarity. <laughs> at Jocko Fuel, uh, Vitamin Shop, GNC, Afis. Just found out, people been asking, just found out we're gonna be going into the Navy exchanges, the NEX, boy. And look, I know all you young troopers out there, I know all you young Marines, all you young sailors are out there, I know you go to the NEX, I know you don't go to the damn commissary, because you're like, yo, I'm not doing that. So we got in there, we got into the NEX, I don't know what it'll be in the next next few months, it'll be in there. Uh, Dash stores in Maryland, Wakefern, ShopRite, HEB. HEB killing it. Everyone in Texas, thank you. Thank you for supporting America. Thank you for supporting yourself. That's what you're doing. You're supporting this podcast, by the way. This podcast is fueled by Jocko Fuel. Meyer in the Midwest. Harris Teeter in the game. Lifetime Fitness, Shields. And and we got small gyms, jujitsu gyms, CrossFit gyms. We got you covered. Email jfsales at jockofuel.com if you want to get it in your in your facility. That's what we got going on. So jockofuel.com, check it out. Origin USA just came out with the RTX line. Roll, train, execute, clothing to wear while you're getting after it. That's what it is. The quick dry, the the anti-smell. What's the anti-smell called? What do they call Antimicrobial. It? Antimicrobial. We got it going on. And you know what? It's American made. It's made by freedom. It's made by freedom. You heard You heard Drago talking about it. Communism, socialism, government controlled. Well, guess what China is? Guess where your shirt's from? Your sh- guess where your shorts are from? They're from freaking China. You are keeping someone imprisoned when you buy their shit. So don't do it. Buy American. Buy freedom. Support national security. OriginUSA.com. Go get it. Hunt gear, jujitsu gear, jujitsu geese. Rash guards, boots, just go get originusa.com. That's what we got going on. We also got jockostore.com. Look at you look at you coming in on cue like Echo Charles. Look at you over there. And just I, filling that seat, bro. I said it right this we, time. I guess we don't even need Echo Charles around these parts anymore, huh? Is that jo- what's going on? Jockostore.com. We got rash guards, T-shirts, your discipline equals freedom, represent on the path gear. Look at you, bro. Like, where is it? EC's not needed, is he? He's just filling it in. Hey, everyone, EC's in Hawaii before you freak out. He's on vacation, you know, because he needs a break. He'd been under a lot of stress. He'd been working hard. EC, just being, you know, he'd been going around the clock over here cruising. <laughs> so that's why K-Dog's here. But apparently he's stepping up to the plate. He was ready, dude. We'll he's try. freaking getting in there. <laughs> getting in there. We got trucker hats, hoodies, beanies. Um, we've got warrior kid soap from Irish Oaks Ranch. Uh, we got the Jocko soap on there. The throwback steak lead. The throwback what? Stay clean, son. Oh, stay clean, boy. Yeah, stay yeah. clean. Uh, shirt locker as well. Don't forget about the shirt locker. That's where that's where the, what does Echo call them? The, the, the creative designs? Yes, sir. Yeah. So check that out. Subscribe to the podcast. Subscribe to 
Subscribe to Jocko Underground, jockounderground.com. It's where, look, you can get, we could, we, we don't control the platform unless you're listening to us on jockounderground.com, which you might be. We don't control the platform. They could shut us down tomorrow. The communists could take over. <laughs> that could happen. But if it does happen, you'd be right there on the underground. We're there. We'll be, we'll be still, we'll be like Radio Free America on the underground. That's where we're going to be. $8.18 a month if you want to join the revolution, the resistance. Come and get it. If you can't afford $8.18, well, don't worry. We got you. Email assistance at, at jockounderground.com and we got you. We got a YouTube channel. Subscribe to that. Subscribe to Origin USA YouTube channel. Subscribe to Jocko Fuel YouTube channel. Subscribe to Ashlam Front YouTube. We got a bunch of YouTube channels. Uh, Psychological Warfare. Go and buy that if you need to hear me talk more. Or revisit that. If you haven't listened to Psychological Warfare in a minute, go back. It's a good one to get go, into. Go back. Do that. <laughs> Just go back. Uh, psych, uh, uh, Flipside Canvas, Dakota Meyer. Bunch of books. Number one book, The Pledge to America by Thomas Drago. Drago Ziron. Check that one out. Freaking great book. And then I read a bunch of books too. Final Spin, Leadership Strategy and Tactics, Field Manual. You guys know the deal. L- look, get your kids a book. Get your kids Warrior 1, 2, 3, 4, and 5. Get your kids Mikey and the Dragons. Get your kids About Face by Colonel David Hackworth. Because <laughs> they need it. They need it, boy. All right. Uh, extreme Ownership, Dichotomy, Leadership. It's all in there. Echelon Front. We have a leadership consultancy. We solve problems through leadership. Go to echelonfront.com for details. We got the Dallas muster october 18th through 20th we got the next battlefield is august 8th through 10th i think there's a couple seats left couple slots left it's that little bighorn you want to see where it went down you want to walk the battlefield you want to study the terrain and the leadership and the personalities come and get it we'll be up there also we have the assembly which is the for it's a women's event run by Jamie Cochran, the COO at Echelon Front, September 14th through 16th in Phoenix, Arizona. Go check that out. We also have online training because we can't get to the whole world, but we're trying, and the way we're trying is through online training, extremeownership.com. Learn the jujitsu of leadership. Learn the magic of leadership. Learn the maneuvers, the skills, the tenets, Learn how to lead. It's not natural. It's not a natural gift. It's something you have to learn. ExtremeOwnership.com, we will teach you. You can also come on there and just ask me questions. You can come on there and take some courses. Whatever you want to do, just get in there. New uh, new course out on the Academy right now. Which one is it? Uh, relationships oh. with yourself and, and Dave Burke. Good deal, Dave. Good deal, Dave. Yeah. Relationships are everything. Relationships are everything. It's some of the things that you do to build relationships are counterintuitive. You might not be doing what you think you're doing. So get in there. Take that, take that relationships course. Believe me, you build good relationships with other people. If you build good relationships with the people you work with, if you build good relationships with the people in your family, if you build good relationships with the people that you interact with in the world, the car mechanic, the plumber, the teacher, the college professor, the doctor, the boss, the subordinate, the peer. If you form good relationships with these people, your entire life is going to be better. And their entire life is going to be better. So don't, you, but you don't necessarily know how to do this. 
Check it out, extremeownership.com. Learn how to build relationships. Learn how to lead. If you want to help service members active and retired, you want to help their gold star families, you want to help just service members in general, you want to help people that need it, go to Mark Lee's mom, Mama Lee. She's got a charity organization. It's a great organization. Uh, it's at americasmightywarriors.org. And if you want to donate, if you want to get involved, you can go and look at what she does to provide. One of the huge parts of what she does is provide medical treatment for people that need it that's outside the realm of what the VA provides. It's, it's outstanding. I've seen it completely a 180 turn around my friends' lives. So check that one out. Also, heroesandhorses.org. Micah Fink, he takes veterans up into the wilderness so they can find themselves again. And it's extremely powerful. And when he's not doing that, he's like single-handedly hunting down mountain lions with slingshots that he made out of rawhide. He's just getting it. There you go. If you want to connect with us on the interwebs, connect to Drago. Drago's at, he's got a website, dragozeron.com. He's on social media. He's on his social media, which is ConnectZing. He's also on Instagram and Twitter at dragozeron. Carrie is at Carrie Helton. Carrie underscore Helton. He didn't get that, Carrie Helton. He went quick enough. That's all good. I'm at Jocko Willing. Just watch out on any of those. Watch out for the algorithm. Don't forget about Bone Frog, Bone Frog Coffee, BoneFrogCoffee.com. Go and give that a check out. We got a we got a team guy. We got a seal that is making awesome coffee for you, and he's helping out veterans and he's uh, trying to take care of his family right now in a big way. Trying to take care of his wife. So go and check that out if you can. And uh, thanks to all the military personnel around the world. Thank you for our freedom that you've given us for centuries. Thank you for standing up and holding the line. Thanks to our allies throughout the course of history that have supported us in the fight for freedom. Special recognition for the the Polish armed forces, including the Grom, who had my back over and over again, over in Iraq, who took care of Drago. We thank you for standing with us in the fight to preserve freedom. And also thanks to our police and law enforcement, firefighters, paramedics, EMTs, dispatchers, correctional officers, Border Patrol, Secret Service, all of you first responders, thank you for your sacrifice to keep us safe here at home and everyone else out there. Isn't it crazy to think about what people have to suffer through and how easy it is to take things for granted? Things like running water, things like being able to travel freely, things like a bed, things like food, things like music and art and speech and thought being free. 
being able to do what we want, that's freedom. How often do we take it for granted? Too often. How often do we forget the price that's been paid? Too often. How often do we ignore the opportunities that freedom presents? Too often. So remember. Remember from Drago's story. And he's one of the lucky ones, by the way. He's one of the ones that only went to prison. He wasn't murdered. He wasn't buried in an unmarked grave. How many thousands and tens of thousands were? He's one of the lucky ones that was able to escape. But we have to remember that our freedom is not free and that it is fragile and that we have to cherish it and protect it. And we have to take advantage of the opportunities we get from freedom. And it's a travesty if we don't do that. So go use your freedom. Go live. Go breathe. Go build and create and speak and think and relish. Relish this freedom. And that's all we've got. And until next time, this is Carrie and Jocko. Out.